Patricia, my darling Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies. Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love with you. Patricia, my darling, Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies. Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love with you. Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. And hello everybody, it is Saturday, June 23. You know what that means, everybody? What? That's eight days before Christmas. <laughs> oh, gee, I forgot. <laughs> no kidding, I forgot. <laughs> Christmas in July, it's coming up. And, you know, we, we get the most out of Christmas than anybody else in the whole wide world. I'm pretty convinced oh. of that. Anybody who hangs out with you sure does. <laughs> so, anyway, happy July to everybody. I have some good news and some bad news. What's that, my dear? Well, the good news is, excuse me, Thursday was the start of summer. Summer has arrived. Mama, mama, my mama was going to say, what Patricia going to talk about? And I said, there will be something summer-related. So, she, you did not let me down. I knew you were going to uh, get something uh, summer in. No, yeah. this is my only summer-related thing. Oh. Okay, it was the, it was the, the first day of summer, mm-hmm. and it had, we had the longest time in daylight of the entire year. The bad news is, as of yesterday, the days started getting shorter. <laughs> Well, well, we'll manage, we'll make it work, we'll do something yeah, with it. But that's the bad news. Anyhow, it won't be 
it, it won't look like anything to speak of for a long time. So we can enjoy all so much daylight. That's true. Hello, everybody. It's Saturday. Hello, Waldo. Hello, How Patricia. How are you, my love? I tell you, I, it, I'm good. It's been a busy week. I, uh, I had a computer failure, well, sort of. Oh, no. Well, I don't know. We'll put it this way. I've been, I've been reorganizing my, my interviews and my podcast. We have, right now we're up to date. Every Saturday night show that we have ever done is up. Over 480 files are up. And wow, that's long? That's, yeah, 444 <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> and so we're working on starting to upload other shows. And so I was moving things around, copying things, deleting things, and before I know it, I hit an I must have hit a button. And I lost over a thousand files, and oh, no. at least it was not my main one, but it was the one I was working on. You know, five days worth of work went right down, went went right out, and we could couldn't retrieve it. So I'm I'm going you back. You got back up on this, right? You, oh you yeah. Couldn't retrieve it. Didn't couldn't you retrieve it. it. Uh huh. We did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just couldn't retrieve it. It went zoom. Wow. I even had Mom and Larry and Don Richard and everybody trying to figure it out. And it was just zoom. Because I, cause I was playing with the external hard drive, putting things. If you hit, if you have a lot of files and hit the delete, then they won't go into the recycle bin. It'll just go zoom. And there they went. So. Oh, my. <laughs> so oh that, my. that was a little disappointing. I was just. I'm just going backwards to my masters and putting it all together. So we'll, so you will hear really early stuff eventually. But um, so that was that was a big thing. I I won the Scrabble game tonight. Everybody is eighteen, seventeen, and two. My mom is one game ahead. She's made a throw comeback over the last two weeks. But I want her tonight. What can I say? What one was by your best word on the board. Hmm. Hmm. Best words, best words, best words. Cat, C A T? No. <laughs> I just said, don't tell me it was cat. Uh, I have to think about that. I. Dog, D A W G. Oh, I can't think of it as anything at the moment. Nothing f- fabulous in terms of. I just really scored. I scored really well, and I hit a lot of twenty pointers and things like that. You know. Excellent. Oh, job, J O B. We have to. Twenty three oh. points. Where Where did you put it? You put it on the double word, eh? No, I had I had a double letter on the J and a double letter mm-hmm. on the B to get me twenty three points. So I was very pleased about that. Very good. Yeah. How did you do that? Well, I... Double letter two times in, yeah. in a short word? Yeah. If you go to the... If you get the, if you get the Scrabble board out, and it's close yeah. to the very top, there's a there's a, a double and a double with, with a space between it. And I hit those two doubles. I want to see that board. I know. I want to see that board. Oh, boy. You know oh, what, boy, family? Oh, the next time we Patricia and I get together, I think we know what we're doing. We're going to be playing Scrabble and chess and stuff like that there. Because she's going to have to. And I'm going to cream you. I'm going to cream you. You'll cream me. You'll cream me at chess, at chess but I'm going to get you on, on Scrabble. Oh, dear. Anyway, so we, we want to know a few things. Um... 
We are taking votes for the Monday through Friday lineup. So if you'd like to see any changes, if you'd like to see Patricia keep her spot, please let her know. You know, right now we got Gunsmoke and Amos and Andy and Family Theater and Detective Shows and The Awful Shows. And if we want to make any lineup change by default, uh, let us know. If you're, if you're happy with the way it is, let us know. You can always send Patricia an email at floridawriter at hotmail.com. And she's our scorekeeper. You know, she's keep track of everything. on the peanut butter, too. <laughs> and so, and then we also need to know what's in Patricia's refrigerator. That's another big hot item. We're, we're making pretty good progress, but still... Still, there are unknown factors in that refrigerator that we need to figure mm. out. Before and, they get fuzzy, for goodness And we got a special guest in three weeks. We're going to have Victoria Price with us, the daughter of Vincent Price, on July the 14th. So those are some of the fun things. And we'll have to come up with some other special guests, you know, through the month of July and August and September and October, November, December. Whatever makes it works. Anyway. Can, can you find a way to let me download a, a PDF of the Vincent Price book? Mine is in storage. Okay. Which one? What's, what, 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 is it a biography or which one? It, oh. Remember what I it was? I have one. I wonder, huh. I wonder what it was. I have to go Google and see if we... Well, I'm, I will go up on um, Bear Manor Media. Yeah. I'll, I'll go up there. Okay. And Let me know. Cover. I recognize, I'll recognize the cover. Okay. And then, yeah, then I'll get it. Then I'll get the, uh, yeah. I'll get it for you. Or anyone. I don't care. Whichever one you think is a good deal. No, I just need to know. When I, when I, say, when I say a good deal, I mean the one that has information that right. would, would be a lot of fun to talk with right. her about. Right. So I just need you to help me figure that so you can look at the round and that'd be great. Um, okay. Anyway, she's written several books. Uh, one, a biography about her dad. She's written a, a book, I think, on her some of her dad's favorite places to eat. And uh, I think she has a current book out. So she's a pretty prolific author herself. So so that, it will be if a an, fun. If and I have a choice, yes. I would pick the bio. Okay. Can you help me get my hands on that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would like that a lot. Okay. We'll do I'll that. I'll have a whole lot more than what I can find on Wikipedia. Sure. We'll do something. And stuff like that there. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. In fact, there is a art gallery where uh, one of the universities that where he donated all his artwork on display. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He was an art collector, and that was the theme of a Johnny Dollar show that's that true. he did. That is so and it was true. a great show, oh, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 714-545-2071. Yeah, I can confirm this is Patricia. Yeah, this is a this is a Patricia with the lower voice vocal range tonight, but still, it's still the adorable one. At seven one four five four five two zero seven one. You have to let me know if you like my sexy level voice. Maybe it's not <laughs> low enough to be sexy. <laughs> nah, I don't think Excuse quite. 
quite there. <laughs> Poor thing. Oh my. Poor We've thing. We've got bronchitis again. Uh, what did you go out? Did you go out this week? Did you did you did you do a little exercise outside or anything this week? No, I was uh, a lazy lump. I walked the halls and that was it. Okay. A lazy lump. <laughs> but, I, but I did. That's what the nuns used to call us. You're a lazy lump. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to take that under advisement. Uh, oh. Oh. Anyway. Anyway, yes. And anyway. I got some stuff done. Anyway, we're going to probably later this evening feature some John Dunning interview. The first one I got picked out is John Dunning with his special guest, Frank Nelson. Of course, Frank Nelson was the yeah guy on the Jack Benny show. So, I have that one. And Frank was one of these guys who didn't hold anything back. So, he was a a very wonderful guest. So, um, so I would say you tune in for that one. Here on Yesterday USA. 714. Is the phone working? Let's, we better find out. <laughs> okay. Ooh, wow. Okay. Wow. Loud. Okay. Loud. That's good. Really loud. That's good. Loud. Well, make sure that those were alive. Anyway. I have, I have some news about Napoleon's hat. Okay. Well, apparently he had a whole bunch of hats, uh, <laughs> and they have identified only 19 remaining hats. Heaven knows how many he had. Wow. But Heritage, uh, it was, I don't even know which auction it was. Let me see. Oh, in France. I can't pronounce it. It's a French auction. And take a shot at how much one that was battered up brought. $158,000.22. Not even close. Four hundred thousand dollars plus thousand must have been something like seven or eight thousand dollars for the uh, buyer's fee. Wow. Four hundred thousand dollars for a battered hat. It looked dreadful. It's something that our mothers would have thrown out long <laughs> before it ever reached the closet. And there are nineteen more out there, with, and they're trying to tell us that because there are only nineteen hats. That's how come it's worth $400,000. If it were the only hat, I can't imagine what it would be worth. Who's there? Hold on, Carl. One thing. Could you do me a favor sometime when I research the next month or so? I, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be handling a couple hundred movie posters. So mm-hmm. I, I want to there's websites oh, out yes, there, I'm websites out mm-hmm. there, way, way the people that buy and trade movie posters. So... Yeah. So yeah. maybe you can help me figure that one out over the next yeah. couple of months. Um, Her- Heritage Auctions is, well, we can talk about yeah. that. Yeah. Go ahead. Hello there. Yeah, I'm Patricia. Well, I was just calling to see if the phone was working. I appreciate that, Dan. I wasn't too sure, you know? Yeah, you're a little low. Uh, Patricia's a little low. Well? Did, did you get my sippy cup? Mm, no, not yet. Walter, you want the sippy cup? Yeah, I want a sippy cup out there, and you can press it into the ground. Walden, a distillery warehouse uh-huh. with barrels of of bourbon. It, it, it just collapsed. Half of it collapsed, and flowing in the streets and in the lawn and seeping into the water wells. 
477,000 <laughs> gallons of bourbon. And I want Dan to go out and just kind of sop up some of it and save it for Christmas. <laughs> you want him to make work? You think uh, I can't I can't do that. The worms are too mean now. Oh jeez. Well now can can Dan make bourbon balls from scratch? <laughs> sure, why not? Could you turn could you turn Dan down a little uh-huh. bit for me, please? Yeah, I can do that. Am I loud? No, I, I Yeah. I'm gonna turn you on my side it is. I'm gonna yeah. turn Patri- I'll turn Dan down here and I sh- okay. we should be fine. Okay. All right, Dan, go ahead. Better? Better. Yeah. Much better. Great. I have Great. all these yeah. I have all these knobs. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times eight. I have sixty-four knobs here. I guess hopefully I grab one of them that's gonna work. Plus, you know, I see two more here. Sixty-six, sixty-six knob, ten, twelve sliders, and some big knobs. I guess hopefully know which one to grab to make Patricia not lose her hearing. Well, can't you get one up for Patricia for Christmas? I know. She wants her own little knob. I know. She does. <laughs> Bill wanted at one time to outfit me in my office with uh, the ability to come in when somebody wasn't on the air. And I said, thank you very much, but no thank you. Uh-uh. <laughs> nope. There's a one and only king of the buttons, and that's Walden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, but he may play hooky. That's true. He may what? Play hooky? Yeah. He may play hooky one one week. Yeah, but but then I get a night off. Let's not not wreck it, okay? What would you do with a night off? Oh, I would read a book and watch Keeping Up Appearances on PBS and stuff like that there. The Bucket Woman? The Bucket Woman, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) And also, are you being served? Which is usually after after that. I haven't seen those shows in so long, though. I don't think they've made one in thirty years. Probably not. They're probably on YouTube by now. In fact, I don't believe. I don't know if any of the. I don't know if any of the. Um, uh, keeping up. Uh, no, I'm not sure if any of the are you being served people are even alive anymore. Uh, Patricia Replidge. No, no. Uh, are you being served? Yeah. Oh, oh, I don't know about that. That's interesting. Now, a bunch of years ago, they had a revival, just a, a one-time dealie where everybody got together again, and there were at least two missing. I don't remember who they were, but who mm-hmm. knows what's left now. I do not yeah. know. I believe they're all gone. I do believe they are. I know, I know that... Um, Frank Thornton, he uh, passed away after, I think he was one of the remaining ones. He was on that RU, uh, not uh, the last of the summer wine. Are you familiar with that show? Are uh, the, uh, the last of the summer wine? I don't think so, no. Okay. I'll have I may, to. I may have seen it. I've, I've seen a bunch of them once or twice, but I don't recall that that was one. That made an impression on me. I believe our public broadcasting, the KET up here in Kentucky, I believe they were one of the first to show the breadcrumbs here in America. I believe they uh-huh. started in the early 80s. 
I'm so glad they're here. I can watch Are You Being Served and um, Keeping Up Appearances, especially with Hyacinth Bouquet. Huh? It's Bouquet, yes. not Bucket. Yes. It, it is just a wonderful show for anyone who has PBS on Saturday night. <clears throat> these shows on the East Coast, they Keeping Up Appearances, excuse me, hold on. I'm just sitting here trying to think, what was the fir- very first British really show? What were some of the first British shows shown in America? Uh, wasn't Dark Shadows one of I them? I don't know. Back in the day? Could be. Dark, maybe. Yeah. Dark yeah. And Doctor Who? Yeah. Doctor Who? Yeah. Huh? yeah. Red Dwarf, too, I think, was shown here. If you're hmm. familiar with Red Dwarf. No. No. I'm trying, comedy. I'm trying to think of the comedy, the comedian, the British comedian from the late 70s, early 80s. Benny somebody, I'm trying, I can't. Benny, Benny Hill? Yeah, Benny, Benny Hill. Hill, yeah. Benny Hill, oh my God. One, he you, you probably watched Jane Leaves, who was on Frasier, was actually one of the latter um, Hills Angels. Mm. You know, played oh. Daphne on uh, Frasier. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first one of the fresh, first British comedians to come over was that uh, Jeremy Lloyd. He was on Laugh-In. And he was also a writer on um, on um, Are You Being Served? Mm. He got in with George Slaughter with Laugh-In right. back in the late 60s. So, but uh, oh, poor Patricia having bronchitis. I know. Mm-hmm. That's not, I haven't had a healthy day in weeks. What? No apartment looking then. No, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. But I found yeah, well. like a, an, a perfect imitation of a seal <laughs> this morning. It was really cool. <laughs> it really did well. That sounds a lot like Frank, like uh, Walden's Frank Nelson. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, 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 my goodness. So, Dan, are you getting ready for the uh, Civil War reenactment? Anything you going on exciting? We, down we, there? we really are. We're, we're just about squared away. We're going to have Abraham Lincoln, their greeting guest. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a, a leather crafter. We're going to have a blacksmith. We're going to have a fellow sh- uh, showing uh, how to fire a Gatlin gun. And this year, wow. we're doing something new. We're going to have a 1860 chuck wagon there cooking cornbread and beans. Way to other, go. Wow. And other food stuff. So, it's, it's free- what kind of yeah. beans? What kind of beans do they serve during the Civil War? You know, I'm not absolutely sure at this point. I, I, I we, We've had to... Do a little revamping. Uh, I'm I'm not up on my 1860 cooking, but I imagine they made. I think they made cornbread with the, you know a Dutch oven. First. Oh yeah, they could do that. Yeah. Your no, job I'm is used to, to find out the beans and how they are prepared, sir. Are they going to charge 1860 prices? Uh, I think you probably could get by on a on a donation of that type. Uh, we're we're I believe we're just going to, you know, offer up the uh, 
the food for a goodwill donation at this point. Oh. The price of so. 1860 food Walden was conscription and fighting with real bullets coming at you wasn't a very good <laughs> trade-off. Well, apparently you've never had more cornbread before. <laughs> well, maybe, okay. Okay. I, and I do like cornbread. I'll bet it's good. That's right. Good. But I'm really oh, I love cornbread. Beans. There are we, we, 68 different ways to prepare beans mm-hmm. and different kinds of beans. We never let a piece of cornbread go to waste in our house. My oh. dad loved uh, My dad loved cornbread and milk, and my mom loved cornbread and peaches. Oh. Ah. Now, your father put cornbread in a bowl of milk? Yeah. Well, he drank milk with it. He put it in the bowl of milk. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That was his dessert when he was a kid many nights. Yeah. Having a glass of milk yeah. with cornbread. Yeah. You know, I tell you, one of the great treats of of Americana is nothing like hot bread. Hot, fresh oh, bread. You oh, know? Gosh. Yes, yes, yes. My brother and sister in law took me to uh, Sweet Tomatoes. The, it's a national chain, and anyone who has never been to one, please check it out. There's a salad bar that must be, I would guess, 25 feet long, mm-hmm. on, and you've got two sides. You can go down either side, and they have a bakery and a soup display. There must be a dozen different kinds of soups and pasta, so you can get focaccia bread and soup and salad and the, the fixings. It's marvelous. And the bread is always fresh and warm. Oh, yeah. yum. Oh, yum. Mm. So that's my long way of saying I agree with you. Yeah. And it's called Sweet Tomato? Mm-hmm. Sweet. I've never heard of it. Sweet Tomatoes. Yes, Sweet Tomatoes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Check it out. Out here, we, we, out here we have a thing called Soup Plantation, which is a very similar layout. That's, you know. That is. That is one of the soup plant. It's soup plantation slash sweet tomatoes. Mm-hmm. So you do have one out there. We did, but they closed them up. Right oh. now, restaurants are re- restaurants and uh, and middle class stores and apartments are really going to a total revamping out here on the west coast. Wow. What is, what's happening with the the restaurants? Are they going more upscale than usual? They're going more. They're trying to be more interactive. Meaning, uh, you cook your own stuff. Well, what they want to do, they want to make them. They want to open these restaurants to be wide open, and have yeah. gaming and sport bars and. Oh Oh my gosh. <laughs> It's so hard to have a quiet meal with somebody. You can't, you can't hear. Like they, uh. a lot of places are really, they think, they think, uh, so. The, and and now the some of the department stores out here are restructured their stores and everything's by brand now. So when you go by uh, brand. By brand. By brand. Yes, by brand. A Nike store and um, a Gap store. Is that, that what you mean by brand? No. We, we say you go into a Nordstrom regular department store. You know, mm-hmm. instead of having all the all the women's uh, blouses in one area, 
it'll be separated by if there's like four or five different blouses under different brands, then each brand will have their own stand. Wow. Uh, well, well, that makes sense. Don't they have that anyway? No, it's a whole new format now. Hmm. So. Pay attention. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's really interesting to see what they're trying to do to yeah. tap into the different markets now. Huh. So. Huh. Well, okay, Dan, you get one more guest again this week on the refrigerator before we hang up. Oh. <laughs> Can we have a rundown of what? I, I think I've heard you had pickles yep. recently in your, pickles. In your mm-hmm. fridge. And Pick. celery and carrots and salad and salad dressing and um, margarine. That was last week. And <coughs> ooh, hmm. what else, Walden? Peanut uh, butter is not in there. No. Uh, is it olive oil or something? Is it one of the one of the oils? No, I have, no, I have salad dressing. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, cheese! Cheese! Cheese, yes, cheese. cheese. I think somebody had it, but it's worth repeating because yes. I have different kinds of cheese. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, Dan, your turn. Okay, let's see now. Um, how about how about some fruit? How about some fruit? Yeah, how about some is, fruit isn't going to cut is it. Is fruit is fruit too broad? Yes. Much too broad. Much too broad. Much too broad. Mm, well, I know one thing. We have fresh peaches coming up here now. Well, that's not one of them. <laughs> that's not one of them. Wait, oh, got it. Wait until next week to try again. You're closing All right. in on it, though. You're closing in. So, Well, thank you for calling, sir. And um, please consider stopping up some of the bourbon, okay? There have got to be there have got to be casks lying on their sides which still have their belly full of not not full, but you know, um, puddles at the bottom and you could dip in the air. That's right. Go in and say you're doing historic research. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Having a good time at it too. Yeah. I'll send you my sippy cup, okay? Yeah. Hey, um, is the blue still down? Yeah, they're they're wait on they're waiting for equipment. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's, it's, was, it's still down. I was going to listen to Spurvac and it, I tried listening to it and it was down again. Yeah. It's like they're gone. Yeah, I guess they had guys in there all day and it, they've ordered parts and so they're waiting for parts to show up and so uh-huh. that's where we are on the computer front for did, yesterday. Did Bill month. have some bad weather and? Texas, I know they uh, had some tornadoes down there like about a week ago. I haven't, when I talked to Kim, she hasn't mentioned it. If it's, it may be in Texas, but nothing, nothing to face personally. Kim fell down early part of the week and hurt her knee. So that's been oh, slow. No. slow. Yeah, you know, I, I still think, I still like the idea of giving every member of Every member of our family bubble wraps. You know, that way, Patricia, Kim, everybody who we love don't fall. They just bounce right up. It's just, you know. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, I'll let you go and hope everybody gets better. We will, Dan. Okay, thanks, Dan. Have a good weekend. Take care. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. little fun sideline where I mentioned we're working on a film on Frank Brzee's career this summer. 
and we got the invite. You know, many, many of you know that uh, Frank Percy discovered Vanna White. So here, uh, late of July, I'm going up to Van. I'm going up to Wheel of Fortune to sit down and do an on-camera video with Vanna to talk about her memories of Frank Percy. That will be great. Yes, fun. it's very nice for her to agree. So we'll be uh, in the midst of Wheel of Fortune, and we'll be in the green room, and we got a. Where, where, where is it broadcast from? I guess, I guess uh, I didn't look it up, but I guess it's a CBS property. So TV. T- no, I mean, um, Los Angeles or LA. Hollywood. It's LA. Yeah. LA. Yeah. LA. Okay. Oh, that yeah. would be a joy to get yeah. threaded through. So, so anyway, we're, that, that's very nice for her to agree to do that. So. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're working on that. Seven one four five four five. 2071 is our number. Give us a ring. Or a ring ding ding, as Bill likes to call it. It all comes through the same board. I have more nauseating Napoleon stuff. Please do. Okay. One auction in 2014 had a Southern uh, Korean founder and chairman of the Harem Food Conglomerate. I don't know what that is. But he bought one hat for... Two million dollars. Wow. And it was five times the asking price. What is wrong with these people? (laughs) (laughs) They're not accustomed to bargain shopping or buy one, get one free, are they? You know, I I think we got a new career for you. You could be the smart shopper for all these rich people and keep a commission for money that you save them. Oh, man. I mean, really. He really wanted that hat. He didn't want anybody to outbid him. No. But five times the asking price? Good heavens. Can you, uh, the auction house must so stupid? Gee <laughs> 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 whiz. Um, okay. And in November, oh, Bonaparte had a laurel crown, uh, you know, a laurel wreath like um, mm-hmm. the, the old Romans used to wear. Right. And the laurel crown has little laurel leaves on it. Somebody bought one leaf from the coronation crown for $725,000. One leaf from the crown. Wow. Somebody needs to corral these people and sit down and have a chat with me. When, when, and you. When, when, when you got the money, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. There's I wonder. I wonder what the most money an auction house ever made on an item. My guess it had to be some oh. artwork or something, you know, that went yes. into yes. big uh, bucks. I'm confident. I'm confident it was. What did we? Uh, the Norman Rockwell was peanuts compared to some of the other. Oh, the Norman Rockwell. I know. Forty-six million dollars or whatever you saw. Yeah. Somewhere in the forty. Yeah. Now, if I weird. sold the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. Um, that should be a good commission. How would you take it home? Here's my address. You can ship it out to me. <coughs> but me. C- can you imagine the commission check for selling the book and bridge? I wonder what kind of asking price we okay, could you get. You could buy it for $42 million. <laughs> and inherit all of the road work that has to be done. <laughs> oh... But no, Brooklyn's such a great name for a city. I wonder where they got the name from. 
you know? I uh, mean, it, it was originally Brookline. Okay. Well, there must be a must be a brook there. Do I have to look at? No. Yeah, I guess I do. Eventually, you do. Oh, I guess I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if you tell me eventually, it never does. Uh, eventually, never, never arrives. I I believe it would. Can I be able to remind really? you? Of course. Really? Okay. You keep talking. Origin of name Brooklyn. Anyway, um, next Friday. We're going to feature an interview that Larry and I did earlier in the week with the people who run the Ernie Pyle Museum. Ernie Pyle, the famous World War II correspondent, and his hometown in Indiana have preserved his memory with a small museum. And so we're going to feature that interview plus different broadcasts. So that will be next Friday's offering for everybody. Way to go. And now I know for, Patricia's not planning to tune in on this one. But on July 1st, Sunday, we'll have one of the experts on Al Jolson with us, Dave Grimes. So, but I know Patricia won't tune in. Cause oh, hooray, hooray. Oh, <laughs> jumping up and down for joy. Joy, joy, joy. <laughs> happy feet, happy feet. Patter, patter, patter. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I, I, I will be requesting an, an excuse to be absent. <laughs> Who but, do I speak with? But Ken Golf will be with us on July 13th, that Friday. Oh, cool. And my mom made a request tonight. He said, you need to interview Patricia. So, oh, she, so we, we discussed this last Saturday, and I don't think that the, that's the thing that we need to negotiate with her, uh, a future Friday night for her to come on and and um, and talk to John, Larry, and I about stuff. What kind of stuff? Well, maybe you can set the guidelines ahead of time, but... Yeah, don't ask any questions. (laughs) (laughs) Just let me be there. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Oh, my. Well, Um, my mom said, you know, Patricia had such an interesting career. And so, you know, how how did he able to keep it going and, and make it work? You know, being a writer, it takes a lot of creativity to make a living at that. And you've done yeah. that. You've done yeah, that. Yeah, I did. I did do that. Yeah. So. Okay. Here's here's the origin of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. It is from Dutch, um, the language that I get. It looks like Brooklyn, um, the the Dutch word Brooklyn, B-R-E-U-K-E-L-E-N, meaning broken land. And it is a combination of Brook with the suffix Lynn. Mm. Brooklyn is Dutch. So I guess the Dutch settled the Brooklyn region of New York City. How about that? So the Dutch were the big influence in the day in New York, weren't they? Oh, they were. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, indeedy. Yes, indeedy. You don't think of anything else for the Dutch in, in America besides New York. What? Well, do you think, what else did the Dutch do for America? Well, they founded New York. That's what I mean. That's pretty big. Used, yeah, it used to be um, instead Manhattan. <clears throat> excuse me, the island of Manhattan was originally named New Amsterdam by the Dutch. Right. And then it became Manhattan. I think it was Manhattan. Oh yeah, I was right. Um, Manhattan comes from the Munsee language of the Lenni Lenape uh, Indians island. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? I had I else? had I had a play 
a medicine man from the Grenadine and Appy tribe in the uh -huh. Orderville. So I had a, that's the only reason why I know that even tribe even exists. What can I say? I don't know. What can you say? I know. I know. Someone well, for. I have, I have stuff. If people aren't going to call in, I will talk about stuff. 714-545-2071. Go right here, my dear. Go with yeah. your stuff. Okay. Um, let me say, oh, I started to tell you the sweet revenge for friends at the auction. Mm-hmm. The auction house had scheduled the sale of the hat for on the 203rd anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. Ah. And the joke was that the high selling price was a form of revenge for France. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. I've been to uh, Waterloo. It's, it's not that big of an area, you know, where they had really? the battle. Yeah. yeah, well, no, I guess not. No. I guess not. So, okay, well... Let me see. I was in, I was also in Versailles. If everybody remember the history, the Versailles uh -huh. Treaty and everything. And the thing that caught uh -huh. me about the Versailles, the sidewalks were made out of bricks, and you almost had to keep your toes up because if not, your foot would go right into the ground, kind of thing. You could brick, oh, brick. cobblestones. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They can be dangerous. You do not wear high heels on cobblestones. No. And and if you had gorilla feet, you know, that gripped mm -hmm. everything and you could climb trees with your feet, that would be very good on our feet when walking on cobblestones. Another thing, because everything of the Dutch and the Holland and places were the canals. And so that's, when I was in Holland, that's what you did. You took the boats, you took the little canoes or the little boats down the canals. That's pretty, pretty romantic things to think about, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Do you remember what year the Titanic sank? I think it was 1911, maybe? Or 12, 1912. 1912, 1912, 1912 I think, yeah. yeah. Well, I have some ironic stuff about the Titanic mm -hmm. after our call. All right. Hello there. All You're right. on with Patricia. Am I there? Hello. Hello there. Hi. How you doing? Hi, who is this? This is Paul. I didn't hear it ringing. You didn't? Oh, hi, Paul. <laughs> I didn't hear you ring either. You well, woke me up, Patricia. I heard the phone. I did. Yeah, your what voice. Did I do? Oh, my voice. Yes, my sexy voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, okay. I will bark at you once in a while tonight, but next week it should be fine. Yeah, I'm sorry you have it. I I know it very well. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's not really a problem. It's just that I sound like seal in the morning. I can do that. I can. I can. I can. I'm glad you're feeling good enough to be on. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling good enough not to be sick. Yeah. But that, that's... So how are you doing? I'm still I'm still hurting. I still got this stuff going on. Although I woke up being able to breathe out of my nose, which is completely unusual <laughs> lately. That was oh. good. That's always a good yeah. thing. Yeah, I, my throat's hurting, and 
I ain't gonna have a doctor next week, so my doctor, so I'll be asking her about a plan of attack on this. Would, would, some wa- old. would some warm water or something like that help? Would, would, yes. Yeah. Yeah, tea with honey. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm drinking tea. Yeah. I like tea. Yeah. I have throat uh-huh. coat every once in a while. I, I yeah. think there's a, supposed to be a tea out there, like, like a, that's supposed to be like a lining for your vocal cords, like, coat. Throat? Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Throat, no, coat. Right. Like probably something that you put in the tea, maybe like honey. Maybe uh, so. I, I can't imagine that a tea leaves would offer any kind of a soothing coating. Huh. Find out. I didn't you know. I'm telling you the name here. Okay. It's called Throat Coat. Okay. E-O-A-T. Yeah. We're do, doing exactly that. Tea? And that's the brand. Is it a tea? It's a tea. Yeah. It's and, and what do they put in it to do that? Oh, gosh, I can't. I can't tell you. Oh, Paul, don't you know there's always going to be a test <laughs> when you tell us something? Yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. Sorry, although I did read uh, a nurse um, uh, giving some evidence of some of the um, ingredients in it of not being healthy, being able to change your system some I guess so so she was saying mm-hmm. I will stay away you know it's always was yeah. amazing to me that tea has more caffeine than coffee does and yeah. it depends on both of them on how strong you make the beverage uh huh yeah so you, these Lipton strong tea does and kind of moderate on the coffee sure mm. different kinds of tea lots of a kick mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some that don't come close yeah. So, are we doing the refrigerator again tonight, sir? Sure. Um, I, I got. I got to think for a second. You here. were cooking. You're uh, cooking with gas, Paul. You're. You're probably the leader of the refrigerator treasure hunt. You know. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is just the USA. And you've you've already been asked about salad dressings, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. And while he is thinking, this is Yesterday USA Radio Network, Mm -hmm. and you can find us at yesterdayusa, all one word, dot com. We are there. And if you'd like to hear previous Patricia, there was more than 800 files up there, Patricia and I, on, on our podcast. So... If you search for the Saturday show, Saturday night show, you'll find us. And there's over 800, and, almost 850 files up there. That's a lot that of is, hours. That's a lot of hours, yeah, my gosh. Yeah. How many hours on average do you think the files are? Four or five, One yeah. Or three I, hours, I, I, five think, I think it was over 3,000 hours up there of you. Has Butter been guessed? Butter. I guess, as a matter of fact, I think it was you who mentioned yeah. margarine or butter last week. Was it okay. not? Um, well, then I think so. Butter. I think Paul did that one, yeah. Yeah. And at least you're consistent. About jams, peanut butter and or, or jelly, has that been asked? Yeah, we have jam. That was already guessed. Can you imagine? Patricia doesn't put her peanut butter inside the refrigerator. What a 
What a shock. <laughs> I can spin Well, we, we don't, unless it would be one of those natural ones that uh, that the oil separates what, out of. What's, what's wrong with my family that they put peanut butter outside of the refrigerator? This, this is just incredible. What can I say? Well, it's just incredible. Well, it makes it so you can use it. I haven't heard anybody say yet that once you take, if you take your peanut butter out of the refrigerator, it's going to tear up your bread too easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's just incredible to us that we have someone associated with our family, never mind a leader of our family, who has not only peanut butter in the refrigerator, but believes Tootsie Rolls are caramels. <laughs> Caramels, huh? Mm, yeah. No. Well, I don't think we need to get the Caramel Association of America on the show or something like that, Patricia. I agree. I just came across the Tootsie Roll phone number this week. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm finding all sorts of neat stuff on, on both computers, so, except the stuff I wanted. But oh. Other than that. How about cherries right now? No cherries. Oh. No cherries. That was a good guess, though, because uh, Dan asked about fruit, and I said yes. So peaches and cherries are off the list. And that's the only guess you get. You have to wait until next week for another one. Oh, okay. Oh, you said they're off the list. Mm Mm-hmm. They're off the list. Meaning they haven't been guessed. Meaning they've they've been canceled because they're not there. Okay. They've already been guessed. May I ask? Panel. May I ask another big question to the fam- oh, to our panel here, of people <laughs> and to the family? What? Apples. What? Apples. Yeah. Are they in the refrigerator or out the, outside of the refrigerator? Oh yeah. Apples, but I like them crispy in their fridge. Yeah. Okay. I think they stay crispier in the fridge. Oh yeah, they're stored in the fridge by the yeah. companies. They have. Yeah. Um, you know, you can tell when when you're eating last year's apples when they're they're starting to get too old. Yes, they're they're dry and mealy. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. And you can tell last so, year's apples if you tap them and they sound hollow. They're dry. No, did you say that cherries were guessed before me? No, no, no. no. The, now that they have been guessed. That's uh, anybody who guesses again, I'll say no. It was guessed yeah, already. Yeah, because Dan, Dan, yes. Dan, Dan, yes. Dan suggested peaches tonight, and you did suggested cherries. So, but we know Patricia does have some form of a fruit in her refrigerator. We think she hasn't right. confirmed that. Yeah, we had twenty questions, but we haven't confirmed. Um, oh, I confirmed it with you. I blew it. Okay. <laughs> Gee, if I told Walden what I went shopping for one day and I said, ruh row, <laughs> I gave away what's in the Frigidator. Oh, well, then. Oh, well. Okay, well, thank you for the guest, Paul, and thank you for the call, and you behave, and have a good week. I'm behaving. Thank you very much. All right, Paul. Okay. Good night. Good night, Paul. You guys. Bye-bye. 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 Poor thing, sound like he hunted the weather. It's no fun when you're sick, you know? No, it's no fun when uh, you're sick. 714. I'm not sick. I just sound awful. Okay, so there's Patricia who just playing sick. She's fine, but no. she's playing sick. Is that yeah, what we're saying? I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. So sorry. You're getting, be- you're getting, <laughs> you're getting better with the honk. Hello there, you're on with Patricia. Uh, it's true. It's 
Hello. Hello there. Is that you, John? Hi, who is this? This is John. Hi, John. Hi, John. And I guess Jellies and James last week. That's true. Yes, and, and that that was already taken, so you get another guess. I get another guess? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> I've got to think when I was laying up in the rehab. There's a lot of things. computer down, John? John, you want to put your computer on pause or mute or... Uh... Hey, would you, could you hold on a second? You bet. I've got... I've got... Sure. You bet. Got some bad news oh, oh. my eyes. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh John. I got macular wet in both eyes now. Oh dear. Oh dear. It it don't look good. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh gosh, I am so sorry. Yeah, I went to the mm-hmm. doctor's uh, Friday, my grandson in law took me. And mm-hmm. uh, he took pictures in back of my eyes and the one is completely red with blood. Okay. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh. That's obscuring. Mm-hmm. So, it doesn't look... And what about what about the other eye? This is... It, my, what I just... They just discovered is worse than my other eye. So, he wants to see me next month. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I got two shots Friday, mm-hmm. one in each eye. Yeah. I don't recommend recommend that to anybody. Oh and gosh. I had to go next month in my yeah. right eye now. He wants to give me another shot there in a month. Yeah. Oh, I have gosh, very, you have really been through the mill on yeah. that. Yeah. I have a very difficult time reading and... Yeah. Open. If I send you an email with blown... with If I send you an email with type really big... Is that, can you deal with that? Yes. Yes, okay. I, some people do already. They send real big emails. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But uh, like, like the, my portable telephone, my iPhone, mm-hmm. if somebody sends me a text, mes- text message, I can't read it. Oh, gosh. I have to get to oh, my wife's gosh. speed. Yeah. But that, that was really bad news for me Friday. Yeah. So. Very discouraging. I'm so sorry. You've, yeah. you've really gone through the mill on this, John. You've dealt with so much about it. Mm-hmm. And I got to thinking, lying in bed, because mm-hmm. I was waiting for the pain to hit, but it didn't hit this time. Because mm-hmm. sometimes when that, that, that they put a numb, numbing cream around my eyes before they give me a shot. Okay. Sure. Sometimes when that wears off, it's... It's really, really bad. It's really horrible pain. Mm. So it didn't happen this time, so I was glad when I was yeah. I lying there in bed thinking of subjects to discuss yeah. with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought back I thought back when I was a little kid mm-hmm. about going to the doctors and things like that. Yeah. Well, we never went to the doctors. Uh-oh. It, it cost too much money. And... There was a place we. It was his name was Wagers Wagers Drugstore. He was not a pharmacist. In them days, you could get away with that. Wow! And you you could go in for home cures. Okay. You would go in and talk tell tell them what's wrong, and he would compound you something. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh. So did it ever? Some of it. Did, did, did it? Did it? Did it, 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 it 
Did it ever work? I can remember when we had a cough, what we called it croup. Mm-hmm, yeah. When uh, we would get that, my mother would get, get on the streetcar and cost a dime, go to Wagers and get something called Brown's Mixture and keep it in the medicine cabinet. And it was so addictive. I would sneak up every once in a while and take a swig right out of the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what was in it? I know some of them uh, had turpentine. How much alcohol was in it? I don't know, but it tasted really good. And nothing wow. ever went bad. You, you're talking about leaving things out of the refrigerator. Right. Uh-huh. Whenever we're done with something, uh, some kind of concoction for an illness, it went in the little medicine cabinet in the bathroom. Stayed yeah. there forever. Now, John... It, if, it if would you, never go bad. If I went to the old radio show, especially the great... They always talk about mustard plaster. Did, yeah. Did you ever have a mustard plaster, and did it help? No, I never had one, but I think my father had one. He had a bad back. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it was like a, uh, a large Band-Aid. They would, they would rub it, some kind of solution on your back, and they would put this on your back, and they called that a plaster, I guess. Huh. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm sure, but I never had one, but I must have had a thousand enemas. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Oh, my gosh, you poor kid. Every, everything in my family, my mother said, you need an enema. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And it was, it had to be Fells Naftis Fels soap. Well, it had to be that. Well, I remember the kid, a lot of time. my brother and I would get a lot of jam fingers or, or jam toes or whatever. And we always yeah. use we always use hot get get the um a bucket you know, or a, I th- the popcorn pan put hot water in it and I guess it'd probably be, my guess would be Epsom salt that you put mm-hmm. in there and just let your your joint or your foot your hand be in there and let, 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 let it work itself out that that would yeah, be Epsom salt was good mm-hmm. and we had something called camphorated oil you remember that no. I remember hearing about that, yeah. Mm. And it smelled like camphor. Huh. Yes. And uh, my mother used to put it in a pan if you had stuff, stuffiness. And she put it in the oven, and it would give off vapors, and we had to sit there and smell these vapors coming out of the oven. Huh. Cam- camphorated oil. And there's one home remedy that sponsored a radio program years ago. I hope you remember it. It's called a bromoquinine. Yes. You remember that? Yep. Inner Sanctum used to be the spot have bromoquinine. And... It, the reason it was called bromo was it was made by the people who made bromoseltzer. Yeah, and I think they even sponsored the Sherlock Holmes in the 30s. You know, they were there. I think it was Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Bromoquinine. And, uh, Knox Manning. I, I remember answer. taking that promo quinine, which they don't sell anymore. <laughs> well, remember the, com- the radio commercial? All we had that train, Bomo Salsa, Bomo Salsa. Yeah, that's the Emerson that. Drug Company. That was in Baltimore, Maryland. Emerson. What's that? Yeah, Bromo Salsa. The Emerson Drug Company was in Baltimore. It went out of business. But they have a bell tower down here with a clock in the top. It, it says 
bromo seltzer because there's 12 letters and one for each of the hour. It's bromo seltzer. Wow. That's Only a good response. advertising agency could come up with that. <laughs> and then we, then we had another situation. It was a, it was a Baltimore ease. It's kind of a thing that's only said in Baltimore. If you cure something, you knocks it. Huh. You know, you, you knocks it. And, and they had uh, rashes and skin infections. They used to put this salve on there and say it would knock eczema. Oh. And, and that became not sema. Right. Did, did, oh, ah, got it. Did Knox have a gelatin-like substance to it? Yeah. Noxema. Uh-huh. You can, you can Google that up, Emerson Drug Company or Noxema. With that, yeah. uh, a Baltimore ease, it knocks a fever or you know, things like that. Uh-huh. Well, everybody knew when you were out in the sun if you smelled like Noxema. My, yeah. my, I, I mentioned this, and and uh, my I was named after my great uncle, and they had a pharmacy in the family for a hundred years, and the thing he always made sure everybody had in our family was Resnol, and at one time, and this was brown, and it smelled, but it must have cured everything, because at one time, <laughs> <laughs> it must. <laughs> It, on the way, it, on the label, we just had all these items, and probably FDA took the time to take them all off. But it just, he just, just put the salve on it and just cleared up everything. It was just amazing. It was just wow. brown and it smelled. Nothing ever went bad in your medicine cabinet. It stayed there forever. Well, twenty years later, you're still taking it. <laughs> But I, I was lying in bed thinking about things like that. It'd be a good subject about home remedies. Yeah. Patricia, <laughs> Patricia has files on home remedies. We haven't used that one in a while. so we That's have to... right. And now I've got my big computer up and running. I'll dig it up. We had some great stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, home remedies. And I remember Nox, N-O-X-Zema, eczema. And uh, they used the word Knox, and it became their trade name, Noxema. What what medicine tastes the worst? Well, do it, it, uh, does anybody uh, have castor any? Oil. That's castor oil. Castor oil. My my mother believed in that. But it was probably oh good for it because it had omega threes and all in it. Uh-huh. You didn't know that in them days. No. You could probably have served dinner on your intestines between the enemas and the castor oil. <laughs> Holy cow. You must have spent most of your life in the bathroom. And, and sometimes when I went to school, I smelled so bad with home remedies. <laughs> the teacher oh, even wow. said to me about it. What, do you, what does that spell, you know? Some kind of uh, uh, sap. My mother rubbed it on my chest. Oh, okay. We had another one called Gorshaw. Dr. Gorshaw, if you put the name doctor in there that meant it was by a doctor, which was false, you know. And it was for boils and things like that. But you know what? It worked. But that's another one of those that stayed in the mezzanine cabinet till it was empty. <laughs> yeah. But you, Dr. Gorshaw, yeah. I can remember rubbing that on a boil. And my mother said, you'd take it glass of hot water and you put it over top you got to do it real quick so you don't spill it put a yeah. Uh, yeah. glass of hot water over top to boil with that 
Gorsh will say, well, in, in, in about 10 minutes, you see that thing pop like a volcano. <laughs> so did you have aspirin in the cabinet, John? or did you Yes, have we had aspirin in uh -huh. the cabinet. And everything on, my mother saw on or heard on the radio, that's what we got. Mm. Now, she used Oxidol soap in the laundry for years and years until Amos and Andy went to Rinso. <laughs> and then we went to Rinso. Oh, I see. <laughs> Everything was like, like Dr. Lyon's tooth powder. Yes. You remember that? I know the sponsor. Yeah, Dr. Lyon. Dr. Lyon. As long as you put that doctor on there, that was good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so much. And Life Boy's soap. Yeah. Oh, you smoked medicinal when you went to school with me. What was the bad with that? What was the soap that... It smell. It didn't smell good, and it was hard to. It was hard to get a lather. Wasn't oh, Kells nap. No. Kells um, oh. My mother would if use. It, had, it, it was almost. Oh, oh dear. Yeah, maybe it was Kells nap. Okay. There was a lot of. And I think it, it was. Soaps on the market. Then I can't remember. And I think it was like a brown color, a light brown, if yeah. I remember, as a yeah. kid. Yes, yes, yes. No. Mm. Well, okay, John. Well, gosh, I am really sorry to hear about the setback with your eye. You take care of yeah. yourself this week and give us a call next week again. Would you do that? I'll try. You better, John. Okay. Thank you, John. Take care, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. I have an email from Canada. All right. Hi, Ron Robinson out there. Oh, yes, our you friend Ron. haven't called in yet. Uh-huh, and I love the word yet, Ron. You haven't called in yet, but you catch big parts of the show. And he likes when we did the long show. So we're, we're going to have to start working on a little bit of extra time, if it's okay with you. I don't know what your schedule is on Saturday nights now. I'm flexible. Mine has to go, <laughs> Mine has to go back to bed. And I, I know Ron, because he and I always hook up during the uh, old-time radio convention in Seattle. So he's just, ah, he's a good guy. Okay. Yeah. Well, do give us a call, Ron. Hello, hello there. You're on with Patricia. Hello, you two. Hello, How are you? Celeste. Hello, Celeste in Texas. How are you? And Patricia, are you at home, honey? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Well, doggone it. See, I flipped a penny, and I said, if I, if this side turns up, she'll be home. And sure huh? enough, it wasn't the right side. <laughs> and, well, we'll turn, keep, how, how much longer, honey? I don't know. Probably a couple of weeks. Okay. Now, did yeah. you eat your celery stalks at midnight? <laughs> hold, hold on. Okay. Patricia got a little bit of a bronchitis today, so... Oh, me. Yeah. Sorry, I'm coughing. Yeah. Oh, me. My, my celery yeah. stalks, yes, I eat them at midnight with cream. <laughs> Good. That's what yeah. the song says to do. <laughs> celery uh -huh. at midnight. No, uh... Oh, it, really? I didn't know there was a song. Yes. That's the song, oh. Celery Stalks at Midnight. A lot of big bands. Uh -huh. One or two had a hit on it, I think, um... Wow. Billy May might have had one, mm. and I'm trying to think of who else. Maybe Glenn Miller, somebody like uh -huh. that. But anyway, yeah, that was popular. Yeah. Well, Alden, I mean, uh, 
what I was going to say. I was listening to the caller before, John, is yeah. that right? Yeah, John going through Going through all the pain with his eye and yeah. all that. Yeah. And I started out like that, and uh, they put me in a special program. They chose me, and I got to go into this program, so it never did cost me very much, but it it costs you a lot if you don't go in on a grant. Right. And I was lucky I did that and I went on and on and my eyes are my eyes doing so well Good. that I don't have to go back in for every eight weeks. I started at two weeks, now I'm to eight weeks. That's so great eventually news. I'll be getting off of it. Thank goodness cross yeah. our fingers. Yeah. 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 You know, I the massive massive degeneration or whatever the right terminology, I'll blow it. It seemed like it was a fairly new terminology. I don't remember that term 30, 40 years ago. It seemed to be, I don't know, if maybe we always have had, but now we have a term for it. That's what I'm wondering. Uh, we have a what? Walton, I was coughing. Yeah. What is the term, I coughed? Uh, well, massive degeneration, uh, you know, what John is going through, the, the, the losing of the... the the, the losing of the sight, and you you take shots in it. The uh, you know, see, I don't remember those eye conditions years ago. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, well, this one he gives me a shot in the eye that he's treating right now. Okay, but he, it, that's only a shot for the pain, and then okay. he waits a minute or two, and then he comes back and gives me the shot for the eye. And I can't see a blooming thing when I leave, but when I get home, it's fine. And I have to take dark glasses, you right. know, so that's wow. about it. But I sure hope yeah. our friend that was calling in a minute ago, I hope he gets a, hope he gets good look, luck on it. Yeah. 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 It's just... But other than, go ahead. It's so sad when we all have to go through something like that. But, you know, oh, I know. It is really very yeah. sad. It is, it is, it is. But just think how miraculous, because uh, my brother went through the kind of same thing, and mm -hmm. he's still driving. And uh, so I guess it's kind of miraculous. Well, I, I, I was talking to uh, our friend, the computer guy yesterday, USA, and he was telling me his brother-in-law have been on dialysis for 20 years. And I'm got wow. thinking and that what? Dial dialysis. Dialysis, dialysis uh-huh. And I never have heard of people being uh, no. on for 20 years. That's amazing to me to think that the body, I agree. you know. Gosh, that sounds so long. It really does. Wow. 20 years. Now, is dialysis where they... Uh, Look at the cornea in your eye and do all that? Or? No, for the no, kidney. Um, for when your kidney shut down, they hook you up to... Oh, dial. Oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 They circulate your blood and remove the toxins and then send you back home. Oh, my, my, my. My, my, my. Three times a week for 20 years, and I thought that's a remarkable run. Oh, my. Three times a week? For 20 years, yeah. 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 Well, Patricia, are you feeling better with all of your little ailments? Are you doing a little better? <laughs> all of my little ailments, you betcha. Yes, I am. I am. 
I bet I they, don't feel, they okay. don't feel little sometimes, do they? Oh dear. No, well, yeah, they really are at this point. They're they're mini compared to to yeah. know, the maxi yeah. people yeah. go through. So yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you. Yes, well, good. You sound so much perkier than you did last time. Really? Somebody that had a daytime TV show, and they talked about people that sounded perky. I can't remember who it was. Steve Allen or somebody. I, I don't remember who it was. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but anyway, well, both of you feel well. Just wanted to say hi. Thank you, Soas. And I hope that John is still listening so he'll... He'll know that his eyes will be better. That'd be good. I'm yeah, I that. hope okay. so. I hope you're right. Take care. Thanks, yeah. Bye-bye, Bye -bye. you too. You good too. Night. Good night. All right. 714-545-2071. Yep, we'll be doing the long shows. Maybe one Patricia shows into a new place. That way, that way she got a little more flexibility. Okay, you know, getting up. That's yeah. the uh, get, and, and stuff like that there. Getting up at the crack of dawn is no fun. You know. Yeah. No. And stuff like that there. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 714-545-2071. Our number. Uh, just remind you, Vincent Price's daughter, Victoria Price, will be our special guest on July the 14th. So put that on your calendar. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Should be fun. And stuff. Hooray. Okay, we've got, for this month, it's Turkey Lovers Month, National Fresh Fruits and Vegetables Month, mm -hmm. Accordion Awareness Month. Have you ever had anyone in the family play the accordion? Never did. Never? Never. Okay, it's Fight the Filthy Fly Month. Um, hooray, hooray. Okay. <laughs> we can get along with that. I started to tell you about the Titanic. Good heavens. Um, and 1912, I think you're right with 1912. Mm -hmm. Four books, and this is that last count, um, people are still screening places, um, that they are eerily similar tales of liners that met the same fate. This is fiction. There was a book written in 1886 called The Sinking of the Modern Liner, and it was a British story about a ship that left Liverpool for New York and hits something and sinks. Mm. That was, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, and what was even weirder is that the author of, author, author of the book, W.T. Stead, died on the Titanic. Oh, my goodness gracious. Isn't that incredible? Okay. Wow. In 1898, the wreck of the Titan, <laughs> as in Titanic, the wreck mm -hmm. of the Titan, in which a liner named Titan, supposedly unsinkable, hits an ice shelf and sinks. Additional creepy details. Sinking off Newfoundland, like the Titanic did. Not having enough lifeboats, like the Titanic did. Having similar dimensions of the Titanic mm. and traveling at similar speeds. <sighs> you know, aren't okay. they supposed to be um, launching the new version of the Titanic in a couple more years? I think they are under it's under construction yeah i recall reading something about it but i'm, I'm not sure about that so i think the plan to launch it in 2022 like the 100th anniversary or, or something yeah 110th anniversary like or something yeah okay well there was a third book in 1908 the ship's run 
There were so many similarities between the Titanic and the ship in the book that there is speculation that the author saw the construction plans for the Titanic before writing the story. That's how, how close it was. And the fourth book in 1912, The White Ghost of Disaster, released as the, as the Titanic was setting sail. It saw a ship crash at a specific speed, the same that the Titanic traveled when it hit the iceberg. Now, that is darn spooky. Mm. Four books with that kind of a history. Mm. But the one with the author dying on the Titanic, I mean, gee, willikers. So those are the ironies of the Titanic, and I thought you might enjoy that. Sure. Yeah. This week we were down in Long Beach, uh, and one one of the things we did, we drove by the Queen Mary, you know, the famous Queen Mary. Mm -hmm. And I remember my dad went down and saw it when they moved the Queen Mary from England to America. It was like his last voice in the park right there in Long Beach talking about a large, big boat out there. Mm-hmm. Ooh, wow. ooh, 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 Okay. Yeah. Uh, we, I, the last couple of weeks, I've known some people who've gone to visit Elvis' home. Uh, Elvis Presley, his yeah, man, Graceland. Yeah. Uh huh. Guess how much it costs. You mean for entrance? Yes. Yes. There is a there's an inexpensive ticket, and then there's a VIP ticket. So I want you to guess the cost of both these things. Inexpensive ticket. Yeah. Wow. Um. People are willing to spend a lot of stuff when it's Elvis <laughs> involved. I will say 50 for the inexpensive and 100 for the expensive. You, oh, you're really close. Cool. It's $61 to get in the inexpensive. Yeah. And if you, want uh -huh. the, if you want the VIP tour, it's 200 bucks. 200 Holy cow. <laughs> what do you get? I don't, <laughs> for, for $139 extra, what do you get? I don't know. I don't know. Oh. Hello there, your arm Patricia. Accordion Awareness Month. I know. Well, isn't that something, Paul? <laughs> you're you're talking to somebody who, at least I used to play accordion. I haven't played it really in so many years that the last time I picked yeah. it up, I. Uh, we need to get you. We need to get you and Bill Brad to have a competition, like, uh, like uh, play like Lady of Spain or something, right? Does Bill play the accordion? He used to. He played yeah. it. For, I you, did not know that. He played it for eight or nine years or something. Wow. You still have one? Uh, I don't know. He's never. T I've never seen it. I have a beautiful, beautiful accordion. I mean, it's excellent quality, mm. full-size black one. I started on a small, smaller one that some friends had. You know, that my mom said, mm -hmm. well, how would you like to play this? Put it on, you know. How would you like to play it, you know? And I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, I guess. And so I, I, that began me taking lessons. I had lessons for four years, but I... So what was, you know, your, what was the best song you could play that you were good at? <sighs> I had some that I made up myself uh -huh. that I really liked playing. Um, you know what? I wish, I wish that I kept up with all the songs that I ever learned. You know, because yeah. 
you know, the national anthem, anthem the Marine, the Marine hymn. Oh wow! You know those those yeah. kind of songs. Yeah. That yeah. would just be good anytime. But uh, as a as a young teenager, I, I mean, I stopped playing it. Let's see, I play started at twelve and stopped at sixteen years old and you know all my friends were playing lead guitars and basses and drums and everything yeah. so yeah and i'm playing accordion uh you know i would play it individually for them when they came over but uh it wasn't something i would be you know breaking out for people to Idea, oh. Whose idea was it for you to take lessons? Was it yours or your mom's? My mom. She. she uh, we were at the friends who who had a smaller accordion. One time, she said, "Here, she goes, try this on, you know." And so I tried it on, and I made a couple of squeaks, and you know, <laughs> pushing buttons and keys, and and then she goes, "How would you like to to learn how to play this?" kids we all practicing you know those are kids that probably didn't mind practice probably got a lot further those of us who didn't like to practice probably quit sooner than probably what we should have you know yeah um, yeah. yeah okay the song you asked me the song yeah I'm now i'm thinking did either of you see the movie charade no no uh, i think audrey hepburn and um The star that he—he um, he was a British guy. Uh, uh, he did gymnastics, I think, in his early days. Came here is a very handsome Cary Grant. Okay, yeah. I think I think it was Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant in it, and the theme song for that movie is called Charade, and that was. The best one that I that I liked anyway that I would satisfy anybody who liked accordions, accordion music. I have but a people, huh? I have a Cary Grant trivia question for both of you. Oh, okay. When he started in show business, what was his first job? Which one? Who? Cary Grant. First job with Cary Grant. First job in show business. Yeah. In show business, um, um, and he, you know, he would do this around, you know, around the docks, you know, around New Jersey and things. He would be part of the yeah. uh, carnival acts and things like that. So, huh. what, what was his first job? Gymna- I remember him doing gymnastics mm-hmm. uh, with a small group of of guys. Mm-hmm. So, and that's not the answer. No. Okay, I'll say juggling. 
Oh, you're good, but not juggling. Okay. Patricia, you want to take one guess? Um, no. He walked. He walked on stilts. Oh shoot! <laughs> really? <I didn't. laughs> Oh, my goodness. He was a very balanced person. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, Paul, I want to give Weldon a couple of of um, trivia questions before we close up, and we've got about yeah. seven yeah. Okay. minutes, so I'm going to say good night. Good night, Paul. Okay. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Keep, you, you get your accordion out, okay? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Now, mm-hmm. um... I know you know the answer to some of these, and I have given them to you at different times. So So I'm calling on your memory, not only your knowledge, but your memory, okay? okay? Let's do it. Is that okay? Let's do it, yeah. Okay, you didn't hang up on me. All right, this is good. Vincent Price, and we're going to be talking with his daughter in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Vincent Price played the part of Simon Templer, and his nickname was The Saint. How did that nickname come about? Hmm. Uh, Simon Temple, so as his initials. The Saint, uh-huh. S-T. That's where it came from. And his initials, uh, explain that a little bit further. Simon Temple, S and right. si- Simon, okay. T and Tom. So the saint, you know, how you see, like, saint whatever? That's right. Good for you. Yes, it's the abbreviation ST means saint and Simon Templer. Yeah, very good. Right. You remembered. All right. Holy cats, you are hot tonight. Wow. Okay, where was the Western Fort Laramie set? Oh, uh, I think Kansas. Mm, the name of the place, and it wasn't Kansas. Hmm. Hmm. I don't remember at the moment, my dear. Yes, you do. Fort Laramie the Western was set in Fort Laramie, Wyoming. Ah. <laughs> the name of the town. That was a trick question, and, and you fell for it. Yeah, Cole I did. Walden. I did. Walden. I what did. was the fat man's real name? Uh, no, the fat man. What was his his name and fat man was his his moniker oh yeah it was brad runyon very good yeah very good and of course you know who who played it right yeah 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 okay and now this one jay scott smart yeah i believe Mm -hmm. we had twice so i'm counting on your memory okay chief gates in the great gildersleeve Mm -hmm. What was his first name? Oh. Because he gave it he gave it away in the baby contest. Mm-hmm. Um I believe that's the only time we yeah. we heard it. Yeah. Uh was it Charlie? Charlie? No. No. Take two more. I don't remember.
remember, my dear? Well, his name was Donald. And Donald, he yes. To, yes, he Donna. wanted to name the baby Donna, Donna. Yep. after himself. Yep. Yep. It was the September 29, 1948 show, and it was named the Baby Contest. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, here's another name for you. Mm-hmm. Franklin P. Adams of Information, Please. Brilliant man. Yep. Loved his sense of humor. He was just so great. What did the P stand for? Pierce. <gasps> you did it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You are so hot tonight. Well, okay. It's a simple because it was named after one of our president, Franklin Pierce. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm not sure I would have remembered that. It was in my notes, and I know I asked you. <laughs> but I don't think I would have remembered that. Okay, uh, Piggy Banks in The Great Gildersleeve. Yep. What was his first name? Oh, his first name? oh, oh, oh. Mm, squeeze. I don't remember. Pierpont. Pierpont, yes. Pierpont. Um... Wasn't that J.P. Morgan's middle name? Mm-hmm. J. Pierpont Morgan? I think yeah. so. And I'm, and I'm trying to think of Jughead. Jughead was very similar to that, too. Really? Ah. Uh, well, I have to look up Jughead of, of the Archie Andrew comic strips. Um, okay. Oh, I will do that. I have another one. Okay. We have covered this once before, and I'm trusting your memory on this one. Mm-hmm. Which... The, uh, what was the name of the street Gildersleeve lived on in Summerfield? Mm. I think you got this one the last time I asked. Mm. Mm. I don't remember. Okay. Lakeside Avenue. Ah. And I don't remember ever hearing about a lake in no, Summerfield. No. So that's kind of interesting that they named it sure. Lakeside. Sure. Okay, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. His first name, please. Sarge. No, it wasn't. No. Uh, was it John? No. Ulysses S. What? You, 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 <laughs> Ulysses. No. No. Oh, no, it was not Ulysses. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It was William. Huh. William, Sergeant William Preston. I don't know how many times it was mentioned on the show. I haven't listened to the entire list of shows the thing went on forever Mm -hmm. but from the ones that i listened to i only heard it one time when he reported to his commanding officer and his commanding officer called him sergeant william preston and that's the only time i remember hearing it speaking of speaking speaking of of uh WXYZ last night we played some excerpt from a Mike Wallace interview where Max Mead ah. interviewed Mike Wallace and he was telling some of the crazy stories and he said one you know the uh, Sergeant Preston was heard on the Michigan Michigan radio network you know they syndicate mm-hmm. locally and, and sometimes mm-hmm. Michael has to put these discs down and make a little announcement and they you know transcribe and 
And so he was at a party next door, you know, celebrating something of his. So he put the record down and announced this is the mate. And, and the needle got stuck in the same place 21 oh. times, you know. You know, oh so, my. Yeah. Oh my. Just different stories right there. Was a, there was a great radio show about a guy who killed his wife mm-hmm. and figured out how to be how to sound like he was live in the studio at right. the time she was killed. And right. he pre-recorded a show, and it got stuck. And <laughs> so he he was murdering his wife, and the and he was supposed to be live, and the show went. And then another thing, and then another nice thing, thing. Yeah. and then another thing. Yeah. So everybody knew he wasn't in the yeah. studio. Oh, the best laid plans of mice and men. Well, we are over our midnight threshold. All right, my dear. It is time to say good night. Good night, everybody. And, Ron, welcome aboard. And maybe next week or one of the upcoming weeks, you'll give us a call. Good night, Walden. Good night, Patricia. Get some sleep. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. We're going to feature a John Dunny interview first. I think with Frank Nelson. Frank, of course, was... Yeah. Man on the old Jack Benny radio show. Came from Denver, Colorado. I met him at the Brown Derby restaurant at a Spurvac dinner in 1982. What's up, Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity being here. But this wonderful country we live in. But the people who serve on Yesterday USA. Look after our men and women in the armed forces. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, everybody, stand by. Here we go. Well, you're getting audited. That's right, audited by the experts. Experts with computers. They'll find out where the money's going, and when they do, I'm going to fix you but good. Think your home is a friend? Think again. It's hiding hundreds of ways that waste energy. Energy you've been paying for. Put an end to it with our computerized home energy audit. For just $15, Public Service Company will send an energy expert to your home. With the help of our computers, he'll find those energy wasters, things like your open fireplace there. It can waste as much as 8% of your home's heat. 8%? 8%? Some friend you turned out to be. And that's just the beginning. So call Public Service Company for your computerized home energy audit. It's one more way we're putting all our energy to work for you. You're listening to the Old Time Radio Show on 71K News, the station that brings the world to you. Now back to Denver's Old Time Radio History buff, John Dunning. Okay, it's just about uh, three minutes until four. This is KNUS in Denver. And uh, I am very happy today to have Frank Nelson, who we just heard uh, uh, doing a caper, I guess, with Bob Bailey on the uh, Markham matter, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And... uh, According to uh, Milt Josephsberg's book called The Jack Benny Show, uh, we all know this anyway, but Frank Nelson had a frequent but indefinable role on the Benny program. He played a floor walker, uh, that, uh, of course, in the uh, Christmas show, which they did every year. He he played a waiter in restaurants, uh, in supermarkets. He played a salesman. He played a ticket seller at the railroad station. But on all of these parts... He had one common denominator and one personality trait 
no matter what the situation, he was always Jack Benny's arch enemy. And that one magic word that he uttered every week uh, always sent the audience into hysterics. Uh, Frank Nelson, are you on the phone? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're still doing that for McDonald's. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, no, I'm not just doing it for McDonald's now. I just finished doing it. Uh, I did it up until about the uh, 10th of January. And uh, the way I answered you just with the yes, you know, without stretching it or anything, I, I, I have to tell you a story about a director that came on the Benny Show at a particular point in time. And uh, so we were sitting around the table reading, and uh, Jack said, oh, Mr. Mister," and I said, yes. And uh, we went on through the thing. And when we were through and going to do the uh, rehearsal on Mike, uh, he walked up to me and he said, uh, Frank, uh, don't do that. And I said, what? He said, don't do that. I said, don't do what? He said, well, you know how you said the yes. He said, don't do that. I said, oh, all right. So get up there, and Jack said, oh, mister, mister. And I said, yes. Jack said, what are you doing? I said, well, the director told me not to do that. And Jack turned around, and he said, have you ever seen my show or heard my show? And the director said, well, no, I haven't. He said, well, he's been doing that for 30 years. <laughs> That's what I pay him to do. It was uh, probably the the most famous one word in in certainly that I can think of in all of the old time radio I've heard. Well, it uh, it lasted for thirty eight years, so I guess it had something. Thirty eight years. Well, you must have started on it very early then. Well, I started with Jack uh, actually on June first, nineteen thirty four. I wasn't doing the yes then. I was just doing uh, parts with him and. Uh, Oh, I'd say about six months into uh, my association with him, one week I happened to stretch it, and the writers the next week said, hey, we're going to try that again. I said, try what? He said, well, you remember you stretched out a yes, and it got a laugh last week, and I had to think about it. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. So I did, and uh, so then we would, uh, they one day decided they'd see what I could do with ooh, and so uh, they, they hadn't really cued Jack in. And uh, Jack's line was, you, you really do hate me, don't you? And I said, ooh, do I? <laughs> and he fell right on the floor. Right on the floor. But uh, This was in rehearsal, right? Huh? This was in rehearsal. Oh, yeah. He could also break up on the air, though. Oh, oh yeah, so he broke up many times on the air. Many times on the air. You know, it's, uh, it's uh, fun to talk to you in uh, Denver. I don't think you know this, probably, but... Uh, First broadcast I ever did was at KOA in Denver. Really? Yep, I started my career in 1926. I was still a kid in high school. And I uh, did a show for uh, the United States National Bank with a young lady by the name of Georgia Miller. And uh, she, she was the wife and I was the husband in a series. And uh, I went out to audition for it. And they looked at me and said, what are you doing out here? And I said, well, they told me that you had something to be auditioned for. And they said, oh, well, this is a man of about 35 years of age. I said, oh, well, okay. And I started to leave. And uh, the director said, well, look, have you ever read over a microphone? I said, no. And he said, well, maybe you'd like to stay and, and read. And I said, well, yeah, sure. So I did. And there were 30 of us that auditioned that day. And the next day they called back 12. The next day they called back four. And I got it. So I, I worked out. And uh, then I worked at uh, KFEL in Denver. I sold time and announced there. And uh, I opened Denver University's little theater uh, doing March Banks in Canada in uh, either 28 or 29. So uh, I, uh, I have a uh, 
many uh, good memories of Denver. My wife, uh, I mean, my mother uh, had a uh, dress shop, as a matter of fact, at 412 East Colfax, opposite the cathedral there. You really do uh, know Denver, then? Oh, yes, I do. Well, I may have missed it. Uh, maybe you already told me, but how did you happen to be in Denver in the first place? Well, I uh, I went through, uh, I went to Maury Junior High there, and I went to West High School there and graduated from West. <laughs> so I lived there for a long time. Well, did, did you, you know, you mentioned KOA. Don Wilson was on KOA, wasn't he? Uh, did you know him here then? Uh, no, I didn't know Don. Uh, I think Don left there a little before I did, and uh, I, I don't remember Don, and I don't think we met there at all. I met him at KFI out here when I came out here. But uh, I know Don is from there. There was a... Uh, uh, Freeman Talbot was the director at that time and uh, of KOA, and uh, he informed me I couldn't possibly be a, an announcer because I didn't have a college degree, and... Uh, he turned out to be wrong because I did announce many of the top shows out of Hollywood for a number of years. You mean even back then you had to have a college degree? Well, he thought that I did. <laughs> Today, you don't even have to pass the FCC uh, test anymore. No. no. <laughs> well, uh, you're, uh, when you say you met Don Wilson at, in, in, at KFI? Uh, yeah. Um, was, was he already doing the Benny show then? No. No, he was not doing the Benny Show at that time. He was he was an announcer out here at that time. He, I think he started uh, with Jack's show out here. I don't believe he started in New York. I could be wrong on that. But I uh, I think he started out here with Jack. Jack's uh, first show, the first show that I did with Jack out here, uh, at that time everything was coming out of uh, either Chicago or New York. And uh, he was coming out here to do a movie, and they wanted to keep him alive in the show that he was doing back there, so they did a five-minute insert out here. And that's when the uh, NBC studios were on the back end of the RKO lot. And uh, John Swallow, who I had worked for at KFAC, KFBD here, uh, was the manager of NBC then. And uh, so he called me to do this five-minute spot with Jack. And Jack's on the train coming out, and he meets this fellow. And he's, uh, oh, you know, uh, telling him about what a great uh, success he's going to be in Hollywood. And I'm, I'm very nice to him and noncommittal and polite and... Uh, finally ends up and he says, uh, well, uh, I, uh, I'm uh, Jack Benny, and he said, I expect a star in pictures out there. You're a very personable young man. I might be able to do something for you. What is your name? And my answer was Clark Gable. <laughs> and uh, that, was the, that was the sketch. And uh, so uh, then I did another five-minute sketch with him the following week. Then he went back to New York, and he was back there for several months. Then he came out here, and I started working his show after he came out here. And just doing casual characters at first, and then uh, then when we developed the character of uh, the floor walker, I mean, that uh, became, I became his nemesis, is what he used to call me. You you never had a name. No. Uh, you were always... I mean, if he was going to go to a psychiatrist, he'd call me Dr. Nelson, but I mean, he there was never any name outside of my own. If they had to use a name, they'd use my own. But even that, even the Dr. Nelson, wasn't that really kind of in the later years, in the 1950s? Yeah, in the early days, we, it had no name. It was just, aren't you the floor walker or a clerk uh, or a waiter or whatever it was, you know. There was no reason for a name. I think, to, to me at least, it was, oh my God, there's that guy again. Yeah. Yeah, there's that guy. Well, that was that was kind of the way it was received, and uh, it was funny. I'd run into people, and they'd say, uh, what do you do? I said, well, I, I work in radio. Uh, you ever hear the Jack Benny show? Oh, yeah, I hear it all the time. I said, well, you ever hear a fellow when Jack says, oh, Mr., Mr., the fellow says, yes. They say, oh, that's you. But they would not know me by sight or by name. 
because at that time they uh, they didn't publicize this very much. Did you read Irving Fine's book? Did I read what? Irving Fine's book on Jack Benny? No, I didn't read Irving's book. Irving is my pet hate. Is he? Yes, he is. Well, you'll probably hate this anecdote in there. He um, he he says you you got uh, the the most money for one word of any anybody in radio or television until that time. Well, that's 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 a marvelous theory that he has. <laughs> you see, Irving Irving hated like the devil to turn loose of a buck. It uh, it just hurt him terribly. Jack uh, Jack didn't, but uh, Irving did. And Jack didn't know what Irving did sometimes. Uh, for instance, I, I'll give you a story about Irving. Uh, one week, I got a call from the casting director, and uh, he said, uh, Frank, uh, I'd like to have you on the show. This, this is in the television days. I'd like to have you on the show this week, but uh, you're just voiceover. You're at the airport, and you're just coming over the PA, and so Irving thought that maybe you'd work for half of your regular salary. And I said, tell that, and I got just about that far, and he said, never mind, never mind. I'll call you back. So in about uh, 20 minutes, he called back and he said, uh, okay, he said, uh, see you tomorrow and your regular salary. And he said, now I'm going to tell you what happened. He said, Irving said, I'm not going to pay Nelson's salary to do this thing, so get another actor. So he said, I got another actor. The other actor went on stage and uh, as soon as uh, Jack said something and this fellow started to talk, Jack said, where's Frank? And Irving says, well, I thought he says, where's Frank? He said, get Frank. Irving says, yes, sir. <laughs> so it ended up that he had to pay the other actor, and then he had to pay me my regular salary, so it cost me more than it would have to begin with. Well, this anecdote he reports in... is always that way. Yeah, he, he indicates that in the book, because he, he was the Jack Benny's producer at the time, I believe. Yes, he was... Uh, originally, he was his accountant, and then he ended up being his producer, finally. And, and of I, course, he's now George Burns' manager. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think the, the anecdote... Is kind of uh, is kind of revealing because he talks in here about how he didn't want to pay your fee to come in and and do this. Basically, what they needed was the yes. You know, he didn't want to pay the fee for that, and and so he took it to uh, Benny, at least as he has it in the book. And Benny says, "Of course, we have to pay his fee. He's entitled to get uh, his fee uh, for the one word or whatever else he he does." And and they, according to Fine, they had a big a big conference with all the writers to decide whether the one word. Uh, on this particular show was a big enough laugh to get the uh, the fee, and they went ahead and paid the fee because they decided it was. Well, I'll, I'll give you a hundred to one right now that that isn't the way it happened, because uh, if he, he wouldn't have dared go to Jack and ask that. He simply wouldn't do that. Jack would expect me to be there if, uh, if, he, if the character was in. And he cer certainly expect you to get paid for it. That's right. And uh, Jack would never have raised the, uh, the issue about money in the first place with the kind of money Jack was making. It didn't make any difference. You know, what he was uh, going to pay me when you figure what he was going to pay the government, it, it just didn't make that much difference. Matter of fact, I made a lot more money on other shows than I made on the Jack Benny show. Hmm. Uh, the the revealing thing I think about that anecdote, you know, even that he would tell it, it, it reveals that uh, Jack Benny's character was the exact opposite of what he went to great lengths to promote on the air. But Jack was a very generous man, actually. He was a very charitable man. And uh, for instance, uh, he would he would give twenty five thousand dollars, let's say, to Jewish war relief uh, during the war, with the stipulation that there be no publicity. There was another comedian out here that would give 5000 with his stipulation. There'd be a lot of publicity. That was the difference between the two. Hmm. But uh, Jack was just that kind of a human being. He, uh, and 
You know, when Mel was uh, in that terrible auto accident, he was in a coma for 21 days. Jack sat at his bedside all that time. This is Mel Blank. That's right. And uh, he did the same with Eddie Anderson when uh, Eddie had a stroke. He was out there at the hospital daily. He uh, was a very, very decent and uh, lovely man. He was not an easy man to know, to socialize with or anything like that. Now, Mel socialized with him a fair amount of time, but uh, I never did socialize with Jack, but uh, I certainly enjoyed working with him and I admired him as a human being. There are a number of stories about Jack Benny, about his um, his need to, uh, maybe he wasn't easy to know or socialize with, but apparently he was very easy to talk to, at least on a superficial level. I've heard that he would talk to anybody on the street. Uh, I don't really know that one way or another. I mean, uh, uh, certainly he would uh, chat with you in the studio, but you never felt that you were really close to Jack. I never felt I was, uh, you know, really close to him personally. But uh, Jack, you know, we'd uh, chat about kind of inconsequential things. Uh, he saw me smoking a pipe one day, and the next uh, week I, he came in and uh, handed me a new pipe that he'd gone out and bought just because he saw me smoking it. So he was that he was a he was a very nice person. But uh, when I say not easy to talk to, he he was not easy to make conversation with. I guess is what I'm saying. At least not for me. But uh, certainly he was, uh, he was he was another thing that uh, that Jack would do. Uh, if there was an extra character on the show, for instance, uh, they would get somebody, get a good actor, and the actor would be telling everybody, boy, I'm on the Jack Benny show this week. Uh, be sure and catch it, because everybody was thrilled to work that show because it was number one for like 15, 18 years. So if that actor did not read exactly as Jack expected to hear it, not in any vicious way at all, but he would say to the director, uh, no, uh, get somebody else. Now, they would pay that actor, because he had to be paid, he'd been called. And Jack didn't object to that at all, but he'd just get somebody else. Now, very often, uh, you see, Hilliard Marks, who was uh, Murray's brother, was a uh, director a part of the time, and there were other people, uh, until Freddie DeCordova came along, uh, they, they just kind of sat in the seat and called themselves directors, but Jack fundamentally was the director. And they just wouldn't argue with Jack. They wouldn't say, well, wait a minute, let me have the actor do it a different way. And uh, so it happened that uh, at one time, when we are doing a radio show, I mean a television show that we had done in radio, I walked in, I said, oh, I'm doing The Lawyer. And the writer said, shh. Don't say that. I said, what do you mean? They said, you're not doing the writer. We don't want Jack to know this is an old radio show. And I said, oh, come on. You think Jack won't recognize this show? Won't know what it is? And uh, no, no, he won't. And I said, well, okay, fine. Well, the lawyer was a, what you call a non sequitur. Uh, you would say one thing. The lawyer would say something entirely unrelated to that. It might sound a little like that, but it was unrelated to what you said. So it was the kind of a part you had to learn completely by rote. You, uh, you had nothing to hang on to. So they replaced the actor about four times. And finally, I got a call from Freddy de Cordova uh, about two nights before showtime. And uh, he said, uh, Frank, uh, Jack wants you to do the uh, uh, part of the lawyer. And I said, well, I'm not going to do the part of the lawyer. He said, I don't think you heard me. I said, Jack wants you to do the part of the lawyer. I said, I don't care what Jack wants me to do. At this late time, I have no intention of learning that part. And you have now gone through about four actors, all of whom are quite capable, and if somebody will tell this particular actor what they want, 
Hugh is quite capable of doing it, and he will do it. He said, well, I'll call you back. So about an hour passed, and he called back, and he said, uh, Frank, uh, we're going to go with the actor that we have, but uh, he said, I didn't give Jack your message. I said, well, that's very kind of you, and I know why you didn't, and uh, it was probably not a smart thing for me to say, but I just felt that way about it. Well, they did go with the actor, and it turned out that he did a superb job, and when it was over, Jack went over and put his arms around him, told him how great he was, and then used him in about six successive shows after that. Now, the man would never have worked again if I hadn't just said, no, I'm not going to do it. So it's, uh, it was that kind of thing that was difficult for other actors when they came on the show. It, uh, it was, unless they really came up with exactly what he expected to hear, uh, then uh, they they never worked the show again. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, Jack Benny has a, uh, I think this is accurate, has a reputation as being um, not a particularly good comedy writer. It sounds like he was performing the function of a writer, at least in that uh, kind of situation. Uh, actually, Jack, Jack had a great deal to do with the writing. Uh, the writers, the writers would... Uh, maybe fight over a line for a long time and nine times out of ten it would be jack who uh, who uh, said uh, what was in and what was out uh so he did have a he had an extremely good comedy sense and of course uh if you stop and think about jack he was so different than any other comedian that you could name because jack did not do jokes there were no jokes in jack's dialogue if you read jack's dialogue you'd say what's funny about this well what was funny was it had to do with his character of being cheap, or it was like, you know, when Mel said, uh, your money or your life, and he said, uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Well, that, that went to the cheapness of his character, and uh, it uh, was a huge laugh. But uh, uh, Jack's dialogue as such was not funny, never was. He gave all the jokes to his second bananas. We had them. And uh, it takes a great deal of confidence in yourself to be able to do that. There are very few comics that have that much confidence in their way of putting a show together that they will turn all the jokes over to other people. And Jack did that, if you think about it. Yeah, you know, one of the funniest um, things that he did, I think, um, it's, it's recounted a little bit in uh, Milt Josephsberg's book. Uh, speaking of Josephsberg, I, I wanted to ask you, how did you get along with the writers? Oh, fine, fine. They all liked to do me. They all hoped I'd do something had happened to me so they could all, they, every time I walked in, they were all doing the yes. And I got along very well with them. Well, uh, in Josephsburg, he talks about, uh, uh, one of the things I loved about the Benny Show was how if they blew a line, they would play on it and build on it throughout the... Oh, the, yeah. Um, I was wondering if some of that wasn't, if some of those lines maybe weren't blown in dress rehearsal and built into the show or if oh. they were... No. They were actually blown on the air. That's right. Uh, for instance, uh, Mary had one where she came in and I was the soda jerk and she said, I'll have a chiswee sandwich. <laughs> and that, that played for weeks. And that happened <laughs> on the show. It did not happen in rehearsal. Those running gags were just fantastic. That's right. Another one was when uh, 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 Harris uh, had uh, Manischewitz, you know. I mean, he just garbled it and they did Manischewitz for a long time. I'll tell you the most famous one probably... I don't know whether it's in his book or not, but I, it probably is. Uh, Don Wilson had a line early in the show. Oh, first, I have to back up to myself. I, I had a line, uh, and Jack says, oh, Mr. Mister, I say, yes. He said, uh, are you the doorman? I said, well, who do you think I am in this uniform? Nelson, Eddie? That's the one. 
Uh, I'll just let you tell that. I was going to read it, but I'll let you oh, tell it. Okay, so uh, he said, uh, Nelson Eddy, and uh, uh, he said, you know, I don't like that joke for Frank. we got to get a different joke. He said, I don't like the Nelson Eddy joke. Well, we get the show, and they haven't changed the joke. Now, early in the show, Don Wilson had a line about Drew Pearson, the famous columnist, and it came out Greer Poussin. <laughs> well, that got a tremendous laugh out of the audience and broke Jack up. Now I look up at the booth, and the writers are motioning to me to come into the booth. So I get up and go back and walk in the booth. I said, what do you want? They said, look, when you get to the line, says, are you the doorman? Say, well, who do you think I am in this uniform, Greer Poussin? I said, come on, fellas, it doesn't even track. They said, never mind whether it tracks, do it. I said, now look, nobody ad-libs with Jack, and you know that. They said, we will take the responsibility for having given you the line. I think if it had died out there, they'd have all said, he did it on his own. I don't know. But anyway, I went back out, and now we get to the thing, and Jack said, oh, Mr. Mr., and I always had my back to him, and I whirled into the mic, and I said, yes. And he said, uh, excuse me, are you the doorman? And as he said it, I saw this dull look come into his eyes, like, oh, good Lord, here comes that line I don't want to hear. And I stared right into his eyes, and I said, well, who do you think I am in this uniform, drear poosin? <laughs> Well, his eyes got like two saucers. He began to laugh. He grabbed a hold of the microphone. He slid down the microphone to the floor, pounded on the floor, got up, staggered clear across the stage to the far wall, turned around into the curtains, got a hold of the curtains, slid down the curtains, pounded on the floor some more, got up and staggered back to the mic, and the laugh is going on through this whole thing. This is all live. That's is all live. And it went on through the whole thing. Now he gets back to the microphone. I thought he'd never, you know, get back to the script. And I really think that this is probably the longest laugh we ever had on The Benny Show. Longer than your money or your life? Yeah. I think it was longer than that. I think it was. But it wasn't planned, you see. It just happened. And so then uh, for weeks after that, I would run into writers from other shows, and they'd say that whole thing was a, a planned routine, wasn't it? I said, no, it was not. And I'd tell them this story very much as I've told you, and they all thought I was lying to them. I, there wasn't a one of them was convinced that I was telling them the truth, and it's absolutely the way it happened. Um, there was a wonderful one that Mary Blue, in fact, I even, I even said on the air, you know, I really think that must have been done in rehearsal, and apparently I'm wrong, but there was a wonderful line that she blew where she was supposed to say, uh, uh, he says, where's my car? And she says, it's up on the grease rack. And she says, it's up there on the grass reek. <laughs> And uh, they used that for about three or four weeks running. I think there was there was uh, there was a line in there about a couple of skunks getting out, and they're over there. Uh, uh, boy, that grass reeks or something like that. <laughs> the writers were were ingenious at turning. Oh yeah, once once anything like that happened, they would pick it up. No, Mary, you couldn't you couldn't write that kind of a breakup for Mary because she wouldn't be able to do it. She she just wouldn't be able to handle that kind of a thing and make it uh, sound like anything but a phony thing. No, there was never a single one of those things that was written into the script. Hmm. I mean, hmm. <laughs> um, you, you, uh, when you came on for a for a um, a show, you pretty much had to work what four or five days on it, right? Oh Cause... no, no, no. I, I, I'm, now, are you talking radio now? I'm talking rehearsals and everything. Well, uh, radio. We would come in on a uh, Thursday, read through once. Then we'd come back on Saturday. Uh, no, wait a minute, I'm talking now TV. We'd uh, read on uh, Thursday, then we would rehearse. Yeah, if you had a TV show, you might run four days. 
But if you had a radio show, you'd come in on Saturday, read through the script, and come back on Sunday, read through sitting down, get up and read once around the mic, and that was it. Then you'd do the show. That's all we ever did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no, no, no long rehearsal in the radio days at all. And in the first place, everybody, uh, practically everybody on the show you see knew each other and worked with each other all the time. And they, it was just a case of if they thought they had to do some work on the script, they'd do that. But outside of that, it was just a read-through and, and go. And it was all built on personalities that had been established years before. Well, sure. You take, uh, you heard the, the fellow come in and say, hello, stranger. Well, that was Sam Hearn. Sam would be on occasionally, but it, everybody knew the character. Artie Arbach, pickle in the middle with the mustard on top. Andy Devine, hiya, Buck. Sheldon Leonard and Benny Rubin, each doing the tout. Benny Rubin did it first, and then when Benny was out of town once, Sheldon Leonard came on did it, and he liked Sheldon better, and so Sheldon did it. But uh, those those were the people that were around him all the time, with Mary, of course, and, and uh, Phil Harris, and uh, uh, the singer, Dennis Day, or whoever the singer was at the moment, you know. those those That was his whole cast. You also, uh, you also did it on TV. Yep. Um, I didn't, you see, none of us, of uh, the regulars, worked near as much in TV as we did in radio. In radio, I was under contract to him, and... Uh, We'd do 39 shows in the season, and I'd usually do anywhere from 26 to 30 out of the 39. Uh, then when we went to television, you'd do about 22 shows in the season, and uh, I would maybe do six or seven. That was about all. How did you, um, how did you personally uh, cope or, or take to the uh, transition to television? Well, it didn't bother me. I had come out of theater originally. That's where I started. And uh, so from theater, I went into radio. And so really, I was going back into theater to a certain extent. It did disturb some people. There were some people that didn't make the transition well at all and really kind of dropped out after the radio days. Uh, of course, there was one tremendous thing about radio versus uh, television, and that is you could do anything that you could do vocally. So I could be a leading man, I could be an old man, a young man, a Frenchman, a Scotsman, uh, a heavy. I could do all those things in radio. But once you got on television and you had uh, the kind of a character I did with Jack, you were not going to do anything else. You were going to do an offshoot of that character. Because mm -hmm. uh, everybody was going to call you for that. Nobody's going to call you to do a heavy in a, in a picture or in a television show. You know, they're just not. Right. So uh, you were you were uh, put into a much more narrow confine than you were in uh, radio. Radio I enjoyed more, far more than I do television. Listen, I've got to take a break. Can you hang on and talk for a little bit longer? Sure. Um, if uh, any of you out there in the audience would like to talk to us, uh, myself and Frank Nelson, give me a call at 758-7100, and we'll put you on if you've uh, got some questions about the Jack Benny show. Um, Frank Nelson was in a, a, a myriad other shows that I, I haven't even discussed here today and didn't plan to, primarily because The Betty Show was uh, so important. I wanted to, to linger on that for a bit. Let's take a break and come back. They're there. Oh, yes, they are. All around you, hiding in your home. All those nasty little households.
Baptist Rites. All Sunday, 5 until 8 p.m. on KNews, where we not only bring the world to you, but now the universe. You're listening to the Old Time Radio Show on 71 KNews, the station that brings the world to you. Now back to Denver's Old Time Radio history buff, John Dunning. And the Old Time Radio Show is brought to you by the Public Service Company, as you just heard. And uh, uh, we've had a couple of calls. Uh, let it ring through when you call, because we get a little busy here sometime. Uh, uh, we're talking to Frank Nelson from, uh, I, I, all I got is an area code. Are you in Los Angeles? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mean yes? Yes! Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, let's, yeah, let's go to the phone and, uh, in a minute, she says. Uh, John? Yes. I, I noticed when I was uh, waiting to go on with you that uh, you were playing a Johnny Dollar. Yes. Yeah, I worked that show from uh, off and on from 58 uh, through 60, 58, uh, no, 57, 58, 59, and 60, and uh, that's next to the last radio show that I did. I did a uh, Johnny Dollar on March 20th of 1960, and the very last show I did was an Amos and Andy on May 17th, 1960, of radio. Amos and Andy, wow, that would have been really near the end of that, too. Yep, yep. Uh, it was called Amos and Andy Music Hall then, wasn't it? Uh-huh, that's right. Um, I'm looking, I'm trying to trying to find out what, trying to find my notes here and, and see what the, uh, the date on that was. I, I believe I gave it a minute ago, but uh, I, I don't seem to have it here. Oh, yeah, there it is. Uh, November 18, 1956 was what that was. And you had a, a, a major role in that, actually, continuing all the way through the... Um, uh-huh. Uh, but that voice was just so unmistakable. Uh, that's... Uh, it was unusual, because us usually the broker was, was just there for the beginning of that show. Uh-huh. Oh, well, we, we bounced from show to show. Of course, I did Blondie. I did my first Blondie in 1939 and did the last one on January 12th of 1950. And uh, in that, I played Herb Woodley, the next-door neighbor. Right. And uh, so we bounced from show to show. I was uh, one of the uh, two announcers. I was the billboard announcer on Lux Radio Theater for two and a half years. When, when was that? Uh, well, at the beginning of uh, Lux out here. I'd have to look at my books to tell you the exact date of it, but uh, when it first came out here, I, I did the billboard announcing and then doubled into the show. And... Uh, just looking to see if I could pick up a date on it here, but I don't know if I can. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, while you're looking, about uh, uh, Phil Harris, whose shows survive in such wonderful sound and, and, and are so obviously influenced by Jack Benny. Oh, sure. Well, uh, you know, he, uh, he had uh, the uh, Frankie, the, uh, the uh, banjo player, you know, was uh, supposed to be his sidekick in that. Right. And uh, it was patterned uh, to a great extent after what he had learned, really, with Jack. But uh, let, uh, let me ask you in a minute about that show specifically. But let's let's take some let's take a couple of calls. Okay. Um, okay. This is John Dunning. You're on 71 K News Talk Radio. Okay, John. This is Bill. How are you? And uh, not too bad. And uh, I got a question for Frank concerning the TV version of the uh, Jack Benny show. Um, it was a show in which Jack drove you so crazy that you literally went up the wall. And I was wondering, was there any particular visual effect that they did, or just how did you handle that? 
Uh, I think that's where I was a psychiatrist, wasn't I? I don't remember right off yeah, the bat. Yeah, I think I was a psychiatrist. No, I just climbed up the side of the wall. They had some uh, things that I could get my hands on, and I did that. <laughs> yeah, I remember the lady said, just going right up the wall. I just don't understand it. <laughs> this is a show you remember from when it was on? Uh, this was from the recent the rerun that they had about five or six years ago. Oh, yes. Uh, that was on PBS, wasn't it? Uh, no, as a matter of fact, it was on Channel 4. On NBC? Yes. Uh, I think they got it on a syndicated basis because it was preceded by Burns and Allen, which, by the way, is running here in Denver as reruns uh, on Channel 12, in case uh, somewhere interested. There may be a, some, most of them already know. Well, anyway, uh, but I just I was kind of wondering about that. And also, just real quick here, I'm trying to find a reel, a blank reel that I can dub off a particular show, and I just ironically, quite unintentionally, ran across the very show you were talking about where Mary blew the thing about the grease rack. Ah. That about you what? had run, uh, I think it was last winter sometime, and it was uh, the thing where they, how they got a hold of uh, Rochester, which featured guests Amos and Andy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Freeman Gosden and Charles Carell were on the show, right. And uh, the thing was that somehow, uh, I guess, uh, one, I think it was Jack hit Rochester, and he was up on the grease rack, and Mary asked him, how in the world could you hit Rochester when he was up on the grass rake? The grass rake. <laughs> okay, anything else? No, I can't think of anything right now. Okay, well, thanks for calling. Okay, we just lost that one. I, I can tell you a little story about Rochester and how he got on the Benny Show. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> the only time that I ever turned Jack down in my life I would get out of other shows. Uh, this is before I was contracted to him, and I'd get out of other shows in order to do his show. Well, he called me one week quite late, and I already had four commitments for Sunday, and I said, there's just no way I can do it. I'm sorry. What he wanted me to do was a porter on a train coming from Albuquerque. And it's a very fortunate thing that I was busy, and they couldn't get me because they went out and they got a young man by the name of Eddie Anderson, and Jack was so impressed by him that he said, hey, we got to find a spot for him on the show. And he became his valet on the show. That's the way he got on the show. You mean you almost had the role of uh, the Rochester guy? Well, the first no, it, it, it never would have developed that way. No, uh, it would no, uh, have just been a one-shot if I had done it. But because he had this very distinctive voice and all, Jack was so intrigued with him, he said, hey, we got to do something else beside this porter bit. Right, right. But what I mean is you almost got the role that, that uh, in other words, if you had done that show, maybe there wouldn't have been any Rochester. That's right. That is correct. Uh, I think that was around Easter 1937, wasn't it? Uh, I couldn't give you the date. I really don't remember. It, it went back a ways, though. Yeah, long ways. Uh, the Phil Harris Alice Faye show was was written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet. Yeah. And um, uh, when we talk about uh, the kind of uh, comedy that they did as being so similar to what what was on the Jack Benny show, actually much of that was written by two writers who, as far as I know, never served any time on the Benny show. Right. Well, neither one of those ever wrote for Jack, but they certainly knew the formula. I wonder if uh, if uh, Harris himself had a hand in setting the direction of that program. I honestly don't know. I worked Phil's show a number of times, but uh, I didn't get any real feeling of him uh, working with the writers very closely on, you know, putting a script together. But uh, he might well have done that, and I might not have known about it, because I just, uh, you know, I was there as an actor, and that's all. But uh, it was a it was a fun show to do. 
Elliot Lewis was another one who was who was on Benny's show a lot, wasn't he? Well, Elliot used to come on, and he did what they called the muley. They called him a muley. Uh, you're a kind of a, a goofy guy, you know. <laughs> and uh, we did a routine. We did one routine uh, between Elliot and myself that uh, is turned out to be just an absolute screaming, funny routine. And we were scared to death of it because if it died early, you were dead because you had to go on with it. You couldn't get off of it. And what it was, uh, he gets up to the line ahead of Jack to get a ticket. And he says, I'd like a ticket for Glockamora. And I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, is that little brook still, you know, uh, how are things in Glockamora? I said, fine, fine, just fine. He says, is that little brook still running there? I said, yes, yes, it is. And we did every line of the song that way. And it just kept building, and of course, Jack doing the looks behind him. <laughs> and it went from the beginning of the song to the end with every one of the lyrics, and it played, just kept building and building and building. Then they tried it. It was so successful, they tried it again with another song about a year later, and it died a morning. And we still had to do it, because there was no way out of it, you see. Was that the Tennessee Waltz? I'm not sure. I don't remember what it was. I don't, I don't think I really want to remember what it was, because it, it just died, that's all. Josephsburg, in his book, recounts that, that, uh, that you and, uh, and I believe it was Elliot Lewis, did the Tennessee Waltz that way. Well, they, they were, then probably we did. That's probably the second one. Only the one that really played was How Are Things in Glockamora. Yeah, I think that's in Irving Fine's book. Yeah. Um, uh, that's wonderful comedy when you can build something like that into Oh, it, 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 was, it was just tremendous. And uh, yet you can see what a chancy kind of a routine it was. Because if it didn't start to play right from the beginning, you were going nowhere except downhill for a long time. Right. Fred Allen used to do some great things with uh, music. Did you ever work with him? Yes, I worked with, uh, with Allen uh, when he was working with Jack. Uh, on about, oh, I think two or three shows uh, where Alan was on, when they had the feud going, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's, uh, what's your opinion of Fred Allen? Oh, I think he was, uh, I think he was born like uh, 20 years too soon. Uh, the kind of comedy that he did that was so magnificent, and he was the comedian's comedian. Every comedian adored him, thought he was the greatest thing that ever came down the pike. But he was too sharp for the people, generally speaking. And then... Comedy began to change, and I think he would have done very, very well on today's market or back a piece from now even. But uh, I just think he was a little before his time. You see, he never had a high rating, and yet every comedian loved him. Yeah, he. Um, I know he took um, a greater a greater role in in the actual writing of the show. Oh yes. Uh, he actually pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. There were some fairly high-powered writers that worked for him. Herman Walk. Yep. Was one of them yep. back in the 30s. But uh, I think Fred had uh, more to say about uh, what was in the final script than most uh, comedians do. When, when Jack Benny, uh, got, when, when, he, when his program was written, it was usually, didn't they get together right after the, the show on Sunday and sit down and go, go over ideas for next week? Now you're asking me something I don't know. They might have had a writer's meeting afterwards. I really don't know. It's, uh, it's quite possibly did, uh, especially if something happened on the show that they were going to hang things on the next week, you know, like, like one of the breakups or something. Then they might well have done that. 
I didn't realize uh, that they did it on any regular basis, however. Mm. I, I wouldn't say they did or didn't, because I, I really don't know. I got another uh, listener who wants to talk to you. Uh -huh. Hi, this is John Dunning. You're on 71 K News Talk Radio. Yeah, John, this is Jim. How yeah, are you? Pretty good. Uh, I'd like to ask Mr. Nelson, uh, did you do any of the Lum and Abner shows? Yes, I, I did a few of the Lum and Abner shows. Not a lot of them, but a few of them. Yes, of course. Uh, I think uh, Lum and Abner, I believe, first started out what on WLW in Cincinnati. And uh, after it went to the network, uh, I don't know, they cleaned up their English. And I just didn't think their show was nearly as good as it was to begin with. What kind of character did you play on Lum and Abner? Do you remember? Oh, golly, that's uh, going back too far to give you any idea of what I did. It would just be a casual character because... Most of the script uh, between them was between the two of them, as you know. And uh, they were just incidental characters. What you'd call an incidental character would come in now and then, and I, I did a few of those with them, but uh, nothing of any import. Okay, Jim, is that, is that it? Well, no, I would agree with him that uh, he um, that Fred Allen was ahead, ahead of his time, and maybe I missed it, but uh, I just wonder how Mr. Nelson feels uh, that Alan might, if he would have made the transition from uh, tel uh, radio to television. I think he could have. Uh, you know, he was acerbic and uh, uh, funny. I think it would have been maybe even an in uh, easier transition for him to go into uh, the uh, television end of it than it was for Jack. Because if you think about Jack, so many of his major motion pictures were bombs. And when you think about television, all it is is, uh, is small-screen movies. And consequently, uh, I'm inclined to think that, uh, that uh, Fred might have uh, made an easier transition than Jack did even. See, I think Jack was absolutely at his best in radio. I think that's when he was absolutely superb. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, uh, I sure thank you for your time, Mr. Nelson. I would like to say that I've enjoyed everything that I've heard you on, and believe me, that's been quite a bit. Thank well, you, I John. thank you, sir. Thanks for calling. Hello, you're on 71K News Talk Radio. Hi. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I was, uh, well, a question I want to ask is that uh, it seemed to me that in regard to Fred Allen that uh, you were talking about the writing of a script, and it, it seemed to me that uh, lots of times there were pretty lousy jokes in there, and I wondered if they were purposely written um, as kind of crummy jokes, and he played off of them. It seemed to, you know, he always ran out of time. The show was all cut off at the end almost all, very consistently. And I just wondered if he ad-libbed, you know, if, if, the, if the material was arranged for him to ad-lib, because that was the funny part of the show, I thought, was his quick wit. Frank, do you have any opinion on that? John, you're going to have to relay the question. I can't hear a single word the gentleman's saying. Uh, what he said was that um, on many of the Fred Allen shows, his feeling is that the the jokes that were were imparted were so bad that, that that was what became funny, and he wondered if that was done intentionally for Allen to add lib off of. Well, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, you see, I, I, I don't think of the jokes as being that bad. I just think that they were uh, kind of, uh, many of them, ahead of their time. They were just too soon. They, they weren't prepared for the kind of jokes he did. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I 
guess I'm not uh, familiar enough with the area that he's talking about in relation to those shows. Let me let me see if I can take a, a quick shot at that. Um, what he's talking about, I think, is that if it's true that Fred Allen came along too soon, we now have the benefit of 30 years to look back at them. And I think what he's saying is that some of Allen's comedy may not stand up as well, but I think that what, what we get into is that he was dealing with material that was topical at the time, and it was meant to be a, a, a cornball um, interpretation of what was going on in the in the world at that time. That's right, and I, I my feeling is that uh, he would uh, be much more acerbic today in handling that. Uh, he'd be more in the uh, uh, quality of a Mort Saul in the way he handled uh, topical material. Uh, except, I think he'd be funnier, personally. Yeah, I just I want to say, John, I, I presume for, um, you can't hear me, but um, that Fred Allen was my favorite of all the all the radio shows, comedians, and um, you know I, I didn't mean it as a put down. I just I just thought that, um, that that's the way that's the impression I got that some of the jokes were rather feeble, and then he he worked off of that. Okay, well, thanks much for calling. Bye. Hello, you're on seventy one K News Talk Radio. Well, you finally got through to. <laughs> There's a there's somebody trying to imitate you. Yeah, this is Fred, John. Huh? This is Fred. Well, uh, I do, I don't think you quite made it, but uh, give us a try anyway. Okay, may what? Uh, was that a was that a Frank Nelson try? Yeah. I'm just wondering uh, if if Mr. Nelson could possibly tell me why uh, seeing that George Burns and Jack Benny were such good friends, I can never recall uh, George Burns ever being on his uh, program. John? No, I can't either. Jack Benny was on George Burns' show a lot. Um, I, I tell you the truth. You know, I've heard so many of these things, I'd have to consult my uh, indexer at home. I have an index of these shows, but uh, off the top of my uh, ledge head, I can't recall Burns ever going on, on Benny's show either. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he was on. I'm sure he was, but I, I just don't remember. Yeah, I can't either, but if he was, then that's good. And uh, just, if you can't hear me relate to him, that... Uh, I've enjoyed them for many years, and I hope to enjoy them for many more years. <clears throat> well, thanks much for calling. Okay. You say you've done, you've finished with the McDonald's stuff now, huh? Uh, yes, we finished those uh, on the 10th of January. What are you doing now? Well, sitting, doing interviews. Doing commercials? Huh? Doing any other commercials? Uh, not at the moment. I think after that campaign, which was an extremely heavy campaign, it'll be a while before somebody wants me. Uh, did I tell you, incidentally, that we uh, I didn't expect to even be talking to you today? No. Oh, well, I was supposed to uh, do an interview yesterday between 11 and 12 with a gentleman in South Carolina. And I sat here until noon, and I thought, well, that's funny he hasn't called. And I picked up the phone. It was stone dead. Hmm. And it was dead until just about an hour before you called me. You know, I had a nightmare that you that I was not going to be able to get through to you today because we got... I didn't think you would. Uh, <laughs> up until an hour before you called, uh, the phone was stone dead. We got some good press on your being on, and, and usually when you, when, you know, when you get something like that, it doesn't work out for one reason or another. Yeah, well, I, uh, I, I uh, called the phone company and hollered at them and said, you know, uh, I, I've already wrecked one show, and now I'm going to wreck another show, and... Uh, I wish you'd see what you can do about this, and they finally got it just uh, about an hour before you called. Listen, when when you do a, a campaign like McDonald's, and when when uh, there you know the the tie-in to the Jack Benny show, which has been gone now for 
the the radio show has been gone now for 25 years. Um, your your tie to that is so subtle. A whole generation of viewers is, are going to look at those spots and and probably not know what what they're doing. How how does McDonald's come up with something like that, or what? Well, uh, as as I understand it, the uh, the head of Needham Harper and Steers. Uh, you want the boring story of how I got the commercial? Sure. All right. Uh, I, I got a call one day from Afra out here. Afra called me and said uh, that they wanted me to call Chicago, Needham Harper and Steers, and talk to a lady by the name of Virginia Dalton about some McDonald's commercials. So I called her, and I said, uh, I don't understand why you don't have my phone number. I don't even have an agent anymore. And I said, I don't understand why you don't have my phone number, because I've done four commercials for you. And uh, she said, well, we're a big agency. There are four floors here, and one floor doesn't necessarily know what the other's doing, but would you be interested? And I said, yeah, sure. So about 20 minutes passed, and she called back, and she said, uh, uh, Frank, I uh, checked on those commercials. Those were voiceover. And I said, yes. She said, well, this is on camera. And then this is the way an actor sells himself. I said, what in the hell do you want with me on camera? And there was a pause, and she said, well, we thought we might. And I said, well, if you do, okay, but I can't figure out what you want with me on camera. So then on the following Monday, I uh, was called to go out into Burbank and do an audition at a small studio out there. And I went out there, walk in, and a young man, 26 years old, walks out of the back room. And he said, I'm Bill Brichter of Needham, Harper, and Steers, and I wrote the commercials. And I said, oh, I know. You're going to tell me that your mother used to carry you into the theater in her arms, and you watched me perform. And he said, no, no. He said... I know the character, and our boss is a great fan of the Benny Show. So that's supposedly where it came from. So I then did uh, the commercials, and uh, when we got all through, he said, Now, I can't go back to Chicago without autographs. And I thought, Oh, come on, you're putting me on. And so he brought these five scripts in that I had done, and I said, uh, First one he said is to so-and-so. I said, Now, who is that? He said, That's the head of Mead of Harper and Steers. I said, By all means. So I autographed each of these, the people he asked me to autograph them to. And left and came home and said to my wife, there isn't a snow pole of a chance in hell of my getting that job, because any time you get all that kind of treatment, nothing happens. Three days later, they called and said they wanted me to do it. Hmm. And the funny thing is, that's the first time McDonald's has done, uh, ever done anything except real people, you know, uh, just folks doing commercials. And uh, actually, it's the biggest single campaign they have ever done. They called me two weeks into the campaign and said that McDonald's was so happy with it they were putting an additional half million into network advertising. So uh, it evidently was a very successful campaign for them, and I'm happy to have worked for them, and I got a kick out of doing it. And you're talking about the character. The very strange thing happened. You see, I wondered. I thought, now, uh, what, what are the kids going to think about this today? Uh, it's a long time uh, since my son used to come home from school and say, you know, Dad, I am sick of you, because all the kids in school were doing the yes. Okay, all the kids back doing it again. All the kids, they go into McDonald's and they say, uh, I'll, I'll have a uh, hamburger, and they say, uh, Big Mac, yes, and they're, they're all doing this bit. And I have had uh, kids run up and rap on my window, and I roll the window down, and they do the yes at me and then run. And uh, it's, it's strange, but the young people have picked up on it just exactly as they did back in the Benny days. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it is. Your wife, Viola Vaughn, yep. was also on the Jack Benny show for... And she used to do a lot of femme fatales. You know, if there was a sexy uh, French gal or a sexy uh, 
Italian girl or whatever it happened to be. She uh, she did a lot of those. She worked with Bob Hope a great deal. She uh, did uh, Mademoiselle Fifi with uh, Eddie Cantor. And, uh, of course, she hasn't uh, been working at it. Uh, I'll tell you what we do now. We have a thing that we do called uh, the Golden Days of Radio. And uh, so she and I do the Bickersons now. Really? Yeah. yeah. We have a lot of fun doing that. I I heard Don Amici doing that not all that long ago. No, Don all... did it, of course, for years. He was doing it in a commercial, I think. Oh, did he? This has been, uh, well, well, not that long ago. I say five years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, so I guess he wrote that. Who was the same uh, fellow that wrote the Fanny Bryce show? I'm sorry, I, I think I drowned you out. What was the name? Uh, Phil Rapp, I say, uh -huh. uh, uh, wrote uh, the Bickersons, and he's the same one that wrote the Fanny Bryce show, the Baby Snook show. Um, did 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 you guys read the uh, the Josephsburg book? Did I? Yeah. No. Um, uh, he keeps trying to get me to buy it. I say, give it to me, and he won't. There are some, there are some funny things about, uh, about your wife's role in the Jack Benny show in there she might enjoy. Ah. I don't know whether she would enjoy him or not, but uh, <laughs> uh, Josephsburg goes into... In fact, I'd love to talk to her sometime. Well, you're... I'd love to talk to both of you again. They could. Um, there, there, is a, there is an anecdote in here. Um, I don't know if you remember the famous fraternity pin show. Well, I, I think I'd get her on sometime and, and ask her about that. Josephsburg goes into the uh, the uh, into great uh, description of of what she looked like. I see. And he's talking about. Huh? I know what he's talking about. Well, he says that if she and Raquel Welch were standing in the same spot, you'd walk past Raquel and, and say, uh, um, uh, "Sorry, move out of the way. I want to talk to the girl." <laughs> And there was a there was a, a a kind of an off offbeat joke about fraternity pins. She was only supposed to be wearing thirteen fraternity pins, and the censor burst in on them. <laughs> and this thirteen grew to three hundred and fifty before the censor was through, and it actually became a dirtier joke than than if it were only thirteen, something well, like that. I'll tell you, I I, I think Milt's uh, enlarging on things a little bit, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, would she be available to talk to us sometime? Oh, sure. I would love to do that. Of course. Uh, uh, how how uh, often was she on the Benny program? Well, she used to, sometimes she would stand by, if Mary wasn't feeling too well, Mary used to paint a lot. Really? Yeah, she'd have spells when she would paint, and sometimes, boy, she'd hit that stage, and that was it. Uh, and usually it would be after the show, right at the conclusion of the show. I don't remember Mary ever fainting during a show, but I sure remember her fainting a great many times after a show. What did she have, Mike Fright? Uh, I don't know. I don't know whether it was that or just uh, a, a general nervousness or what the devil it was. I really don't know. But uh, if she was not feeling too well, they would often have Viola down there just to stand by, uh, just in case something happened to her, just to pick up and do her lines. But there are other times they would have her in there doing, as I say, the femme fatale type of thing. Did she did she uh, substitute for Mary later after she left the show? No. No, she never substituted for Mary as such, huh? Now, Mary Livingston actually left the program because of the, the fact that the pressures... She wouldn't, do the, she wouldn't do the television shows. She I, just wouldn't do them. She left the radio... They trapped her into doing one, but I mean, she just wouldn't do them. I believe she left the radio show, too. Well, she may have towards the end. I, I, I really don't remember that. Now, uh, Viola might know more about that than I do. She might have, dubbed, uh, or, you know, uh, stood in for her on an occasion. I really don't know. I've said she hadn't, 
but I could be wrong on that. You know, we played one the other night from 1954, and uh, the actress who was playing the part was good, but there was such a difference. She didn't have that bite. And now, Mary was Mary, you know. I mean, and, uh, and when you've done a thing that long, you, you don't try to step into somebody else's shoes unless it's just a necessity. You just have to do it, that's all. Because uh, you're never going to be compared favorably. That's right. We have one more caller here. Hello, this is John Dunning here on 71 K News Talk Radio. I'd like to ask you, what was the most uh, funny or embarrassing thing that ever happened to you in radio? Good question. Did you get that? What was the... The funniest and the most embarrassing. Well, I really think that the Drear Poussin story that I told you earlier was probably the funniest. I, uh, that, Hello? That, that uh, I got more of a kick out than anything uh, out of the reaction of Jack, you know. I mean, it mm -hmm. was such a... It just broke him up so completely that I, I, I would say that's about as funny as anything happened to me. Uh, embarrassing, embarrassing, I don't know. Uh, that's, uh, it's embarrassing when you make a mistake. Uh, it's embarrassing when you do something on a dramatic show like I did once when I had a very dramatic scene which uh, the f first act ended with, uh, you've killed my boy. And... Uh, no, you killed my son, was the line. Mm -hmm. And I started to say boy and tried to change back, and it came out, you've killed my soy. Now, <laughs> uh, you know, that, uh, that leaves you in uh, a fine state of affairs, and uh, now I have to go back and do the second act, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, a highly dramatic show, and I did a thing like that. And then the director, having no heart at all, handed me a little note just as I'm going to open the second act, and I flip it open, and it says, My little soy, how have you been? <laughs> and then I practically couldn't go on. I practically couldn't get the words out. <laughs> uh, you hear a lot about uh, things that happen on the air, uh, in line with this caller's question, uh, where there are a lot of games played on the air. I don't know if this happened on shows like The Benny Show, where, where somebody would, you would be on mic, and somebody would come and jerk your pants down or set Oh, fire. we used to do that to each other all the time in the early days, before, not on network not on network shows, but uh, when I was working locally here, we used to do that all the time. Well, what is your most would walk into the booth uh, naked, you know, and throw you a cue. <laughs> You're supposed to do the news now. They would throw you a cue That's naked right. from the booth? Yep. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, your most memorable experience in Denver radio since you said you worked here. Well, I, gu I guess, yes, I did. I, uh... As I say, the first thing that I did was this show for a bank back there in which I played the husband. I was about 15, I think, and the young lady was a beautiful redhead of 32. And if I had known then what I know now, I could have enjoyed the part more, I'm sure. But uh, I remember one thing that happened to me on that. I, uh, I think probably in all of my career in radio, I missed exactly one broadcast. And that didn't happen to be in Denver, but I was taken by ambulance and carried in on a stretcher while I was doing that series, and from the stretcher played uh, the husband uh, one night. Wow. And mm. uh, the other time, the one time that I actually missed a show was when I went back with Jack to New York, and I got out of bed. I had a fever of 104. I got out of bed, went down in a snowstorm, and did the first show. And when he found out that I was that ill and that the doctor had allowed me to get out of bed, he was ready to kill somebody, 
And, of course, he would not allow me to come back and do the second show, and so the writers fought for the privilege of doing my part on the second show. And uh, that's the only show that I ever missed in my whole career in radio. Frank, we are coming up on the hour. I really have enjoyed having you on. I would love to have you back. I hate to monopolize your life, but I, I've only touched on one show today, and I would like to talk about some of the other things you've done. And I would also like to have your wife on if that could be arranged. Well, sure. Why not? Okay, well, thanks much for, for being with us. You betcha, John. And you let us know. I sure will. We'll okay. talk to you again. Right. Okay, that was Frank Nelson, wonderful actor from the Jack Benny Show and other programs. Uh, talking to us from Los Angeles, and uh, we are going to talk to him again because he was on many shows. Um, the, well, what are we going to do, you guys? We've got to um, uh, wrap it up, wrap it up. Uh, I'll give you the Johnny Dollar address next week, everybody. I'll talk real fast. Somebody asked for the Johnny Dollar address. Hold on next week. Meanwhile, come back next week at 2 o'clock. For old-time radio, here is the news. the entire run twice uh, over there. We, we ran it two years. And as a result, an actor by the name of Bob Bailey became very well known in Denver. Uh, one of the things that we kept getting called about was where is Bob Bailey and uh, is he still alive? What is he doing? And can we write to him? And I had no idea at that time where Bob Bailey was. But I was requested to send the series out to a station called KREX in Grand Junction. And I sent them out there. And they had them on, on the air for, uh, I believe, the first time at the first show we sent. And they got a call from uh, a lady out there named Roberta Goodwin who said uh, Bob Bailey was her father. And that's how we uh, found out where Bob Bailey is today and what he's doing. And I'm going to talk to Roberta Goodwin now, and we're going to talk about some of that and about some of the the old days when they were producing yours truly johnny dollar uh hi are you there yes good afternoon how are you doing i'm doing just fine uh, we heard um about a year ago i guess it was the interview that you did with carrie x i believe we played it in fact here in denver so i'm going to cover some of that same ground but i also wanted to ask you some other things as well uh, you were a a small child then when when he was doing this right yes uh, but all around nine years old all up until around 14 when he was doing this show 14 or 15 did you accompany him the whole time the whole range of that of those years no actually I started uh, going down to the studio with my father when I had my learners permit uh, he went down Sunday we lived in Pacific Palisades it was about a 20 mile drive down to Hollywood down to the big uh, Canex studios on Hollywood Boulevard. Now they've been turned into uh, the CBS television studios.
when radio went out. But then I uh, would drive him down and stay with him the whole day while they got the show ready to uh, go on the air during the week. What's the first memory you have of going down with him, and why did you start? Oh, uh, well, a lot of it. Like I said, I got my driver's permit. It was a nice drive, and um, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed being down there. And I think he was kind of hoping that I, the business showbiz bug would bite. It just never quite took. You know, um, many actors and actresses don't wish that for their children. It's kind of a, a reversal of what you normally hear. Well, my grandmother and grandfather were both in the acting business, and so uh, I guess he was hoping that it would pass on to the next generation. He was born literally in a trunk, was on the stage by the time he was a year and a half old, was out in front selling uh, uh, theater bills for $5 a week when he was around eight years old. So he came from a long line. You say he was born literally in a trunk? How did that take Backstage, place? Backstage in a trunk when uh, my grandma and grandpa were, were on the road. They played in Virginia City, Piper's Opera House. They were in San Francisco at the time of the earthquake. Mm -hmm. So that was before he was born, but later they were still performing long after he was born, and also his brother was in show business, um, Edwin Bailey. He produced Truth or Consequences all the time it was on the air. Jack Bailey? Ah, uh, no. Uh, I remember Jack Bailey. That's no, no this was Jack Bailey did it. He was no relation. He was a friend. But Edwin Bailey produced the Truth or, Quen Truth or Consequences shows all the time they were on the air. Ah. Um, when was he born? He was born 1913, uh, June 1913, June 13th, in Toledo, Ohio. 1913 was a pretty difficult time for a, a woman to have a baby under any conditions, but to have a baby backstage in a trunk was... Uh, well, not only that, she was 30, 39 years old when she had her. <laughs> uh, and what was his first part, as, as far as you can tell? He was in Peck's Bad Boy. That was his first acting job on the stage, and all he had to say was, I didn't do it. That's right. Yeah, I remember you um, You mentioned that at yeah. KREX. Um, do you know what, what he first did on radio? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that. I do have, I have conversed with another man back, uh, I believe he, he was in Oregon, Washington, Oregon, and he sent me a list. He was in something called Holly Sloan. He was in Kitty Keen. Holly Sloan was uh, called uh, the... Uh, Story of Holly Sloan or something, I've, 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 I've heard of that. And Kitty Keene was uh, called Kitty Keene Incorporated. That was a soap opera about a, a woman detective. Right. All that, that was done in Chicago. Right. And then he did Road of Life, Mortimer Gooch, Scattergood Baines, uh -huh. Brewster Boy, and Today's Children. You don't know what parts he played in those? Yes, I do. Uh, well, can you tell me? Right. He played... Uh, Johnny Starr, funny, uh, in Holly Sloan. He played Bob Jones in Kitty Keene. He played Dale Humphrey in Road of Life, Mortimer Gooch in Mortimer Gooch, Vern Sanders in Scattergood Baines, Phil Hayworth in That Brewster Boy, Richard Coles in Today's Children. And those were, like you say, I believe those were all in Chicago. And then he played... Uh in the uh, Let George Do It, is George Valentine. Not in between that. He left Chicago to come out here under contract for 20th Century Fox. 
and he worked for 20th Century Fox, I guess, for a couple of years. During the war years, he was there. And while he was there, he made Jitterbugs and Dancing Masters with Laurel and Hardy. And then he made Ladies from Washington, and he made Wing and a Prayer, Eva St. Mark, and Tampico with Eddie Robinson. Mm-hmm. And Sunday Dinner for a Soldier with John Hodiak. Then he went on to radio to do uh, Let George Do It, which he played George Valentine. Now that was, um, he did that uh, on Don Lee, wasn't it? Don Lee Network? That was, I think, KHJ. That was the, what it's, uh, the call letters were, KHJ, and that was downtown. All the, all the big radio stations were within about a four-block area, downtown Hollywood. They pretty much had to be with all of the uh, well-known actors skipping around, didn't they? Yeah, it was, well, it was a very quiet, small town back then, as I can remember. Nothing, nothing like it was when I left California. And uh, uh, everybody sort of ate at the same restaurant, and it was a, a group mixed together that one would work at one station. A lot of times, I have a couple of the old scripts here, and I see where old people like Virginia Gregg and uh, Jack Crucian, they were on several shows, most of them, as a matter of fact. Uh, people would just work the same show, you know, different characters. Right. Uh, we were talking to Dick Joy, who was an announcer last week, and he was talking about the different roles that Hans Conried played, uh, some of the things that you, you, don't even, you don't even hear his name in the credits anymore. And I suppose all of these uh, actors and actresses, uh, Virginia Gregg, for instance, let's, let's talk about her for a minute. I mean, she was uh, a marvelous actress, and she had a, a whole range of talent. You knew her personally, didn't you? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. She, uh, she sort of took me under her wing as she was one of the only women that were there at the recording studio. So I just kind of sit beside her, and she loved to knit. Whenever she didn't have a script in her hand or she wasn't up in front of the microphone, she would sit there knitting. Of course, this is something you can, you can do this on the radio. She might play, oh, two or three parts. She might be an old woman. Uh, she would be a little girl. Or she would just, you know, use her regular voice. And this could all be in the same script. That was the marvelous thing about radio. I mean, you could be on there. You could be five foot two and weigh 300 pounds. But you could be a handsome leading man. Right. Um, I, I, I turned up a... Uh, I don't know whether this was a union catalog or what, but it was a, a book of all of the West Coast players back in 1940. And there was a very young-looking Virginia Gregg. Mm. And, and in it, it said types of roles and there was a whole list of things from ingenue to russian countess to all kinds of things and then it said range of voice her voice span was from eight years to eighty she could play any part in that in that range and uh, she did she did she did there were there were others others too i can't i can't remember their names a lot of them went on to work uh... in the cartoons what I hear voices today behind some of the cartoon characters that I know and recognize, but I can't put names uh, names to them. Well, you hear Bill Conrad all the time. Yeah. And you hear Paul Freese a lot. Yeah, I, I and, well, take Jack Crucian. I know he's doing a commercial. I just saw him a few few days ago doing a commercial on the air. So. Did you know any of, um, did you know... Uh, Conrad or Freeze? I, I never heard those on those guys on Johnny. No, uh, well, some of the people on Vincent Price did that show a lot, and uh, well, like I said, Virginia Gregg did it, and uh, a actor named Stacy Harris. He went on to be in television, uh, played a bad guy all the time. He's one of those people. If you saw him, you'd know him right away, but you don't know his name. Right. And uh, Larry Dobkin, he went on to play a bad guy in a lot of television 
series. And there was Forrest Lewis. And I was looking at the script. There's a very young actor here, Dick Crenna. Mm -hmm. And we all know that he went on uh, onto television. We just heard Dick Crenna on this show about a half hour ago on Armis Brooks. Right, right. Well, he was doing dance show then, too. Was he was he doing um, uh, adult parts or, or mostly kids? Oh, he was way down in the script. <laughs> doing, uh, you know, uh, just what they call, I guess, bit parts, support parts. I believe in one of the Johnny Dollars that we, we have played, Dick Crenna turns up uh, as kind of a teenage uh, hood or hoodlum. Uh, there, were, there were so many. There were the two formats. There was the half-hour format, and then there were the five-series formats. So, um, the, uh, the, the five, the five a week format was just great radio. Uh, have you had a chance to hear t many of those that we've been sending out? You know that I don't listen. Uh-huh. I, it's, it's, I don't know. I often wonder how other movie actors, actors, children felt when they listened to something that used to be, uh, it brings back memories, so to speak. You know, uh, so much has happened to my father since then not all of it very pleasant, but sometimes I don't listen to them. Uh, probably I should. I'd like my, I, my children do listen because I like them to know what he did. But I, I, I don't listen. <laughs> out of a, out of a, you know what I mean, because it's a painful? Yeah, thing? it is painful. It, it brings, those were very good times. And like I say, afterwards, uh, when radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just, died out there in California. They tried to move it back to New York, and when they tried to convert to TV, so many of the radio personalities couldn't make the conversion. And until uh, other jobs opened up, like the sponsor jobs, now, like the, behind the, the voice behind jobs now, there were a lot of radio stars that just went completely downhill. And especially, like my father, had nothing to fall back on. He, he'd been an actor all his life. And by the time his radio show was over, he was almost 50, and he weighed about 150 pounds, stood about five foot nine and a half, and they looked at him on television and said, you're not Johnny Dollar. Mm -hmm. No. And he said, but I am. I've been. And they said, no, no, we have to get a six-foot-tall guy that weighs about 200 pounds to play the part. Consequently... It never came to television, nor did Let George Do It, although I have one of the first TV scripts that they were going to shoot for Let George Do It. They shot part of it and again looked and said, well, you just don't look the part, you know. Don't look like that wonderful voice. Yeah, and this happened to a great many radio artists. It was very, very sad. And it's only, only now, I think, that um, radio is coming back a little. You know, I think some of the radio stars that were displaced by television are still uh, still have difficulty dealing with, with what happened to them. Well, uh, it was a whole way of life out there, outside of the movies. The movies had their group and their way of life. Well, radio was another whole thing. There were parties. And another thing about radio, you shot the show one day. You had the whole rest of the week off. And you could, you know, go out and do what you wanted. And... Uh, the three big studios that were down there are gone. They're just office buildings now. I think they, they tore one right down. You'd go down during the week and you'd see people lined up around the block. Each studio had maybe three huge auditoriums. People would go in to see Queen for a day. Mm -hmm. The consequences, these were all broadcast live. Most of the other shows were, were taped and, and put out over the air. 
But it, it was fascinating. You'd go in the front doors, and there would be this huge booth, and it had a clock that showed clocks for each, each time zone, and this huge control board where he would send out all the, the programs to all the little small stations. So it, it was sad. It was a very sad time when, when uh, TV just kind of just wiped it out, so to speak. There was a prejudice against uh, radio actors on the on the part of uh, television producers when they when they came in what i've read at least is that a lot of them were young whiz kids who came in, came along and 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 had a new toy and they said no 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 if you worked in radio now you you've got your own way of doing things and this is tv and 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 actually when you think that working in radio would give you a credential back in the early 50s and or mid 50s it actually worked against you it did because it if you think of it, radio is an entirely different form of acting. Uh, you relied completely on the sound man, the sound mixer, for any sound effects that, that needed to be put in. Although you, you stood in front of the microphone, you would move your arms occasionally and act a little. All the acting was in the voice, in, in what came out from inside of you. You know, you, you could wheel someone up there in a wheelchair, and he would project over the radio, his voice, his emotion, where in television uh, is involved, I won't say more acting, I'll say more physical acting. More jerking around and moving, anyway. <laughs> well, yes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not just telling you this because you're on the air, but um, when we look at a series like Johnny Dollar, which had a great range of, of, of acting talent in, involved in it. Your dad, I believe, as I'm, I'm trying to go from memory now, was the fourth man to play that part. Uh, Charlie Russell was the first, and then we had some real high-powered talent in Edmund O'Brien, and, yep. and, and John Lund played it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and yet, he was, to my mind, absolutely the best. Um, and, and that says something, because Dick Joy and I were talking last week about you know, getting things set in your mind, and and the first Johnny Dollar I ever heard was Mandel Kramer, who came along after your dad. Mm. Uh, and to me, he was that part. And then when I started hearing Bob Bailey's version of, of Dollar on the air, it just, after a time, it just supplanted that. And, and now that, that series, from 19, roughly 1954, 55 through 1960, mm -hmm. really stands out as the the Johnny Dollar show. Oh, thank you. Well, I wanted to ask you, before I forget, um, your dad is in a in a convalescent home now yes, in California. I, I, after I received your call, I called him yesterday and spoke to him. And he was very, very pleased, very excited. Um, he was almost as excited for me that I was realizing, well, what to say, some of his, you know, something he'd done was going on. And uh, he'll be 70 in June, so he, since he suffered 10 years ago, he suffered a massive stroke, which left him completely paralyzed on one side. His memory is slow, and he has trouble talking. But the tone of his voice is the, is the same, just the same. You know right away it was him. Um, but for those of you before you ask, I've already asked, he will, will not be able to do this, this kind of a thing. He will not be able to do this program. Oh, he can about 10 minutes and he gets too tired and like I say some things he remembers like they were yesterday and then other things he cannot remember at all does he have any of his shows 
No, he doesn't. Would, um, would he be interested in having them? He has no way of no way of playing them. It's it's like I say, he's in a rest home and uh, he's mostly paralyzed, so he has no way of playing them. And I'm wondering if he wouldn't be a little like his daughter, not to listen. Although he said he saw one of his movies on television the night before last, and he seemed to enjoy that. If he had a way of playing them, and he had some of the tapes, would well, I'm, I guess you just answered that question. You don't know whether it would be. Uh, painful for him to hear them or not? No, I don't. I, I would, you know, I'd have to, I'm, we'll probably talk to him again. Would you like to find out? And I will find out when I talk to him again. I can give you his address, and I know he would appreciate even a postcard. Uh, okay, we'll give that address a couple of times for those of you who, who uh, listened uh, faithfully to the Johnny Dollar series that we, uh, that we played on KDX for two years every morning. And would like to drop Bob Bailey a card. Give me the address now, and we'll give it again a little later on. All right, it's Robert Bailey, four, 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 five, North Fifteenth West, Lancaster, California. Lancaster is like Burt Lancaster. It's just like it. Uh, Nine three five three four. Four four four. Four five North Fifteenth West, Lancaster, California, California nine three five three four. Is there any? Um, one thirty seven would be the room one thirty seven. Although it will get to him if you just and that's the Antelope Valley Convalescent Hospital. That's a mouthful. Antelope, as in the animal, Valley Convalescent Hospital. Well, you know, if he would be interested in in hearing his his material, uh, I have um, all but four or five of the serials, and uh, I think probably um, fifty of the half hours. I have about uh, thirty or forty. Let George do it, and if we could get uh, maybe maybe even get the old time radio club here involved. Now I'm speaking for them and and can't, but maybe we could find a way to get a, something to play them on, I would certainly be willing to make the, the shows available. So if you could ask him and get I back to me. I will definitely, definitely ask him. And I want to tell you, this has really been a pleasure for me. I'm just beginning now to realize uh, what an impact someone recording a show, you don't think a thing about it when it happens, and yet years and years later, 25 years later, here it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, for one, am certainly glad that uh, that these were saved because um, they are the best radio you find today. Virginia Gregg uh, played a part on Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Called, uh, her name was Betty Lewis, and she played Johnny Dollar's girlfriend. And and uh, you told me on the phone that there was uh, that that there was a, a a warm friendship between the two of them, uh, and, and in fact between Virginia Gregg and your whole family. Yes, uh, she didn't live too far away. Uh, and um, her children went to school with my younger brother, so we developed uh, a friendship. And since she was on the show, so, and she was such a, is, I should say, is such a wonderful person. And then later on, she, she went on to do so much work with Jack Webb on That's his right. show. She was, she was on Dragnet. She, she used to play uh, all kinds of different... Oh, yes. And even now, she'll pop up on TV. So she, I assume she's still working. Yeah, I think I saw her a, a, a year ago in one of the credits uh, on, on some television show. Listen, I think we have somebody calling. Oh, we have a call? Let's, uh, 
Okay. We're going to take a break first? Okay. Hold on. We're going to take a break first, and we'll come right back. All right. After all we've been through, I can't believe you're doing this to me. You're robbing me blind, nickel and diamond me to death, and it's going to stop, buddy old pal. You're getting audited. That's right, audited by the experts. Experts with computers. They'll find out where the money's going, and when they do, I'm going to fix you, but good. Think your home is a friend? Think again. It's hiding hundreds of ways that waste energy. Energy you've been paying for. Put an end to it with our computerized home energy audit. For just $15, Public Service Company will send an energy expert to your home. With the help of our computers, he'll find those energy wasters, things like your open fireplace there. It can waste as much as 8% of your home's heat. 8%? 8%? Some... You're listening to the Old Time Radio Show on 71K News, the station that brings the world to you. Now back to Denver's Old Time Radio History buff, John Dunning. Okay, and we are back, and I'm talking with Roberta Goodwin, who lives now in Grand Junction, having, I guess I could term it, escaped from California. Exactly. And uh, we, have a, we have a call. Um, uh, okay. Do I do this? All right. I, I'll get used. We change it every week. Line one. Hi, this is John Dunning. You're on 71 K News Talk Radio. Well, Mr. Dunning, this is one of your constant followers since you've been on KEDX and then before then. Well, good. And my question is, you were saying that um, my uh, Sincerely Giant Dollars uh, started as a TV series back in the 50s. Uh, about how many episodes were filmed? You know? Uh, Roberta, did you say it was actually, that it went into production, or did it... No, it never got on the air. Uh, they had talked about it. My father even went to New York. They got him in front of the camera and decided the voice didn't match the body, and they never did uh, cast anyone else because they felt no one else would be accepted. So it never got on the air. So they never produced it? No. What? Uh, then is it... Is it still open property, then? I produce? would imagine that it would be the property of, uh, what, CBS? Is that canon? Mm, I don't know. Nope. That's that's uh, really open to question. When you get into a, a, a question of who owns these things, um, that's a... Who owned, who owned the character, Johnny Dollar, I believe? Well, Jack Johnstone was the writer-director. Yes, yes. D did you know him? Yes, I went to school with his daughter. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, did that answer your question on... Uh... Uh, yeah, one unrelated question. Okay. Okay, um, briefly, was Frontier Gentleman ever done as a television series? Not to my knowledge, no. Okay, thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah, the, I did, I've never, I haven't given out the number. See, and there you go. The number is 758-7100. And... Uh, I'm at it again, constantly not giving out the number. And we're talking about yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and about uh, Bob Bailey, who uh, was certainly the best Johnny Dollar, as far as, uh, as I'm concerned, anyway. And we're talking with his daughter, uh, Roberta Goodwin, in Grand Junction. Um, what can you tell me about Jack Johnstone? Now, he, he was involved... I don't know if he was involved in the first show back in 1949, but he certainly... Uh, was was close, more closely related to that series than anybody else. Well, all the time I was ever uh, ever went down or being aware of the show, he was always always there. He um, the two scripts I have dated fifty five and fifty seven both have his name down here as um, 
as being producer director. So um, I, as long as Dad was there, he was there. Um, what What do you remember about him and his his directing methods? Oh, uh, he uh, he was marvelous to watch. He would sit behind a lectern uh, on a high stool, and he would have the script in front. And sometimes he would remind me of a, a snake. He would, he would weave back and forth on this on the stool, giving what they call cues. He would have to cue the music, cue a sound effect, cue the actor by by rather pointing at them. And sometimes he'd be like an orchestra leader, and he would just it was hypnotizing to watch him as he he brought everyone everyone together and worked everyone through. That's literally what he did. He was the director of the program. Like an orchestra leader, he orchestrated all these different individuals till they got the finished product. That, and he was a wonderful man. Was he authoritarian? Yes, yes. In other words, when he did, when he told you to do something, you did it? Yes, yes. When he said, quiet, this, this was it, everybody knew that, that he meant it, yeah. And he was, uh, just had a wonderful personality. How did he get along with your father? Oh, got along very well. Uh, we'd dine at his house, and like I said, I went to school with his daughter, and we would, you know, she'd spend the night my house, I'd spend the night over at their house. It was, of course, to us, uh, our fathers weren't any different than the plumber, the mechanic. Uh, we just accepted what, what was happening. This is what they did for a living, and it didn't mean anything to us. It was only later on, when I was in uh, just beginning high school, that I met someone who was the head of my father's fan club. And I couldn't understand what, 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 what it was. Every time she'd come in the house, she couldn't talk. And she'd get all red in the face. I just couldn't understand this. And suddenly I discovered there were fan clubs all over the United States, and he was getting all this fan mail. And it just, just then it began to dawn on me that he was something different from just ordinary daddy. Mm -hmm. Did you, have you kept in touch with, uh, with Jack Johnstone or his daughter at all? Oh, uh, unfortunately, uh, I haven't kept in touch with any of that. Like I said, he had hoped that I would go into some end of the business, but I never did. And so when he and my mother separated, he literally dropped out of my life for nine years, and I never even knew where he was. And at that time, that's when all the memorabilia was lost, all the pictures all of that stuff. I just have the smallest little amount of it that I kind of retrieved by hook or by crook. So that's what I mean when I say there's some some painful memories involved there too. Mm -hmm. So that uh, that's how I lost complete touch. Do you, I'm gonna, I want to I want to ask you a little more about that. But first, I wanted to ask you: Do you know if uh, Jack Johnstone is still alive? I don't know. He was a little older than my father, but not that much because. Uh, children were the same age. As far as I know, it's uh, the only way you could find out would be to go through, if they still have it, AFTRA, American Federation mm -hmm. Radio Television Actors, which used to be AFTRA, American Federation Radio Actors, when it started in Chicago. They have a, a like a listing office where they would know out in California. Uh, he, he wrote many of the scripts in, in addition to directing. I understand. Yes, I'll tell you another writer they had. See if the name rings a bell. Robert Bainter. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've got a couple of uh, shows in which uh, that name is uh, given a credit. It is? I believe I recall from your interview in Grand right, Junction. Right. Yeah. Here, I thought I, I, thought I was going to get away with <clears> Robert Bainter. Is it, Bainter is his middle name, right? Robert Bainter Bailey. Uh-huh. In order for him to be able to do the scripts, he had to use Robert Bainter. Uh, because of union rules? Oh, I think more along the line of studio <laughs> rules, you know, 
know, they didn't want to pay the, pay the writer and pay the actor all at the same time. Oh, you mean he did the script gratis? No, no, they paid him, but they paid him Robert Bainter for the, to, to do the writing. Uh, most of the big offices were back in New York. So I don't know that they knew that he was the same. Or maybe they felt that it wouldn't sound right if they said Robert Bailey was acting in it and writing it, too. Now, that's an accepted thing on television. It's a big thing if you produce it, write it, and act in it all at the same time. Yeah, I know. I've heard a couple of radio shows in which that's done, but not very often. We have another call, um, and uh, we got about uh, 17, 15 minutes left. Uh, let's call it 15. Um, Seven five eight seventy one hundred. If you'd like to uh, ask anything about Bob Bailey that you've always wondered uh, from hearing the shows, uh, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Okay. Uh, hi, it's John Dunning. You're on seventy one K News Talk Radio. Well, it's really a pleasure to get to talk to you and your guest. Uh, by the way, was it proved to your satisfaction that John McIntyre is still alive? Uh, no, that was a question that came up last week. Well, I know that, and I guess I did not call you, but I passed a message on that didn't come to you, I guess. But he was on a special just a, within the last two months that was done as a syndicated thing on Channel 2, but it was brand new, and he played with his wife, and they were shipboard passengers. Well, that's great to know, because... On the show, uh, he supposedly is having a heart condition, but it was a, a futuristic thing. It was rather interesting, as a matter of fact. It was a two couple of nights, I think, it ran. But he is alive, definitely. Well, that was my mistake then, because Dick Joy said he was alive, and I could have sworn that uh, that I saw in the paper that he had died a couple of years ago. For change, they were very nicely groomed, and he in a tuxedo, and she in floor-length gown. <laughs> they had been trapped in, under the sea in, uh, what year was it? Oh, that was that Channel 2 thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, one other thing before I ask something of your uh, guest that's on, was one of the shows you played today, uh, Armis Brooks, one of the songs, or the song they sang, I shouldn't say one of them, was written by a cousin of mine. Really? Which one was that? Um, I, see, I, and I suddenly drew a blank. Were they singing, was, was it I'll See You in My Dreams or was it something else? Yeah. Yeah, that was written by my cousin, Gus Kahn. Really? Your cousin is Gus Kahn? Right. <laughs> uh, well, what are you doing here? You should be out in Hollywood yourself. Unfortunately, I did have a chance to uh, write to his son only once, and I don't know what happened, but we never corresponded after that. He died before I ever had a chance to know much about him because he died, I think, in 1940. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I, I, every time I hear one of his songs, I sit and say, now that's talent, wish I had it. I bet you didn't ever expect to hear Jeff Chandler singing it. No, it, was, <laughs> <laughs> it really was. Okay, well, what's your question? Your guest, a little bit. Sure. Okay. Uh, is it Mrs. Goodwin? Yes, it is. Uh, I was going to ask if you had brothers and sisters, too. I have one brother who's living. Uh, he's out in California. Uh, for a long while, he worked uh, in a rock band as a drummer. Uh Right now, I'm not quite sure what he's doing. Uh, have your, and I think you said you also have children. Yes, I have uh, two children. Uh, my son is 17 and a half. He'll, I'm proud to say he'll soon be entering the Air Force. My daughter, 15 and a half, uh, in school in Fruta. Uh, have they been ahead, had a chance to uh, get to hear some of their uh, grandfather's tapes? Yes, they have, and uh, my son seems to have inherited that voice. Oh, really? Wouldn't that be terrific? Uh, I kind of, frankly, I guess I didn't listen to it a lot when it was probably on the air, but I've listened to it when John has played it. Uh, I didn't get to hear it in the early morning times, but I got to hear it when you played it on Sundays. And uh, I, too, would have to say that of all the ones I heard and remember some of the ones from earlier, I think your father was the very best, too. Oh, thank you. And, uh, I, and I noticed, well, it's a little different year, but he shares the same birthday as my mother. Slightly different year. Hmm. June 13th, didn't you? 
Yeah, that may, 13's, I've always considered 13 a lucky number. Okay. <laughs> I do. Well, it seems to fall on Friday a lot for some reason. Yes, but it does. <laughs> like anyone. But I, I think it's just terrific that uh, you were located, and I didn't get to hear the other... Uh, ta- I, I had heard that your father was in a convalescent home. I'd heard John say that on the air once, but I'd never gotten to hear anything of the other tape. So it's really a thrill to hear you, and uh, I think it's just great that... Uh, you got back in contact with your father and everything and got a chance to go to the studio in those days. And oh, thank you very much. I, I wish that uh, we could hear more old-time radio even than we do. We don't really get to hear enough of it, and uh, those were really the days. And some of us who were at least young enough or old enough, whatever it was, to hear some of those things, we really had something great to remember. Okay, well, thanks much. Okay, thank you. Um, your... Uh your brother is did he participate in these trips down to this to the studio no there's eight years difference between us so he was uh is uh was too young then uh-huh. going down so i i just went down um you say he dropped out of your life for nine years is this a uh, an, an element of, of of his life that i can ask you about or? well um in most cases, I'd say no, but I think it might be good for, maybe it might help somebody. My father had a drinking problem, and for almost 22 years, he controlled it by going to AA. Uh, but then, uh, when my mother divorced him and they separated, and when radio died, and he saw his life kind of crumbling before him, he kind of gave up a little. And he went back to drinking quite heavily. And he lost his house and lost car and he couldn't hold down a job and then he just drifted away and i i married and um i just i looked for him but i was never able to locate him none of his friends knew i even tried through the uh through the studios and through the uh william morris agency all the different agencies and nobody knew where he was and then i'll nine years went by and the phone rang one day and then i picked it up and he said, hello, this is your dad. And I said, this is, no, this is not funny, whoever's playing this joke on me. And he said, no, it's me. And he had been rehabilitated up at what they call Warm Sphinx Rehabilitation Center. And for about two years, he was doing wonderfully. He was helping out at this uh, rehabilitation center, helping other alcoholics to get back on their feet again. And then out of nowhere, uh, he suffered this stroke. And since then, he's been in the rest home. Mm-hmm. You, when you went down to the to the studio, which was KNX Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, was that uh, attached to CBS or that was the CBS affiliate? That was CBS. That was CBS. That in? was CBS, but it was the radio. Now, when CBS, the Columbia, it was Columbia Broadcasting System, but KNX were the call letters out in uh, California. KHJ, KNX, uh, KABC. Uh, these were the different call letters out there. So it was uh, Columbia Broadcasting System. Evidently, when they went on, did television, they just took CBS as their... Uh, KNX is still the radio station out there, if it's still in existence. Although it isn't out there anymore. I don't know where it is anymore. But these were... these were, It is quite a big building, about six stories high. At the time we're talking about now, which would have been in the late 50s, right? Uh, well... Right up until 1962. Yeah. Uh... You, you did it on tape then, rather than live. Uh, let, yeah. Yeah. No, they they taped it. Some of the earlier ones were done 
we're done live. He would go down and they would be done. The, some of the half hour ones were done live. And we're talking about uh, sound effects that were essentially, that were not live. I mean, they didn't have a band there, did they? No. The, they had them on cartridge or on Matt, tape. If you can picture one whole corner of a huge, and I mean a huge room, and we're talking about 60 feet long by about 40 feet wide, completely covered with that acoustical uh, tile from floor to ceiling and then carpeted with very thick pile rugs so that no sound would be heard. One whole corner is taken up with about five or six turntables, uh, oh, a thing of bells that hung down, different doors that would open and close, big doors and little doors, cowbells, oh, all sorts of paraphernalia so the sound man could make any noise that he wanted to. And um, one joke went, there was supposed to be a special sound effect uh, come on, and instead of the right sound effect at the right moment, you heard the flush of a toilet come over the air. So from then on, one of the jokes in the studio was if somebody made a mistake, you'd reach up in the air and pull on an invisible cord to simulate pulling on the toilet cord. That was the local joke in there. If somebody made a boo-boo, you'd reach That's up great. and honk, honk, you know. I've heard of guns failing to fire, but I never heard of an unwanted toilet making its right appearance. Right in the middle of a very serious scene, I guess, that I don't know what the other effect would, but he cued in the wrong effect and crunched the flash <laughs> Wasn't a love scene, was it? Well, you know how that's what the rumor is, but I don't know. This wasn't on my dad's show, but it went around all the different sound men, so that from then on, any mistake was signified by pulling the cord up above your head. So, but, um... No, the sound man had quite a job. When you went down there, you were actually in, a, in this big, empty place. It was a Sunday morning, and you did the whole thing. And right, the studio was closed, so I could run around all over the studio. We'd, you'd first go in, and everyone would sit around a huge table. The whole cast would sit around the table, have some donuts, have some coffee, and read through, they'd do a read-through. And then they'd do another read-through with a stopwatch, because they had to allow time for commercials, even back then. And then they do a walkthrough, and then they get ready to record it. Then I had to leave the room, go upstairs, and get in the sound booth. And then I would sit in the sound booth where the sound, not the men who made the noise, but the men who recorded it, the engineers would sit. Mm -hmm. And then I'd watch the show up from the sound booth while they recorded it. Uh, that's the, the, the reason they did it on Sunday? Is because no, it was... I don't know. It just happened that the, that was the day... They did it. was on Sunday. It's because, uh, it sounds like, because uh, there was nothing else going on there. I mean, that was, must have been one of the last shows they were actually taping for, for broadcast. No, I don't know that there might, there were three or four huge rooms like this. This had nothing to do with the live shows, like Truth or Consequences. Those could be going on, or Jack Benny, those could be going on in another portion of the studio with people coming in the front door. The studios were so big, so immense, that you could wander in one whole end of the building without even getting near where they had the theaters to broadcast the live shows. Mm. And there were three or four of these huge soundproof studios that they would record these shows in. It just so happened that, that uh, at that particular time it was cut on a, uh, like the one show I have here was cut December 20, uh, see, December, 20, uh, December 4th and aired December 22nd. It gives you an idea of the, the length and time between the two. Right. Um, how many, sh how many uh, times do you imagine that you went down there with him? Oh, let's see. Over a period of time, I probably was down there maybe 50 times. Do you have one... Hold on, Sunday. I'm sorry? 
about 50 times. You know, there was no school right. on Sunday, so I could go down on Sunday with him. Uh, the rest of the week he devoted, he uh, later on did do some screenwriting and some television writing. And he wrote a series called Fury, which was a Saturday morning horse show for uh, the kitty set. And the local joke got to be how much could the horse do exactly? Hmm. Uh, what great thing could he do next week? He was under contract at MGM to do some uh, writing. And if you ever get a chance to see Birdman of Alcatraz... Oh, yes, I saw that. All right, one of the reporters standing on the dock is my father. No kidding. No kidding. It was one of the last parts that he did before everything kind of faded away. Look, we have one more call. Um, let me uh, let me get this, and uh, we've got about five minutes left. Hello, you're on 71K News Talk Radio. Uh, you were mentioning uh, doing this show on Sunday. It was broadcast on Sunday afternoon, and I was wondering if they broadcast the same episode they did on the Sunday morning. Or were they... You know, she said it was about three weeks apart. Okay, but yeah. it, it actually was on the air on Sunday afternoon around 4 or 5 o'clock. Yeah, I believe you're right. But uh, they, they actually recorded them about three weeks apart from broadcast. Yeah, now, another question I have is, um, in a case like that where they had a star, did they, did they have an understudy? Was there someone to replace him in case he became ill? Or Do you know that? Uh, no, if I hear him correct, that's why they were recorded, uh, recorded a couple of weeks ahead of time. Oh, so there was no need for an understudy? Of... For anybody. I'm sorry? No understudy at all. If, uh, he Fortunately, he never did get sick, but in case, they were two shows ahead of themselves, so that there would be about a two-week period. And then if he did get sick... They would tape two shows in one day, so they'd always have something to fall back on in case of illness. Okay. Okay, thank you. My dog's going nuts. So. Okay, thanks for calling. Thank Listen, i got a couple of minutes. I want to ask you one thing, uh, and that is that uh, is there one uh, memory of, of this experience that, I, that, that we haven't covered here in these questions that really kind of stands out? Oh, I can't... Uh... That's an awful question to ask somebody. I've been thinking for days of all, of all the things that have, that have happened. I think the one memory is, the more I think of it, the sadder it is that that type of radio had to leave us. That, that really, uh, it was mind-challenging to listen. I remember listening to other shows. I had to sneak up at night to listen to Lights Out. And uh, it was a very exciting time. And I'm glad now that I was able to share it, and equally glad now that the next generation is able to hear these shows, that a person like you can, can bring them back for us. And uh, I'd like to see radio back again. I would give a lot of people an opportunity to get into the business who aren't pretty enough <laughs> to get on the TV, so to speak. But that's, I was very sad when radio, the demise of that kind of radio as we knew it. Yeah. I don't think it's going to come back, though. No, but at least we can be, we can be thankful we got people like you. Well, we can be thankful we still have uh, collectors, and, and we have something like twenty or 30,000 shows now that are around. 
We have just a couple of minutes. I want to thank you very much for coming along, and I'd like you to hang on so I can I can uh, talk to you a bit about uh, where to contact me if your if your dad wants to hear some of this material. All right, fine. Uh, and for those of you who would like to write to Bob Bailey, who remember the Johnny Dollar serials, the the things that we did on KADX for two years, or some of the half hours that we've done here, I'll give you that address one more time. Uh, thank you, Antelope Valley. Convalescent Hospital, four 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 five North North, pardon me, North Fifteenth West, uh, Lancaster, California, nine three five three four, and it's number one thirty seven. Is all that right? And uh, we are coming up to news. I want to tell you again that we'll be back next Sunday at two o'clock. We'll have uh, Frontier Gentlemen again. Not the same show. Suspense, a great show called Murder for Myra with Lloyd Nolan, one of the uh, best of the suspenses that I've heard in recent uh, months. And we'll go back to the Phil Harris Alice Faye show and pick up where we left off with a show called Hot Merchandise from May of 1949. Again, I want to thank Roberta Goodwin for uh, spending the last 45 minutes, minutes with us from uh, Grand Junction and uh, wish her and her father, Bob Bailey, the best. Um, I, I'll keep this address so those of you who didn't get it uh, give me a call okay we'll see you next week and uh, this is KNUS in Denver it's 5 o'clock Just had a hunch, I guess. Feeling. But confound it, Jimmy, it doesn't even make good sense. <laughs> Only there's one thing about it, Dr. Gillespie. What? It worked. In just a moment, we will return to the story of Dr. Kildare. again, the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers as Dr. Kildare and Lionel Barrymore as Dr. Gillespie. Confounded, Parker. Can't Kildare and I have five minutes' conversation without you poking your long nose in? Well... Never mind. What do you want? Well, Dr. Carew's outside there. Shall I show him in? Show him in. Show him out. I don't care where you show him. Oh. I think I know what he wants. I doubt if he's heard. Oh, let's pour it on him, Jimmy. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Well, Jimmy, look, if it isn't Dr. Carew. Yes, I believe it is at that. Gentlemen, please. Step into our parlor, Carew. Speak up. What's on your mind? <clears throat> gentlemen, I have refrained 
from exercising my authority. Uh, but there can be no more quibbling now, no more dilly-dallying. Isn't that word dillying, dallying, Dr. Gillespie? Well, Jimmy, I think you're right. Uh. Gentlemen, that girl. I want her released at once. Hey, I guess he means you, Jimmy. I'm not holding any girl. Dr. Gillespie, you know very well who I mean. It's that, that Marion Lewis girl. Lewis? Uh, Marion Lewis? Well, there is something familiar about that name. Oh, I remember, Dr. Gillespie. That's the girl who left with her parents right after lunch. Dr. Kildare, I won't listen to any art. She was. You know, I don't think Dr. Carew really knows what's going on around here. Oh, dear. But I thought... I, I mean, you said that... But last night you... Oh, dear. Oh, dear, 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 dear. Parker! Open the door for Dr. Carew. He's trying to walk through the back of the closet. You have just heard the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. This program was written by Les Crutchfield and directed by William P. Russo. Original music was composed and conducted by Walter Schumann. Supporting cast included Virginia Gregg, Ted Osborne, Lorene Tuttle, Tal Avery, Barbara Ruick, and Jack Crucian. Dick Joy speaking. Okay, and uh, Dick Joy was just speaking, and I have him on the phone here. And that was um, uh, Virginia Gregg showed up again as uh, Nurse Parker in that, I believe. Dr. Kildare, right around 1950-51. It's about eight minutes until five. Just time for me to tell you that next week, uh, Harry Tuft will be here for me. We'll hear X-1, Mystery in the Air, and the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. And maybe a few other things. And right now I want to ask Dick, I, this is, I won't have time for a, a, uh, a full interview here, just a couple of minutes. What do you, th when you hear that, uh, after all these years, what do you think about it? Well, I know I was a lot younger. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, John, that was one of three shows that come to mind whenever I think of happy shows to be on. That is a regular cast of people you work with every week who genuinely like each other, and pull for each member, and uh, no animosity or jealousy or upstaging of any kind. Uh, Dr. Kildare was such a show, and uh, so was Those We Love and uh, on Television December Bride. I had the good fortune to be associated with those three programs. You announced December Bride? Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, it was just a voiceover at the beginning and end, but when the show was being put together, it was before an audience at uh, Busy Lou Studios, and uh, I had quite a lot of work to do while uh, we held the audience there, while they changed the sets and the wardrobes and one thing and another, restocked the cameras, and uh, it was a very interesting uh, proposition. Spring Byington uh, was a lovely lady, and uh, so was everybody on the show, a lovely lady or gentleman. When you um, when you look back at that, Lionel Barrymore was was he a, a, a formidable presence on a on a radio show like that? Yes, he was. He seemed to be uh, antagonistic toward everybody, and he really wasn't. It was just a almost a part he created to live after he became crippled, I guess. And uh, he had a, a, a wonderful rapport with Lou Ayers, and uh, of course they 
they'd been together in the MGM motion pictures as well and knew each other inside out, I guess, and they just got along beautifully. You mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you know, Lionel Barrymore was uh, was a cripple, and he had a, did you say he had a specially uh, geared automobile? Yes, yes, he hand-controlled, and he insisted on driving it himself, and he wasn't the world's greatest driver, and he survived, but uh, I was in the NBC parking lot one time when Lou uh, Ayers was trying to get him to uh, agree that he ought to uh, hire a chauffeur and a houseboy and get himself a good automobile and be driven around. He just uh, gunned the car out of there and left Lou standing. <laughs> Who directed that series? William P. Russo. Russo, that's right. Yeah. He also did Dragnet, the early uh, couple of years of Dragnet. And the musical director on the show, Walter Schumann, who did some excellent work, also created the Dragnet theme and did all the music for that series. Walter was a law student at USC, and he had a campus dance band at the time I was a student there, and that's the way he paid his uh, tuition. And... Uh, became an early star in the radio and television and motion picture music and then died an un very untimely death quite a few years ago. Heart attack, I believe. Walter was a fine fellow and uh, of course Virginia Gregg is one of my all-time favorite people. Do you know where she is and what she's doing now? She's still around as far as I know. I keep hearing about her from the Pacific Pioneers and the last uh, few times I was down there she was always present. I've seen her in a few uh, television movies lately, playing character roles. We heard her twice today. We heard her on Frontier Gentleman doing a, a kind of a, a bar hop uh, saloon girl type role, and then we heard her in a very different voice. You would never know the two of them were the same as, as Nurse Parker on Dr. Kildare. She had a wide range. She was uh, the equivalent of Lionel Barrymore as far as the character was concerned. Nurse Parker and Dr. Gillespie were both uh, supposed to be very severe personalities. <laughs> Lou Ayers didn't seem to have much problem uh, making that transition to radio. He sounded very smooth. I know a lot of the Hollywood stars had an awful time. He was so good about everything. and uh, It was just wonderful to see him uh, come back with that vehicle. And we started recording that in September 49 and finished up in uh, February of 51. They did a total of 78 shows. And they tried to do them all in their entirety. It was taped at NBC in Hollywood, but the idea was to... Uh, start and finish on time and get everything in as error-free as possible, and they did very few pickups, and uh, Lionel conspired a few times to uh, run things over so the musicians would get into a different quarter hour and make a little more money. He was a musician himself as well as an artist, and he liked to see the, the orchestra guys make a few extra dollars, and the producer finally got onto that and said, when you make a mistake, Mr. Barrymore, we're just going to keep going, and you will stay and pick up your lines later. So, How did he take to that? Well, he just scowled as usual. But, uh, Somehow I can't imagine anybody saying that to either uh, Orson Welles or Lionel Barrymore. <laughs> you, said, you said this was a vehicle for Lou Ayers to come back. Had he, was this, in fact, uh, had he been... Uh... Well, it wasn't too long after the war, and I don't think that he'd done anything much. Of course, he went through the conscientious objector trauma. And he served as a medic in the Army and was in action and shot at and came out, I guess, relatively unscathed. But he proved that he was a very brave man. He just didn't believe in uh, shooting at people. And, uh, of course, all the Hollywood stars in those days had to be heroes. And uh, he got some pretty bad press for a long time. He played an all-quiet on the Western Front, didn't he? Yes. It's not exactly a... 
That was his first big movie, I guess. This is not exactly a movie for a conscientious objector, is it? No, but of course that was uh, before the that was World War One. Uh, Jimmy Fiddler was given a day at the Pioneer Broadcasters a couple of years ago, and Lou appeared to thank him for uh, probably being the only prominent columnist of the day to uh, defend Lou when he had the problems, conscientious objections. Well, I would love to talk to you some more about this. In fact, I'm going to have to make some more time because, uh, as, as I sometimes do, I, uh, I didn't leave myself enough time to do all of these things today. I tried to cram too much into the three hours. That's your business. Yeah, I do appreciate you coming back, though, and I know there are a lot of other things I want to, uh, to pick your brain about in, in weeks to come, so I hope uh, you don't mind if I lean on you a little bit. I don't mind at all. I think you're doing a fine show. I wish I could hear more of it. All I get is what you let me hear on the phone. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Dick. Okay. Dick Joy of uh, Dr. Kildare, Sam Spade, uh, etc. Lots of shows that he did. Um, that's it for today. We are coming right up to uh, getting close to news time. Uh, I want to remind you once again that uh, I've got to cut out early next week, but uh, my friend Harry Tuft will be here to make sure Kathy pushes all the right buttons next week. And uh, we, will hear, <laughs> we will hear X minus 1 and uh, Mystery... You're listening to the Old Time Radio Show on 71K News, the station that brings the world to you. Now back to Denver's Old Time Radio history buff, John Dunning. Okay, and we're going to go out to uh, Los Angeles now, I believe. It's, at least it's a, it's a Los Angeles area phone number. Is that where you are, uh, Candy? Burbank, same thing. Burbank. Okay, that's uh, suburban Los Angeles then, right? Uh, I'd say that. I'd say Los Angeles is a supply town. Okay, we're talking to Candy Candido, and uh, let me let me read you what I what I uh, jotted down here, and see see if this is this anywhere close to being accurate. I have you as a bass player. That's how I started off. And you played uh, with appeared with Gene Austin's musical group on bass in 1933. John, let's stay at that little point right there, will you? Okay. In 1933, I went ran away from home and got married. All right. And tomorrow is, is the first uh, of March. It'll be our 49th anniversary. Pretty good. That's uh, that, that's probably something of a record, especially for the uh, the uh, uh, Hollywood uh, area, isn't it? That's right. And I was playing bass with I ran away with Gene Austin, played bass, and there's a fellow named Coco. His real name was Otto Heimel. He played four string guitar. Mm -hmm. And if we ever do another show like this, I'm going to send you a tape of the first record we made in 1933, okay? That'd be great. I'd love to hear it. I go on with your pencil mark. Okay, uh, I have you as being uh, in the uh, Ted Fiorito Orchestra, right? Well, that was 1934, at the end of 34, I joined Gene uh, Fiorito. And uh, I, I'm, I'm a little confused on this. Uh, my notes said that... Uh, that uh, Fats Waller was in that in that or orchestra. I don't know whether that was during or before your your time there. Fats Waller was never with Fiorita. No, Fiorita had all stars. He had Betty Grable, right? Farrickson, and uh, somebody else uh, was a big star then. I can't rem remember it now. Well, Fats Waller certainly didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, he wasn't the type who would uh, seem to be with Fiorita. I think I got that out of Brian Russ's discography book. That's wrong. Okay. Um, you were reviewed by George Simon in, in Metronome as being a, a funny bass player who does amazing things with his voice. When did you start doing that? Well, ever since I was a little boy, uh, you know, 
it started, uh, Johnny. Uh, you don't mind me calling you Johnny? No, no that's fine. Uh, when I was a little boy, there was a man upstairs from my house. He had some kind of sickness, and he used to kind of burp all the time, you know? Is it all right to do it on your radio? Is this a clean... The, uh, go ahead. And it would sound like... <laughs> oh? And I was a little boy, and I used to try to mock him, and I got pretty good where I could. He would... And I'm right back, see? And he told my dad. My dad used to whip me for doing it, but I never stopped. I finally got control of it. And uh, I made money with it. That's how it started. Okay? Um, when did you... Um, you also did a very high-pitched uh, female-type voice at the same time. Yeah, well, uh, I'll never forget. A song came out in those days about three trees. And I liked it. And so I started to do the three trees and the three voices. Like, I don't know if you ever heard it, but I'll also send you that record. And it says, it's one there. One there. And one over there. So uh, I'll send you that record for our next talk show, okay? Okay, great. Hey, you mentioned Frank Nelson's going to be on your show. He's a very good friend of mine. Is he? You know, he's got more money than God, than God allows, you know that? He's doing McDonald's ads now. Uh, you're telling me. He, uh, he, I don't know if he still owns it, but he had a, uh, a camera shop. Beautiful place. A real nice guy and a talented man. Yeah, he really was, you know. He could do that. Uh... He's talented. No kidding. He did that sarcastic comedy so well. Yeah, he was great. Uh, when did you first meet him? Well, on the Jimmy Durante show. He did a lot of Jimmy Durante shows. How long were you on Durante's show? I, I have a well, year of them. I was trying to figure out. In 1936, I, did, I mean, 46, I did 10 radio shows with Jimmy. And then 1947, I did 37 shows. These are radio shows now. Mm-hmm. And in the 1948, I did 13, 13, and 15 shows. And I also, that same year, I did two Bud uh, Abbott and Costello shows. Uh-huh. So, uh, and then I, I stopped counting. <laughs> um, when you were, let me, let me go back a minute. Um, you were, you said you had a... a According to, let me go back to, to Russ's book again. You, you correct me if, if, I, if I say something wrong. I, I was just digging through my library at home, and I, I dug out these, uh, these, these things about you. By the way, it is 4 o'clock, and this is KNUS in Denver, and we're right in the middle of old-time radio. I'm talking to Candy Candido on, uh, from Burbank, California. And according to Rust, uh, you were with uh, a group called Candy and Coco, and that was the one with Coco Heimel, right? That's right. That was in New Orleans. We played on Bourbon Street when we were kids, and we played for tips. We never got any salaries. And I fell in love with this little girl, and I wanted to marry her. And my family was against it, and so was her family. So Gene Austin came into town, and uh, I asked him, I said, hey, you could use us. He says, what do you mean I could use us? So I said, come out to the car, and I want you to hear a fellow and myself play guitar and bass. So he came out to the car, he heard us, and he signed us. And I said, okay, I'll sign my contract, but if you help, help me get married. And that's what he did. How did he do that? Well, uh, <laughs> he took us to a place called Kenna, Louisiana. That's about 20 miles. That's where the airport is. It's about 10 miles outside of New Orleans. And we got the Justice of the Peace, and we got married. Been married ever since. Pretty good, huh? 49 years. 49 years to mm. That's a long time. And I have one son who is 48. He's an attorney. I have another son who's 39. He's a prop master. 
And I have a, a daughter who's 31. She lives in Melpitas. Now, you don't know where Melpitas is, do you? No. That's right near San Jose. It's, and her husband works for Sunnyvale, which is the uh, Silicon Valley of the world, you know, capital of the world, I should say. Then I have another daughter who is 29, and she is married to a fellow named Gary Lindsay, who you'll be hearing a lot of because he's an anchor man for TV. Uh-huh. You see, on... Uh, in Salinas. Have any of your children inherited your, your vocal cords? My youngest son, the one that's 30, uh, 38, or 39, now, he's 39. And he's great. Real funny guy, but he's a prop master. He makes more money doing that. You know what a prop master is? No. Huh? Not, not exactly. Well, a prop master works for pictures and television, and any props on the set he has to have, or he has to get, or he has to rent, or buy, you know? Uh-huh. Like, a, like a, let's say... Uh, you, you're on your desk. What have you got on your desk that you're looking at? Anything? I just have a couple of pieces of paper and... Uh, clock? Got a clock. You got an ashtray? Some buttons. Yeah, there's an ashtray here that's left that's from... That's props. <laughs> huh? Props. And props can be as big as an organ, you know? Uh-huh. So, uh... In other words, he, he is given a, a scene to set, and he sets it, right? That's right. Uh-huh. Uh, listen, uh, getting back to the radio shows, I also did 12 Gene Autry radio shows. When Pat Button was shot out of a cannon one time, it broke his back, and they needed a replacement, so they put me on the show as a little boy who lived next door whose voices kept changing every time a Gene would talk to me. I didn't know he confused him, you know? It was a cute show. You want to get back to the first Jimmy Durante show? Yeah, hold on a minute. When did you do uh, the archery program? Well, uh, that was in 1948. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it was in 1948. I'll look through my records and let you know the next time I talk to you. But I know I did 12 shows for it. What other shows now did you do? Uh, I'm talking about variety shows besides Durante, Costello, and Autry. Uh, oh, that's another show you should get. The uh, Eve Arden radio show. Armis Brooks? Miss Brooks. Uh, no, no, not now, Miss Brooks. The Eve Arden radio show. Well, Eve Arden, as I recall, was on the Village Store. But what? The Village Store is that the one? I don't know, but it was called the Eve Arden radio show. What about what time was that? Well, I'll have to look that up too because in the forties. Be her protege on that show, and every guest that come on, she would want them to hear me sing, you know. And uh, she, it was it was a very very cute show. I think you'd enjoy that too. Eve Arden had a show with Jack Haley about 1946. That's it. I did eight shows with her in 1947. I see it right here. Uh-huh. Okay? Okay, good. Um, I, what I would like to do, I think, is ask you a few questions about some of these other shows and then talk about the Durante show just before we, we hear it. All right. Um, how did you get in with Abbott and Costello? Well, they called me because they were, doing, uh, they were trying to raise money for, uh, you know, uh, Abbott had a... Uh, thing for kids. I forgot the name of it. Because this is a long time ago, you know. And uh, they asked me to do some radio shows for them, and I did two of them. There was no money involved in it. And uh, that's how they called me to do it. And incidentally, you know, uh, Bud Abbott and I teamed up after Luke Costello died. You know that? No. Oh, yeah, that's a very sad story. We, we were doing just great. And we are in uh, New York somewhere and flying, and he got very, very sick. We had to stop. Abbott had a lot of problems with taxes, didn't he? Both of them. Yeah, that's right. They, they made millions of dollars, and, and both of them went broke. Some guy in the IRS really had it in for him, and they, 
and went back on an 11-year audit. So don't say they can't go back 11 years. They did. Yeah, it was um, Joe Lewis, too. Oh, that poor guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what did you do with Eve Arden now? You, you went on her show and, and, and just... Did you do a variety of voices for them? Yeah, I don't like guys saying, like, uh, they had a big opera star. I can't think of her name right now. And uh, Eve Arden was telling this big opera star about her protege. And she introduced me as uh, Mr. Candido, you know. And she says, uh, go ahead, he's going to sing something for you. And so before I sang, I uh, went, <laughs> you know, all the voices, you know. And she says, oh, he's only warming up in the big opera store. I said, sounds like he's falling apart. <laughs> so then I went into a song. I, said, I can't tell you the name of the song I sang now, you know. It's a long time ago you're talking about. And I've got a little bitty, bitty brain, John. <laughs> when I called you a while ago when we talked, you said you couldn't do these voices anymore, but you sound just like you sounded on the tape. Oh, yes, I can still do them. But when you hear that radio show, you realize I went all the way up to, uh, and almost to the top of the piano, to the bottom of the piano. It's six and a half octaves I did on that show. And I mean just as fast as you can blink your eye. Well, I can still blink my eye talk to you. If you want, I'll confuse you on this phone. You won't know who, to, who you're talking to. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, like I do a gimmick. I was in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania last year, and they had a pretty nasty operator. So I called her, and uh, she said, hello, hello. I said, I've been trying to get you for the past 25 minutes. She said, I'll speak to one of you at a time. And she hung up. <laughs> That's wonderful stuff. Uh, Before you start asking anything, how is Keith? Keith uh, Hughes? Yeah. Oh, he's fine. What a nice guy. We sure miss him in Allentown, I'll tell you that. Uh, well, maybe he's listening. He said he was going to listen today. At his hometown? Uh, here? Keith. Uh, uh, Allentown. Isn't that his hometown? We're, we're standing here, both of us, uh, sh shaking our heads. We don't know. Oh, you don't know. Who's both of us? Um, my, Kathy Bradshaw, my producer here today. Keith is, uh, is off on Sunday, and Kathy does the show here today. Oh, I see. Listen, um, uh, how did you meet Jimmy Durante? Well, I was working at a club called the Florentine Gardens here. And I was there for five years. And uh, I do a number called uh, uh, Shooting of Dangerous Dan McGrew. And at the last part of Dangerous Day, McGrew, uh, McGrew uh, Lou's boyfriend, they have a duel, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, Lou's boyfriend shoots Dan. And now Dan says, He got me in the seat of the pants. I think I'm dying. I'm feeling mighty low. Well, Jimmy Durante heard this, and he called his writers to come over and catch me the next day. He says, I want that on my show. Now, I'm going to give you the exact date, too. That was on October the 25th, 1946. So the first show, uh, I did a poem. And Jimmy says, he says, how do you like that? All these gals with these long dresses, you don't see legs no more unless you eat chicken. So I said, well, I can tell you about it in a little poem. He says, you can. He says, tell me. I said, girls are wearing their dresses longer and legs they do not show. So now instead of whistling, I'm feeling mighty low. <laughs> That's great. That's the first time I did it on the Jimmy Durante show. And uh, he got so many letters, and people thought he was doing the voice at first, you know. And I'll never forget they gave me a name of Tyrone Touchbottom.
on that show. Hmm. So uh, I think I did about 40 poems. Boy, I sure wish I had those scripts. I wish I had the radio shows, too. Well, you can. Yeah, I've got a bunch of them. I've got, uh, well, I don't know. You've probably got all the ones I've got, though. Well, uh, I'll drop you a line and let you know what I've got. What I, have, what I haven't got, will you mail them to me? Sure, I will. Yeah, you sound like a pretty nice guy. How old are you? I'm 40. 40 years old. Yeah, but I have to be a nice guy now. You see, I'm on the radio. See, I, <laughs> I've, got to, I've, got to, I've got an image to maintain here. Uh, I was born 1913, Christmas Day. Huh. Listen, uh, you do a pretty good. You you do a pretty good, Jimmy Durante there. Well, I was with him long enough. Oh, you you know you, but the, oh, he was a sweetheart. What fun I used to have with that guy. Oh, I used to love to torment him. You know. He was amazing. With, with uh, he had an ability to butcher the king's English without breaking stride at all. Yeah, well, his favorite line was, "He says, teach me to speak right, and nobody'll work." That was his favorite line. You know, like one time we we're in New York at the Astor Hotel. And uh, he was in the bathroom. And I knocked on the door. He says, who is it? I said, may I come in? And I opened the door. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what kind of reaction did you get? Oh, uh, well, I can't tell you, but I can imagine. He, <laughs> he threw everything at me. He was a beautiful <laughs> Well, I guess I'll have to use my imagination as to what everything was then. And everybody else will have to use their imagination. Jimmy Durante had probably the the greatest uh, reputation in the business as a as a philanthropist. Uh, he was known for for doing doing wonderful things for folks. Oh man, we did more benefits and whoo! I mean, to tell you, benefits all over the country, not only here here, but all over the country. He was a beautiful man. I think Bob Hope says on this program we're going to hear, hear uh, coming up in a few minutes, he even talks about how he's, he uh, opens his wallet more times a day than, than any other guy in town. Uh, that was your experience in seeing him do that? I mean... Oh, yeah. Like one time I was... Uh, I used to pick him up every morning to go to rehearsal for the radio shows. And I had, a, I think, a 48 Cadillac. So we leave his house and we get about, uh, oh, I imagine five blocks, and the car just stopped, and somebody grabbed it in the back. So I got out and I looked at it, and uh, holy cow, the back spring broke and it, it tightened the brake so nothing would move, right? Mm -hmm. So we had to leave, have a car and leave it there. So we ride, and he says, kid, you need a new car. So we go to rehearsal, and... Uh, I call up my oldest son to help me pick up the car. We go out there. There's another Cadillac waiting for him. It wasn't a new one, but it was another Cadillac. He had somebody sell mine and buy me another one. I think he bought me a 50. That's right. Mine was a 48, and the, the new one he bought was a 50. Uh, a 48 Cadillac, a 50 Cadillac. That was a that was a pretty classy car in those days. Um, it brings me a question. There was there was pretty big money in network radio in those days, wasn't there? Oh yeah, Jimmy. Jimmy did very very well, and especially on his personal appearances. And you know, we worked in a lot of clubs with him. I used to go work all the clubs, the Copacabana in, in New York, and the Drake Hotel in Chicago was a great date. Oh, we really enjoyed that. Travel all over the world. I even went to Europe with him in 1952. I worked the Palladium with him. And I used to do a gimmick with him where I was a, a guy from the newspaper with press on the front of my hat, and I had a camera, 
and uh, a bunch of bulbs in it, and he used to tell a story. That's how he'd open the show. He had to start off each day with a song, even when things go wrong. And he says, you know, I met the adjutant general, and he took me out to teach me how to ride a horse. And he said, I don't know how to ride a horse. He says, well, it's simple. He says, when the horse goes up, you go up. When the horse comes down, you come down. Well, why? I went up. And just when he gets to the punchline, I would take a picture in the audience. And he would look at me. He says, don't you ever take a picture of me unless I'm prepared. And he'd take out a comb, and he would comb his hair. And he says, there ain't much there, but every strand has a muscle. <laughs> so he starts and tells the whole joke again. And when he gets to the punchline again, boom, I take another picture. Man, he screams at me again. He says, come up here. Come up here. And I don't. And I start walking off. And he comes up and he grabs me by the uh, edge of the coat, brings me up the stairs. And as I get to the top of the stairs, I do a platform. The camera goes up. The breakaway camera breaks in a thousand people. The bulbs come down with those. He says, that was a terrible fall. He says, how do you feel? I'm feeling my low. That's how I used to get my entrance. Says, what a beautiful verse. You got a beautiful verse. He says, you want to rendition a little song with me? And I shake my head and we go into a song. So that's, uh, that's how I used to do it with him. Listen, we're going to come back in a minute. We're going to take a break right now. Hold on the line. I want to talk to you a little more before we hear the show. Uh, we're talking to Candy Candido from Burbank, California. This is Old Time Radio, and uh, we'll be right back after this. Thank you. After all we've been through, I can't believe you're doing this to me. You're robbing me blind, nickel and diamond me to death, and it's going to stop, buddy old pal. You're getting audited. <laughs> That's right, audited by the experts. Experts with computers. They'll find out where the money's going, and when they do, I'm going to fix you, but good. Think your home is a friend? Think again. It's hiding hundreds of ways that waste energy. Energy you've been paying for. Put an end to it with our computerized home energy audit. For just $15, Public Service Company will send an energy expert to your home. With the help of our computers, he'll find those energy wasters, things like your open fireplace there. It can waste as much as 8% of your home's heat. 8%? 8%? Some friend you turned out to be. And that's just the beginning. So call Public Service Company for your computerized home energy audit. It's one more way we're putting all our energy to work for you. You're listening to the Old Time Radio Show on 71K News, the station that brings the world to you. Now back to Denver's Old Time Radio history buff, John Dunning. Okay, we're back. Uh, we're talking to Candy Candido uh, about the Jimmy Durante show and some of the other things that he did in Old Time Radio. John. Yes. Before you get the Jimmy Durante show, do you know who Reggie Jackson is? Oh, sure. Baseball player. Uh-huh. Oh, I know what I wanted to tell you. This, uh... We've got a beautiful hotel by the name of the Bonaventure in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. And these two elderly ladies, it's supposed to be a true story. Yesterday, they went down there, somebody took them, I think, and they went to go to lunch, and it's 20 stories. So they get into the elevator. And as they get into the elevator, and the door's about to close, this big, tall, colored guy walks in with two Doberman pinches. Now... The elevator's going up, and uh, these two women are getting nervous, you know. When the more nervous they're getting, the more excited the dogs are starting to get. And uh, all of a sudden, this big, tall-colored guy says, Shit! And the whole four of them sat down. Huh. This is supposed to be a true story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can you picture two old ladies and the two dogs sitting down? <laughs> so finally, 
he gets out, I think, on the 11th floor, and they go up to the, what's his name, first place they head for was the ladies' room, I hear. And then they go having lunch. And then after they have lunch, they go to pay their bill, and the maitre d' says, I'm sorry, your bill has already been paid. They said, by whom? She said, by the gentleman in the elevator with the dogs. He felt that he put you through enough hassle, you know. And they said, well, who was he? He says, didn't you recognize Reggie Jackson? Hmm. Supposed to be a true story. Well, that's a wonderful anecdote. That's a good story? Yeah. Listen. Put you up to date. That's all. Well, listen. I'm glad you did that. <laughs> um, well, how much? How much could you make for appearing on a big time network show like that as a guest? Well, it, it varied in diff different years. You know, when I first started, uh, I asked for so much, and they didn't want to give it to me. Then I stuck out for my seven hundred and fifty dollars a week there. You know, because you had to rehearse four days for a radio show then. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what I. That's what I got the first year with Jimmy. I got seven hundred fifty dollars each show. Did uh, did the sponsor pay him, or, or and, and then he just? I got a check from the Durante show. Mm -hmm. The Jimmy Durante's check on it. And of course, uh, all the other people, I guess, the same way on the show. Frank Nelson, he most probably got the same. I don't know how much he got, but uh, Dave Barry used to be on our show. You know who Dave Barry is? No, that's I don't know the name. He's a very, very talented guy. He's got a gold mine. He's with uh, Wayne Newton. He's the front act for Wayne Newton now on every show that Wayne Newton does. In the, in Vegas, I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You know who Wayne Newton is? Oh, sure. I mean, you guys up in the country in Denver, I don't know. You, I don't think you guys know too much. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a very good possibility. I know what I wrote down here. Last time I was in Denver, I did a show... Uh, uh, some is there in Elitch's Gardens there? Mm hmm There was an Elitch's Gardens. Yeah. And I met the nicest guy at the newspaper, Max Goldberg. You ever hear of him? Don't think I know him. Well, he must have probably out there for a long time. But I just wanted to know if he was still living. Okay, if you don't know, we'll end that conversation. Well, if anybody knows, give us a call and let us know here in the next few minutes. Okay. Uh, I was just told by uh, Dick McDaniel, our uh, newsman here, that Max Goldberg is dead. Oh, God. Um, okay. He was a nice man. Okay. Hey. Yeah, I used to be in the news business here, but it was fairly recent. I don't go back that far. Yeah, uh, you still a kid. I got socks as old as you. <laughs> I got them on. Listen, um, Victor Moore was a guest on the Durante show for, and, and is on this this uh, tape we're going to hear, and he was on uh, almost as a regular throughout that 1948 season. Was that was that another example of uh, of an old friend who uh, who had fallen on hard times that Durante helped out, or what? Oh no, no, no! He was very big then. He was married to a young girl, too, very beautiful girl. I think he was about eighty then, and she was about maybe thirty-five. Oh, but he was a sweetheart, too. Was he? I know he was big earlier than that. No, oh, he was big then when, uh, I, think, I think he was still on the contract to MGM in those days. Uh-huh. I'm not sure, but I think so. He I was... know he used to come to work in a big, beautiful automobile, too. Big limousine. He was billed as the Lothario of the Lumbago set. Uh-huh. <laughs> he was adorable. Did you, did you know Peggy Lee very well? Very well. Oh, what a doll she was to him. Could she sing? Of course, to me... You just have to be next to Peggy Lee and let her sing. I think the uh, microphone spoils her. Huh. Well, she phrases, there's nobody in the world like her. I think she's great. I was great, anyway. I haven't seen her in a long time. She's still going strong. I know that, but I haven't seen her at all. I've been having a, I've got a gimmick that I do. I have been having the same agent, a guy named E.O. Stacy. He's with ICM. 
and uh, it happens to be one of the biggest agencies in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. In other words, it was MCA, and MCA had to take away all the... They either had to go in pictures, be producers, or be agents, see? So MCA became producers. Uh, so the, all the agents that were with MCA bought our GAC, then they went to UTM, and now it's ICM. And they have all the biggest stars in the world. And I'm about the lowest on the totem pole. And the guy that I've been with for 48 years, how I know it's 48 years, my youngest son was born then. His name is E.O. Stacy. And I'm trying to think why I brought this up. <laughs> I get I get into those uh, those kind of situations myself. Tell you a story that you just had. What did you just ask me? Well, I don't know. Well, see, we're both in the same. How place. about that for a for a little for a piece of uh, uh, ten carat radio? Uh, if I think about it, I'll come back. Uh, I asked you about Peggy Lee. About Peggy Lee. Yeah, so I must have had something to do with the agent. Yeah. Oh, I know what it was now. So since I met this guy, I've been doing a thing called. Goodwill Ambassador and Master of Ceremonies at State Fairs. Now, this makes my 26th year going back to Allentown as the Goodwill Ambassador and the Master of Ceremonies of the shows, you know. And uh, this year I'm going back and uh, go to St. Paul, Salt Lake City, Freeport, Louisiana. That's all I can do because I go two weeks before the fair opens. And that's how I happen to meet Keith. Uh-huh. So, uh... Well, I'm glad you happened to meet Keith because he just happened to mention it to me in the hall that he he uh, had met Candy Candido, and uh, I asked him to see if he could track you down. That's great. And I'm glad you were able to be on. Listen, I'm going to have to bail out if I'm going to get the tape on. Okay. Uh, hang on the phone. I want to get your address because you asked for a cassette, and I want to send it to you. Uh, so hang on for a minute. Um, uh, we will, uh, we're will. going to put the tape on now, and I'll, uh, I'll talk to you again in a second. Uh, let's see... Okay. We are going to the uh, Jimmy Durante show right now. Uh, I want to tell you once again that Old Time Radio is brought to you by the Public Service Company of Colorado. I want to thank Candy Candido a lot for that very entertaining uh, talk. And uh, we are going to join the Jimmy Durante show at the beginning of uh, the 1948 season when he was ill and was away from the show for a number of weeks. I think, I think he was off for at least six weeks. And during the time that he was off, they had a uh, number of stars come in. Uh, I think Red Skelton did a show, and Frank Morgan did. I'd like to do that today. And when when I talked to you about a week ago in the mail, I told you that we'd have the best part of an hour to talk. But I'd really like to play the spade with you on it. So maybe we could do this in two parts if you have time. Sure, absolutely. Um, nice to meet you, incidentally. Same here. Dick Joy was. Um, kind enough to write me a lengthy letter after I published a book on old-time radio called Tune In Yesterday. Which is a great book. <laughs> really. The, the, the letter you wrote was also great. It, uh, it had a lot of additional details, uh, some corrections, some things that um, I now wish I had done differently. And um, some of that I'd like to talk to you about. But first, um, just kind of looking at it chronologically, in this little note that you sent me, you said you started at CBS in... Los Angeles with CBS News in 1937? Mm -hmm. Well, I started as a staff announcer, John, uh, and got off into news, but news was only a part of the uh, duties of a lot of us in those days. It was always, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a little froggy today. It was always written by uh, the staff of news writers, some good, some not so good. And we were essentially readers in those days, including Chet Huntley. He was one of us uh, later on. 
I, I went to the University of Southern California. If I could backtrack to how I got there, I uh, grew up in New England, had a raging case of asthma every winter, and we knew not why. Allergies weren't understood, so the doctor prescribed a better climate for asthma. I got interested in radio by DXing. used to listen to KOA in Denver, by the way, and uh, moved to Los Angeles because uh, of the climate in those days and the fact that USC was one of the five listed universities uh, which had radio as a course. Actually, the course wasn't much, but they had a staff uh, doing educational broadcasts, producing, directing, announcing, writing, and what have you, 96 programs a month on local Los Angeles stations on the Don Lee Network, which is then affiliated with CBS on the West Coast. So I spun off from that into doing dance remotes and worked for six weeks for the Hearst radio system in L.A., and the chief announcer at KNX called me after CBS purchased the station in 1937 and said they had an opening for a morning announcer from 7 till noon and I could still go to school. So I stayed on that a while and then uh, became a full-time staff member in that following summer and then uh, started doing news regularly from that time until I went into uh, the Navy in 1943 for World War II. When I came back, I freelanced for a while and then I did some news for uh, CBS, uh, Sunday Desk being the most noteworthy feature that was every Sunday afternoon. It was probably the first show in the West in which we had reports from all over the country uh, via tape, and we put together a very fast half hour with all these reports from, well, Europe, Africa, everywhere else for that matter. And the editor of that program, by the way, was a man named Barney Miller, actual name. Barney Miller? <laughs> Barney uh, Liss was born here in Oregon. He's now in the VA hospital in Los Angeles, but we see him up here about twice a year, and he's still very spry in his mind, although he's had a lot of physical ailments. How old were you when you... Uh when you started in 1937. I guess I'm asking you how old you are now, but... Uh, I'm 66 now, and uh, I was uh, 18 when I started at USC and went on the air uh, a few months later. You were 18... Uh, well, I was uh, 20, between 20 and 21, well, 21 when I went to uh, KNX. Now, CBS really didn't have much of a news department then, did they? No. The war brought it all together, and Paul White in New York was the architect of uh, what still, in my mind, is the best news organization that radio has ever had, and uh, we had a pretty strong uh, bureau at KNX uh, during the war and afterwards, and uh, I don't know, I put it together one time, I think uh, I did probably about 80,000 newscasts during my career. I wow. was news director of KFAC in Los Angeles for 17 years after all that. That was the classic music station, still is, and uh, did about 10 newscasts a day, and I uh, was co-founder of Palm Springs' first radio station, and we finally turned the corner as, uh, as being accepted in the community when we began to do local news. We did a very good job of it, if I may say so. Now, the, the Paul White, when, when he uh, started that CBS News uh, operation in New York, that was uh, right around, what, 37, 38? I'm not sure when he started, John. Uh, he came into prominence, of course, when the Cold War began, the first Cold War, and then uh, World War II, and he had such luminaries as Ed Murrow and uh, 
and Bob Trout and John Daly. He hired Murrow to run the uh, European uh, Bureau. That's right, and Ed Murrow was sent to Europe ostensibly uh, not to go on the air. He had been in charge of talk programs at CBS, and I heard him once when I was a booth announcer at KNX. He came on the air from New York doing a, substituting for a professor who didn't make it that day when they used to have educational programs in the middle of the day. And I just remarked to myself, because I was alone, that uh, there is a marvelous voice, a marvelous personality, and we ought to hear more from him. And we didn't until those magic words, this is London. And uh, the reason that, as I understand it, that he first went on the air was that he was unable to recruit as many of the journalists as he had been assigned to, and the, the war suddenly became the hot war. And he had Bill Henry of the L.A. Times, who later worked uh, full-time for CBS, and uh, William L. Shirer and... Uh, Shirer he sent to Berlin. Yes. Those, those men were, were on his staff. Bill Henry was in Helsinki trying to arrange for the Olympics, which the Finns were still going to hold because the war was cold, and there wasn't any activity in their area. And Bill had worked for the L.A. Uh, Olympics in 32. At any rate, Murrow uh, suddenly found London being bombed, and he had no London correspondent save himself, so he went up on the roof and uh, became the most prominent of, of his type. Uh, there's nobody before or since to compare him with. Now he, um, um, before I go on, I want to tell you it's now 4 o'clock. I have to tell you this is KNUS in Denver. We're talking with Dick Joy at his home in Oregon. Uh, this is John Dunning. We're on old-time radio, and um, we're talking about uh, uh, CBS News and that great news team that they put together back in the late 30s. Uh, Murrow then hired uh, guys like Eric Severide, right? Right. Uh, Charlie Carling Collingwood, uh, uh, Larry Lasser. He hired a lot of excellent people. And, uh, I don't know if you've heard a program which was on the air in about 64 or 65 when they closed the old CBS radio. Yeah, we have a tape of that. Newsroom in New York. Right, we have a tape of that. Yeah, uh, well, then you've heard Eric Severide say that uh, he'd never been on the air until he came on from Paris under fire, and he wasn't too sure what he was going to sound like. <laughs> yeah, Eric Severide has, a in his uh, book, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the title, Not So Wild a Dream. Right. Uh, he has a wonderful anecdote in there where he... Uh, he and Murrow were locking up the office or something um, late one night, and they walked out into the street, and of course it was pitch dark because there was, they were in a blackout, and uh, the air raid sirens were going off in the distance, and he said, suddenly Murrow stiffened and, and pulled me back into the hallway there, and the bomb fell in the street just, just where they were about to walk across the street. Murrow had a, uh, he had been there long enough that he knew exactly um, how they sounded when they were going to hit the, in a block away or, or two feet away. Um, I don't know. Did you read that book? Yes, I read it uh, years ago when it was fresh off the, uh, the press. He sent it to me and uh, while well, I was managing KCMJ in Palm Springs, which was a CBS affiliate, Lowell Thomas sent me uh, his latest book at the time and said it's ever right. The little uh, perks of the business. <laughs> Now, Murrow actually became as uh, famous in England as he was here. That's right. Or more so. Fantastic uh, man. I had the pleasure of meeting him only a couple of times. I met Severide only once. And uh, I kept company with Bob Trout and John Daly the winter I worked in New York. Uh, I wasn't in news then, but they still were. And uh, incidentally, I'd like to say that my opinion, Bob Trout is probably the finest uh, extemporizer at Liber. 
in the history of broadcasting, uh, radio or television. Now he's still on, isn't he? In Spain as an ABC correspondent. He always wanted to live in Spain, and the CBS told him he was going to have to retire. So Bob retired, and ABC immediately, as they have done opportunistically so many times, uh, latched on to a great talent. He's not on the air a great deal. <clears throat> Me. That's why ABC is the number one network now, or, or was uh, was for a couple of years. I guess they're slipping now. Well, they're all pretty close together. I think CBS made a great mistake in letting Roger Mudd out of the stable. I like Dan Rather, but I don't think he's the man for that spot. That's a private opinion. I'm now trying to be an objective observer since I'm not in the business. Well, anymore. you don't have to be objective on, uh, on this program. Um, the... Uh, uh, other one that I think of that I see on all the time is Douglas Edwards. I like Doug a great deal. He he still has that good sound. He reads cleanly and clearly, and he uh, I'm sure he edits his script as a good newscaster must to to fit his own personality. And uh, he's uh, probably lasted longer than any of them now. If you were to go back to his beginning, do you remember that soap opera he did, uh, Wendy Warren in the News? Do. He um, he was um, on the air with uh, a, a lady named. Uh, well, I'm going from memory. I don't have my own book in front of me here, but I think she, uh, her name was Florence Freeman, wasn't it? I don't remember uh, her real name. Uh, she played uh, she played uh, a lady reporter named Wendy Warren, who gave us uh, news reports from the women's world, and then uh, they would come on and they would actually do five minutes of news. Uh, right at the top of the hour, she and Douglas Edwards, and she would do a woman's woman's world newscast, and then the the door would open, and she would come out, and she'd say, "Well, good show," and then she would walk off into this dreary soap opera. <laughs> you, That's right. You remember that show? I do yes. Uh, in your research in the old time radio, did you run across any a report of a program called News Through a Woman's Eyes with Catherine Cravens? No. This program was on the CBS network and. Uh, the mid-30s, and she came out to Los Angeles for three weeks, and I was assigned to be her announcer as well as producer, director, and uh, everything else. And, uh, you know, people have been saying they weren't, uh, women have never held positions of responsibility in broadcasting until all the recent uh, propaganda about women's rights and so on, and that, that is simply is not true. Catherine Cravens was a, a top-rated uh, daytime program. She was among the soap operas, but she did a straight news and views kind of program sponsored by uh, Pontiac. There were also some other uh, women, and they were in my life too, not romantically, but uh, had a lot to do with my getting where I got. Edith Tedesco was the uh, production manager of CBS in Los Angeles in the 30s, and uh, in later years at Ward Wheelock, an agency that had Campbell Soup um, as their prime account, I. I did a hitchhike on the Amos and Andy show. A hitchhike was a, an announcement for another product. And uh, That's I, what they I, called it? Was that radio slang? Yeah, it was about a 20-second announcement after Amos and Andy ended. I would do a, a spot for another Campbell's Soup product other than the one mentioned in the prime part of the show. Campbell's Tomato Juice, as a matter of fact. And... Uh, Mary Garvin and Diana Bourbon, Diana recently passed on, were managers of Ward Wheelock in, in Hollywood, and they were outstanding broadcasting people. And I wound up my career just before I had to retire because of health in 69. I was a voiceover on Gomer Pyle in television, and really? another excellent lady of uh, the advertising world, Nancy Brown, worked with Nancy for many years on uh, doing commercials for those 
wonderful TV shows like Gomer Pyle. <laughs> hmm. Um, Jack Benny didn't like Gomer Pyle very much, did he? Uh, I think <laughs> no. That's the show that... I often wondered how the Marine Corps felt about it. <laughs> knocked him off the air. Um, when you started with CBS News in 1937, you were mainly just ripping and reading, as they say today, right? Well, no, they were actually... Uh, we had a rewrite staff, and we had the news wires. We didn't have actual actuary broadcasts as you do today, uh, tape interviews. We didn't have tape, for that matter. We had the old 16-inch disc, and uh, you could not use a telephone to broadcast with. You couldn't call up and give a report from the scene of a fire. And uh, we had no radio transmitters in automobiles uh, worthy of broadcast quality in those days. So it was all a matter of, uh, of rewriting from the wires and uh, taking it to the studio. And uh, an announcer, uh, not all announcers read news. We were pretty well screened for that, and I was one of three or four at KNX in those days. They were, um, uh, they were under the impression in those days, weren't they, that the West Coast was, uh, or in fact, it was quite a bit less important than the East Coast, wasn't it? Yes, and that, uh, when we finally organized uh, AFTRA, or AFRA as it was then, American Federation of Radio Artists, we found there was such a disparity in pay between uh, working in Los Angeles and working in New York, and it was based solely on the matter of the population that you theoretically were addressing. And uh, we maintain that it didn't matter if you're talking to two people, if you're doing a good job, it's not your fault there aren't more people out there. Um, Kathy is applauding wildly in the other room. <laughs> um, well, I think it still holds. I understand that if you do a newscast on a local New York station, you get the transcontinental fee even today. And when I left CBS uh, doing programs for which I was paid fees, we were still getting uh, maybe a third or a half of what was paid in uh, New York, and we had to be on on more than two stations. Well, no, Los Angeles and San Francisco would do, or L.A. and San Diego. But uh, a regional network uh, did carry a fee, and if you did enough things, you... Uh, you could make a very nice living. But you had to be a jack of all trades, do some staff work, do some news, do some commercial programs. The hitchhikes were fun because they paid $10 a crack, and uh, Amos and Andy, there were two, one to the east and one to the west. And that was $20 a day and found money just for showing up and uh, reading a 20-second spot about tomato juice. <laughs> just for being a warm body, huh? Right. Um, there was a little more to it than that, actually, wasn't there? I mean, um, yeah. well, it was pretty darn competitive. Yes, there mm -hmm. were. Uh, you know, if you did anything wrong in those days, the union wasn't there to protect you in the first place, and you should not be protected if you're no darn good, obviously, or if you're late or drink on the job or any of those nice little capers. But uh, the point was that management could always say, "Well, you know, there's 20 guys out there listening right now who could uh, call up and get your job if you." didn't do a nice job of whatever you were assigned. And in those days, we had production duties as well. As Catherine Craven's job that I mentioned, uh, I had to call the Ambassador Hotel and be sure she uh, was awake. I had to call the Pontiac dealer who was the supplier with a car. I had to find the organist who was the theme, and he was always hard to find. And uh, I had to be sure she got on the air and got off on time and uh, read her script before she went on. <laughs> 
Aside from... Uh, they decided not to pay me because I was a new announcer and I was on, quote, probation. So I did it for free for three weeks and later found out from Frank Gallup, who was her announcer in New York, that he never had to do any of those mundane duties. All he had to do was announce and he got $75 a week. <laughs> huh. There was a lot of... Um, there were a lot of other things, though, that went into being an announcer aside from just... Uh, uh, showing up and doing the mechanical things. I mean, um, there were there were a lot of actors who who uh, who couldn't have done the announcing. Uh, that was a special kind of talent, wasn't it? Well, I think it was, John, and the, it was made clear to us that, that we were considered a separate entity entirely. We we had certain responsibilities and duties to the network. Uh, on weekends, for instance, you would be. Uh, the eldest man on the staff, and I wound up being that on Sundays for quite a few weeks, should be supervisor of the entire network operation. And all the programs on Sunday in those days used to come from, from Hollywood in the afternoon, beginning with the We the People, Silver Theater, programs of that type. And uh, if somebody ran over, like the New York Philharmonic preceding this parade of uh, sponsored programs, you would have to dash into the control room during the show and beg the director to cut a minute or 30 seconds out of the show and you'd <laughs> practically get thrown out and you'd have to call New York and say I've managed to get 20 seconds out of We the People and 40 seconds out of Silver Theater but that's all I can do and the guy in New York would say well uh, what's your name uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll uh, be talking to your superiors tomorrow you can do better than that so. and it put us in a strange position because we also wanted to qualify for some of those jobs we'd like to to uh, we didn't kowtow, but we like to be on friendly terms with producers and directors for future employment. And then when you call Silver Theater, or when you call the, the directors or producers of that show, and you said, we need 20 seconds of your time, what kind of reception did you get from them? Not very cooperative as a rule. I worked Silver Theater, by the way, in 1940. That was my first commercial coast-to-coast -coast program. And uh, you and I talked about sources for your program here later. I'd like to recommend Glenn Hall Taylor, who was the director and has written the book himself called Before Television. Great. You may have seen. Glenn Hall is, I can supply you with his address and all. He's a wonderful guy, and he's uh, just a kind, well, he would have cooperated had I been in the dual position of being supervisor and announcer of his show at the same time, which I couldn't be. But most of them just said, I don't know who you are, but get lost. <laughs> That, that sums it up best. Um, we also, uh, we were auditioned, of course, and we were expected to have prior experience at uh, comparable radio stations in those days. And uh, we were screened pretty well for our knowledge of the English language, and that, to me, is the biggest difference between broadcasting then and broadcasting now. The broadcasting companies cared. And I'm not talking about being super classy or snobbish or anything of that kind. We were raised in that era to speak uh, better English than is spoken today. We were taught better in the first place. And the networks ex expected us to uh, set good standards of a common American pronunciation. Uh, nothing out, way out about our pronunciation, but... Uh, you didn't add lip things like "Ain't this a beautiful day" as uh, the modern DJ can do. And oh, what's the guy that wakes up with the soap bar in the morning? Happy Bob, the uh, the morning DJ. That to me is the epitome of modern radio, and I'm uh, I'm sorry about the whole thing. <laughs> How did you get involved with Sam Spade? Well, I uh, 
Let's see, I came back, I'd just been to New York doing the Danny Kay show that winter and uh, Vox Pop, which is a wonderful assignment I did for many years. And uh, they held an audition for uh, Wild Root Cream Oil, which was the sponsor. And uh, BBD&O was the agency, Barton, Durston, and Osborne. Yes, they uh, right. listened to about 10 announcers and they recommended seven. And I understand the agency in, in Hollywood put me number seven on the recommend list and uh, all of a sudden I got a call from them that I had won the audition and I was to do the show and uh, so I did it for five years and uh, we were on three networks we started in the summer on ABC because you I think you wrote couldn't be placed on CBS where they wanted to be uh, so they started for 13 weeks or more on ABC, then moved to CBS, and the last year they were on NBC. And Wildwood was their faithful sponsor throughout. But the program, I think, was... Uh, Bill Spear was a wonderful director, and he and his business partner elected to choose the final year to ask for a rather substantial raise in the price of their package in the face of television, which was advancing and gaining some Sunday audience, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, Howard, unfortunately, got himself listed in one of those anti-red publications. This is Howard Duff. On to lunch, yeah. And Dashiell Hammett was also who wrote... Well, the, the, the real thrust was that Dashiell Hammett, who never had a darn thing to do with the show, except to lend his name to it, which they later took out. Uh, Howard is no more red than... Who could you name was the farthest from being a red? Mm, how about me? <laughs> okay, do. <laughs> 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 but... Uh, he was a good guy, and he went to lunches, and somebody wrote him up, and this came to the attention of the sponsor. And uh, together with raising uh, the price of the package for the show at a time when the ratings were declining slightly, uh, the whole thing came together, and uh, they made a decision to drop it, which I think was unfortunate. I think too many radio shows and too many network people surrendered to television before they had to, and had they hung on, they might never have had to. There was a lot of, um, there were a lot of shows at that time that were still doing well, except for the, the demand by local affiliates for more time. Right. Uh, even in the late 60s, some of the soaps were doing uh, as well as they had done in the uh, so-called golden era, but the, the uh, local affiliates kept after the networks for more time. Um, I wanted to talk to you about that whole Red Era, and we were talking about Merle a while ago, and, uh, of course, he was very instrumental in calling Senator McCarthy to task. I wonder if we can... Uh, can you talk again next week? Sure. I wonder if we can talk about that whole time uh, next week. I, I would really love to play this um, Sam Spade show, and if I'm going to do it, um, I'm going to have to do it probably in the next four or five minutes. Sure. Um, I, this is our first show here on Old Time Radio at uh, KNUS. We've been on for about ten years at, at other stations, and I'm uh, not quite oriented yet uh, time-wise. My uh, friend uh, Kathy in the other room is helping hold the world together for me, but uh, <laughs> I, I've got a lot of things I would like to talk to you about, including announcers like uh, Frank Gallup and Harry Von Zell and some of those guys who I know you, you, you knew. Right, very uh, uh, fairly well. And, uh, Del Charbonne is a good friend of mine, and many of them. I, I don't know who you have in the cast of this episode of Sam Spade, but I, I should point out that Bill Spear always was able to get the best. He had people like Joe Kern, who later was Mr. Wilson and Dennis the Menace. And he was also the man in black on suspense. Right, and he was 
Jack Benny's uh, keeper of the money in the vault. John uh, McIntyre and his wonderful wife, Jeanette, Jeanette Nolan. Nolan. Uh, yeah. And incidentally, Hans Connery played many oh. parts in Sam Spade. And I, when Hans died last week, I, I only saw the AP and UPI uh, reports in our papers that we get here. There wasn't a single word in either story about his being a radio actor, which uh, depressed me because he was an excellent radio actor from the mid-30s until radio just gave out. And uh, I went to a Pioneer Broadcasters luncheon in the 70s in L.A. and listened to Norman Corwin praise him, among others. And uh, there, just nobody, there was nobody like Hans. And uh, he could do so many parts. And he was so intelligent and witty and so much fun to be around. You know, the funny, it's not funny, but I mean, the, the, the odd part of it was that uh, I was talking about him just the day before he died. We were sitting there and I was seeing with, with this new format, wouldn't it be neat to get somebody like Hans Conrad on? Because he, um, he was Mr. Kropotkin on uh, My Friend Irma, and uh, he was um, Schultz on Life with Luigi. He did all that great dialect stuff. He played a, a stoolie on Sam Spade, usually. Sam would go in a bar when he wanted a tip on somebody, and uh, Hans would... Uh be hung over or well down in this 14th drink or something and uh, one week uh, some marvelous ad libs took place on that show they don't like to admit it now but they were they used to screw me up at the end because they, they wouldn't leave me enough time to get off but uh, Howard had lived the beauty one day Hans was breathing heavily and trying to remember somebody's name and wanted more money and Sam uh, Spade says uh, gosh would you please turn your head away and breathe against the wall <laughs> That's great. There's, a, there's an interesting line in the Sam Spade we have today, which, by the way, is an old one. This is one of the first ones that uh, collectors managed to get a hold of, the episode called The Bow Window Caper. Do you remember it? No. Um, September of 1947. Um, there, Sam uh, Duff has a great line in there where he uh, talks about the Constitution uh, saying that every citizen has the right to bear arms. And, of course, uh, now with that gun control thing in the courts and the, the courts are, are trying to decide whether the Constitution meant every citizen or whether they meant that you had to raise a militia before you had the right to bear arms. Back in those days, it was a lot simpler, wasn't it? Uh, everything was simpler. That's, that's true. I'll tell you what, I think what I'm going to do is play the tape, and uh, and then uh, next week we can talk more, if, if you're available, about the development of that show. Um, I, I want to talk some more about Bill Spear as a, as a director, and I want to talk about the Red Era. So next week, for those of you who are listening to this, I will not bring a... Um, a fourth show. We will go ahead and talk with Dick through the show, and uh, we'll open the phone lines and let some of you call in, and we'll uh, we'll talk uh, about some of the things that you want to ask too. Um, I'll tell you about a little bit about Sam Spade, and uh, then we'll play it. Sam Spade was uh, first heard on. And listen, uh, Dick, if you hear any of this that uh, doesn't sound right, don't hesitate to correct me on it. Okay, and you, you might know Sidney Miller, who of course performed uh, in television and as a writer and, and a great comic talent. Sidney, Hal March, Howard Duff, and some other uh, pranksters conspired. Uh, I just would like to have your listeners get a, a mental picture of this. Toward the end of the show, when we knew we were doomed, more or less, uh, they created a large paper airplane, and I did the same middle commercial on that show. I don't think they changed a word of it in all the five years we were on. And I uh, was approaching the microphone to, to read the commercial, and I saw them folding this paper airplane into a pattern where it would fly. And I saw Howard take his cigarette lighter out and pour fluid on it. 
and Sidney Miller or Hal March or somebody lit it. And just as I started announcing, they threw this doggone thing right between my head and the microphone. <laughs> blazing paper airplane about a foot long. Is that the same Hal March that went to the $64,000 question? Hal was a, had been an announcer in San Francisco and became an actor uh, in Hollywood for quite some time. A very good one. But they all enjoyed the That was part of the business in those days. Uh, try to break up the announcer, break up somebody. Well, we'll talk about some of that next week. Right now, let's listen to uh, Sam Spade. Howard Duff plays Spade. Lorene Tuttle is his uh, secretary, Effie. You'll, uh, you'll hear the famous clink of, uh, of uh, booze as Sam comes in to begin his report on the bow window caper. This particular program uh, was heard on CBS. Yes? Oh, well, we got a commercial. It wouldn't you know, we got a commercial. Um, before we get to Sam Spade, let's hear from the public service company one more time. After all we've been through, I can't believe you're doing this to me. You're robbing me blind, nickel and diamond me to death, and it's going to stop, buddy old pal. You're getting audited. That's right, audited by the experts, experts with computers. They'll find out where the money's going, and when they do, I'm going to fix you, but good. Think your home is a friend? Think again. It's hiding hundreds of ways that waste energy. Energy you've been paying for. Put an end to it with our computerized home energy audit. For just $15, Public Service Company will send an energy expert to your home. With the help of our computers, he'll find those energy wasters, things like your open fireplace there. It can waste as much as 8% of your home's heat. 8%? 8%? Some friend you turned out to be. And that's just the beginning. So call Public Service Company for your computerized home energy audit. It's one more way we're putting all our energy to work for you. Yes, you would, you would, you should be in the Denver Symphony. I love the way you wave your hand there. Um, anyway, now I can uh, do my fast shuffle and tell you that the Sam Spade incident that you're about to hear, they call them capers on this, the bow window caper, was heard on September 11th, 1947. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Sam Spade Detective Agency. Hello, sweetheart. It's only me. Oh, Sam. Why so modest? Women, Effie. Age cannot weather nor custom stale their infinite variety. Huh? Against their incalculable wiles, mere man is a leaf in the wind. Oh, Sam, do you... You're listening to the Old Time Radio Show on 71K News, the station that brings the world to you. Now back to Denver's Old Time Radio history buff, John Dunning. Thank you there. Who's, who does that, Keith? <clears throat> you know whose voice that is? Okay. Sounds very familiar. Um, are we back? Are we back with uh, Dick? Can I hear him? Okay, we're going back to uh, Phoenix, Oregon now to talk to Dick Joy again. I 
this is a uh, conversation that I missed last week due to uh, long-distance uh, telephone uh, foul-ups. I trust you're there today. Under our control. Huh? Circumstances beyond our control. Right. That's what they used to say, right? <laughs> Uh, that, isn't that what they said when they bombed Pearl Harbor? Due to circumstances beyond our control, we will not hear the symphony today, or um, the football game, or whatever it was. Usually meant just that, the whole show. You, you sound much better this week. Uh, not not you in particular, but uh, the the air does. Good. Um, I uh, I want to I want to back up a little bit, and we'll ask the listeners to call in a little while and uh, maybe share some of their ideas and thoughts of the old days with us. But uh, that uh, conversation we had about the Red Scare era last week was, um, I was only getting part of that, and I'd just like to run through that briefly with you again. You, you mentioned John Brown. Now, now John Brown was a very well-known character actor on radio. He played uh, Thorny on Ozzie and Harriet, and he played uh, Digger O'Dell, the friendly undertaker on uh, Life of Riley. Uh, he played the um, the uh, voice of uh, the Brooklyn guy. Maybe that was his name. Brooklyn. Uh, what was his name on the Damon Runyon Theater? Do you remember that series? Uh, he was with Fred Allen, of course, also. Uh huh. And uh, did a lot of things in New York. He was on the Saint. Uh, I worked. That's the only show I ever worked with him. Uh, Leslie Charteris's radio adaptation. I think that was about 1946 sometime. And John was in that cast. And he was also um, Al on My Friend Irma. Yes. Um, he was the one that always called uh, Marie Wilson chicken. Um, but he always had uh, that, that high-pitched kind of, except for Digger O'Dell, which was um, really... Uh, he could do a lot of things with that voice. He just got into those categories, I guess, because that's what they wanted. Now, how did he run afoul of those guys, the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee? I don't know how he became involved in it at all. I don't know that any of the allegations against him were ever true, but uh, he was called to appear before the board of directors of AFTRA, the American Federation of Radio and Television Artists, in Hollywood. Uh, to backtrack again, as you say, we did cover this last week, but I guess nobody heard it. Uh, the unions felt that they should be defensive in most of this, and we had five members that came before the board to... Uh, tell us why they wouldn't go before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and none of them seemed able to explain it very well. John didn't show up, and I recall that uh, Ozzie Nelson did call the union office and ask uh, why we were picking on John. He was an integral, integral part of the Ozzie and Harriet show, and they didn't want any aspersions uh, cast on themselves or on John, really. The whole thing was just so muddy because, as you mentioned last week, this committee was able to... Uh, allege, excuse me, almost anything it wanted to without any real proof, the sort of thing you'd have to have in court. And a lot of people were, uh, you know, it's like, when did you stop beating your wife? It's <laughs> one of those things, if they accuse you of being a, a red sympathizer or communist sympathizer, with or without grounds, you are tarnished. The burden was on you. That's right. And uh, the union felt uh, the networks were bearing down on everybody, and uh, as I think I told you last week, one of the people involved in the allegations was a fellow I'd helped to get his job at CBS, and he was a good announcer and a friend of mine. And uh, in fact, he came to my house, and we played ping pong about a week before it came out that he was involved in this. I did not have any knowledge that he was even going to be 
charged, and he showed up to announce the program at CBS, and they barred the door, actually, and kept him out. Well, uh, how did you so feel? We had this, uh, this meeting, and uh, we as members of the board were not allowed to talk with our fellow members who were defending themselves. We had an attorney in the office for this, and he told us not to talk. And, uh, this young man uh, turned to Art Gilmore and I and to, and to me and said, that you are a friend of, friends of mine. Uh, why won't you listen to me? Why won't you help protect me? I'm innocent. And uh, we couldn't even respond to him. But as it turned out, he was, uh, he had been a member of what they call the cell, which actually existed in Armed Forces Radio. That's where he had worked during the war. And uh, after he came out of Armed Forces Radio and went back into civilian life, he disclaimed any affiliation with any organization of that nature. But his big uh, defense and uh, everybody's in, in those days was the fact that the committee insisted that they name names, and uh, they refused to. That was, uh, it's a religious belief with a lot of people, and uh, being an informer has, throughout the ages, been, uh, well less than a rascal, at least. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, I don't know if I did this. Kathy asked me to give a legal ID. It's, uh, this is KNUS in Denver, if I didn't. Um, I asked you last week, and um, I don't think um, we were able to get through on it. Uh, was there an uneasiness on your part? I mean, you don't even have to, to be, um, you don't even have to be involved with, with anything uh, red to be linked with it, and, and literally careers were in, in constant jeopardy out there. Well, I, I never had affiliated with anyone nor had any sympathy for that particular cause. I guess you'd call me uh, liberal-minded, and, and my the, the older I get, the more liberal I am, but certainly not a, of a color you could name. Uh, and it didn't even touch me until this announcer uh, friend of mine became involved, and then I... I had considerable thoughts on his behalf, but as it turned out, he was uh, he was guilty as charged of having once belonged to a group. Uh, the fact that they were all charged with subversion and, and aiming at the violent overthrow of the government and all those other charges, uh, that was automatic with you being called a, a red. And there were a lot of people of a far liberal persuasion in those days who simply believed that the Democratic Party and the liberals as they went were not... Uh, liberal enough. Mm -hmm. Socialistic leanings uh, associated with uh, the red paint, and that's where it came from. And of course, I mentioned a book called Naming Names, which is by Victor Novosky, who was once an editor for the New York Times. It's about the House on American Activities Committee uh, from beginning to end, and it uh, is on the news book stands now. It's in paperback form. One of my daughters gave it to me for Christmas. It's a little heavy going, and I haven't gotten very far. But it concerns mostly the motion picture side of it. Radio wasn't that much involved, and I guess as we've covered before, uh, when you asked me the first time we talked what, what the reasons were for the end of the Sam Spade series, and I said one of the minor ones, uh, at least I think it was minor, was the rumor that uh, Howard, Duff. Howard Duff had been listed in some book against all this, and actually all Howard ever did, if he did that, was to go to a lunch being held in honor of somebody who was out of work because he was on the Hollywood blacklist, some screenwriter or somebody. Mm -hmm. Quite possible Howard didn't even know the man, and uh, I'm sure he's as far from being 
of that uh, political ilk as he could be. But And, of course, we talked about Dashiell Hammett, who created the character of Sam Spade, but actually had nothing to do with the radio series, except that uh, for the first few years we mentioned his name in connection with originating the character. And I, I don't know if that was a legal demand of Warner Brothers at the time. Uh, they made certain demands of Bill Spear. Certain credits had to be given in connection with using the, the character. Did you ever meet Dashiell Hammett? No, I never did. Never saw him at all. No. Um, Ozzie Nelson took up for John Brown. That's interesting. Well, he firmly believed that, uh, that John had nothing to hide and wasn't guilty of anything that a lot of other people weren't guilty of, which he didn't consider harmful. And he thought John, uh, he, he could see the ruination of John's career ahead, and indeed that's what followed. And uh, what, what after it did, and uh, he did this after a lot of hand-wringing, was to uh, tell these people who came before us and wouldn't uh, agree to talk to the House Committee that uh, they would be suspended forthwith until such time as they would recant and go and talk to the House Committee. And they said they'd talk to the House Committee, every one of them, if the committee would lay off the question of uh, who can you name, what other people can you identify as being cohorts of yours. Mm -hmm. hang up with all of them. So John Brown was, uh, was not allowed to work under after conditions, and the union's contract was pretty firm with all producers, radio and later with television, of course as was SAG in the motion picture industry, and you, uh, if you were suspended, you couldn't work. What, what, about what time was this? I'm trying to remember. It was right in the middle of the McCarthy hearings, which would be, what, in the uh, 1953 era sometime? Mm -hmm. So, so John, um, the Ozzie and Harriet actually did lose John Brown then. Yes. Uh, do you, what, what happened to him? What became of him? I think John is among the deceased. I've, I've not heard anything about him in many years. And uh, I don't know. Did he get back to work after that? I can't tell you that either. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Certainly not in uh, what you'd call big-time parts like he had before. You know, as I think about it, I don't recall uh, out of maybe somebody uh, who is... Uh, who has got uh, some of their material, their tape material before them, can, can, can call and correct us on this. But uh, when I go back and I think about all of the, the thousands of shows that I've heard, I don't recall anything with John Brown on it beyond about 1951. That, that would jive with what you're saying. Well, I think his last big part was on the Ozzie and Harriet show, and that was about all he was doing at the time. He was a great talent. He was. He used to sit around the studio. Uh, actors get together and they play little card games or whatever between rehearsals and shows a lot, or they talk to each other a great deal. And John usually sat by himself, and he was usually reading a magazine, a very liberal persuasion or a newspaper. And uh, people kidded him about it from time to time, and uh, he wasn't too happy to be kidded, so there might have been something to it. I don't know. But at least he was his own man, and... Uh, We'll never know, really. Well, and the point is, they didn't know. No, and that's the, that's the thrust of this book I'm reading, too. But, uh... Uh, in the Sam Spade episode we played a couple of weeks ago, uh, Howard Duff mentions uh, something about uh, uh, the, it's the right of every citizen to bear arms, and even Parnell Thomas can't do anything about that. Now, Parnell Thomas was another one, along with McCarthy, wasn't he? Yeah, he was chairman of the committee for a time, and... Uh... I don't recall if that's the only time they mentioned him. There was a, a teaser at the end of the show 
uh, where June Havoc, who was uh, Bill Spears' wife, occasionally played a part in Sam Spade so she could spend Sunday with her husband. Um, that's an interesting point, by the way. Uh, there were many after people then who weren't surviving, and Lorene Tuttle made an impassioned plea with Bill Spear one time to uh, to have June come in and visit, but uh, couldn't you give the parts you give to her to someone who needs the work? <laughs> hmm. And that didn't please anybody too much. Yeah, I imagine. At any rate, uh, it, it was a question as to whether this was rewritten between the dress rehearsal and going on the air, but they took quite a swipe at Parnell Thomas uh, in some closing scene. Maybe this is the one you heard. I didn't hear your show, of course, but uh, as, I, as I recall it, they uh, were condemning the, the villain, and they were talking about what a fearsome character he was, and they, they likened him to Parnell Thomas. Mm -hmm. And uh, they heard about that Monday. Uh, the ad agency and the network received calls from Washington, and it was all heck to pay, and uh, nobody was chastened on the show. They didn't do it again. But uh, they didn't lose the sponsor because of that. No, no. I imagine that was a pretty uncomfortable time. Yes, it really was. And the, the reason CBS was sensitive to this young man they discharged right on the spot was that he was announcing, doing the commercial introduction to a, a news commentator program. I think it was Harry Flannery or one of the CBS commentators on the West Coast at 5.30 in the evening needed commercials Monday through Friday, and he came in to announce this program, and they said no. They were especially sensitive because it was a news program, and they, uh, I don't know what they thought he could do or would have had been dumb enough to try to do, really. The, the point is made in this Naming Names book, by the way, that uh, all the fears about screenwriters, actors, possible uh, culprits being in a movie, uh, when you make a motion picture, so many hundred people are involved, and there's so much review of everything before it's put together, and the studios were already on top of this and actually leaning the other way, being scared about it, that it would be virtually impossible for anybody to insert anything of a political nature that wasn't wanted. Mm -hmm. Um I remember uh, McCarthy accused uh, uh, Murrow of being uh, a communist sympathizer. Sure. Uh, of course, they had a running battle going on for a long time, and I remember Howard Hughes was called up before the House Un-American Activities Committee. I have some shows of, of that uh, and made to testify. Some very interesting stuff. Uh, That's where Hughes had the dramatic answer, and you, are you going to talk about it? No, I don't think I will. Uh, <laughs> Which answer you you don't want to talk about it? I, I forget the question, but there was, there was very little hesitation, and he said, "No, no, I don't think I will." Oh, that was the end of his testimony. I believe I believe I do have that. that that's on Ed Morrow's here at now. Uh huh. Um, I got to ask you this, um, um, without uh, you know asking you to tell uh, you know to be a fortune teller or anything. Uh, none of us have that uh, ability. Uh, at least nobody I know does. Um, there is a great fear by some liberal elements, uh, myself, uh, well, I don't know whether I'm included in that or not, that, that we are coming back into another era of that kind of censorship. I think it's quite possible. I uh, am not very heartened by this administration. I don't think they're seeing very far ahead, and uh, I don't understand what they're trying to accomplish at this point. 
speaking as a private citizen. But I'm, uh, I think the signs are all there if, they, if their power increases. It's amazing, you know, when you look at some of the books that are under attack. Um, Steinbeck is under attack now again. It always has been, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I guess that is kind of frightening. Incidentally, you're mentioning Steinbeck. This has nothing to do with what you're talking about, but this one anecdote I think your audience might be interested in. As I told you, we lived in the Monterey Peninsula for about seven years, and uh, there is a Steinbeck Theater on Cannery Row. It's just a movie house, but there's a little statue of him out front. That's where he used to hang out, and uh, not in the theater. It wasn't built then. But one night, he, while we were living there, he came to Monterey, and one of the newspaper men took him on a tour of Cannery Rose that existed then, which was considerably different from his how he would remember it. And they went into the theater just as it was closing. The manager was turning out the lights in the lobby, one thing or another, and uh, so he was showing Mr. Steinbeck the theater named after him. They stood in the lobby, and the manager glared at them and said, "We're closed." And the, Newspaper man said, well, we know that, but I thought you might like to meet John Steinbeck. And the manager cupped his ear and said, who? <laughs> he said, John Steinbeck. And he said, well, hello, John, how are you? And <laughs> turned his back, probably never knowing. So they went outside, and Steinbeck is reported to have looked at the statue and smiled and walked away. <laughs> That's a marvelous story. I love that. Um you mentioned Hal March a couple of weeks ago. We didn't get a chance to talk very much about that. Hal March, of course, uh, and I asked you, was he the one who did the $64,000 question? That's undoubtedly what he is best remembered for. Yes. He's dead now, isn't he? Yes. He died of a heart attack quite a few years ago. He came back to Hollywood after the $64,000 so-called scandal and cancellation and all, and he didn't find an awful lot to do for a while. But then he did a a comedy skit with another fellow about life as a G.I. trying to remember the name of his partner. That was on television. And he did some uh, motion picture parts and some other television parts, but he, he had a tough time. He really did, because there was tainting, too. He uh, and Ralph Story, who did the, uh, the other game shows that spun off from that, both had difficulty finding employment for quite a few years. Jack Barry didn't do too badly, though, did he? Well, he was tacit for quite a while, but no, he's, he's back in. It helps when you own half of the company, doesn't it? <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> um, the, the thing that, uh, that uh, we, I was talking about about Hal March was that uh, I, I know virtually nothing about his radio career except that he did a series called Sweeney and March. Right. You remember that? Um, Bob Sweeney, of course, is now a very uh, talented producer and director in television. Yeah, Hal, well, I kind of discovered, you know, there, there are times, I told you I discovered Edwin R. Murrow the first time he went on CBS, just substituting for a professor on an education program, and I bragged to myself that someday he would be a star. Hal March was an announcer at KYA in San Francisco when I was at uh, Alameda Naval Air Station, and I remember listening to him at night. He was a disc jockey, and I thought he had a, a nice voice and personality and kind of earmarked him for a future, and... Sure enough, he came into Los Angeles as uh, an actor and played parts in uh, quite a few Sam Spade shows and a lot of other ones at that time. Um, you know, I don't really have any information on Sweeney and March. What, do you remember what kind of a show that was? Ah, well, it was a comedy and uh, maybe a little sophisticated for its time. Uh, I don't think everybody dug all the jokes. They enjoyed it, I remember. 
and I think it was done before an audience at CBS. I believe it started as a summer replacement. That's where a lot of shows uh, blossomed, as you know. Uh, Jack Benny would go off for the summer, and someone else would, uh, another show would take over. In fact, Those We Love, which I did, it was on a Sunday morning on the network, and then when Jack Benny took his annual vacation just the year before I went in the Navy, uh, they moved us over to NBC and took his place. And, uh, and NBC liked the show, and it stayed over there. And CBS had given me, uh, they didn't let us leave CBS and work for anybody else in those days, and the same went for NBC, but they made an exception in my case because they expected those we loved to return to CBS and never did. Hmm. So I got away with uh, something I wasn't supposed to. Mm -hmm. Do you remember um, other things that uh, Hal March did on the radio? He came along kind of late, didn't he? Yeah. He, uh, as I say, you know, he had a lot of parts that, you know, he wasn't identified as a star or a, a, star or a supporting actor, really. Just occasional bit things. Uh, the same thing went for, of all people, Jack Webb after his Novak for Hire, which originated in San Francisco, and which was uh, considered in, in radio as an excellent private eye show. But it didn't get a sponsor, and the network dropped it. He came to town, and he played several parts in Sam Spade before he got himself started. Mm -hmm. Novak eventually did start to catch on. It had a kind of a, a, a cult following. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the network dropped it, and, and, uh, but I think they, they picked it up again, and they carried it for off and on for about a year. They, they tried to make, uh, make it go with a guy named uh, uh, Ben Morris. Yes. And it didn't work because there was no way he could do what Webb did. As you listen to those shows today, you go back and you listen to those Novak shows, the ones with uh, Morris on them are just uh, a shadow of what Webb does with, you know, with that sarcasm. Right. Um, how about Bill Spear? He was the director of uh, Sam Spade, and he was also... Um, he did suspense. He did suspense. He had been the... Uh probably the most prominent of the directors of the March of Time when it was on every day. Huh. Uh, in fact, Jeanette McIntyre, did I send you the tape of the uh, Finer Broadcasters Luncheon honoring Sam Spade? Yeah, you sent me a cassette of it. Uh-huh. Well, I think that included Jeanette uh, Nolan's uh, tribute to Bill Spear, among her other remarks. Jeanette is, of course, Mrs. John McIntyre, and both of those fine people were on the March of Time in those days, and Bill was their director. They worked many shows over their careers with him. Spear was a, of course, he was an excellent writer as well as a director and producer, and he was really a genius. He was sharp as a tack, and as Howard said at that luncheon, he said, we may not have been the greatest, but we sure were the fastest because that man never wanted to cut one single glowing line. Hmm. And he used to pilot on Howard pretty well. Some of Howard's narrations were full of tongue trippers and... Uh, Sometimes he did trip. Did he ever get up to the point where he couldn't get it all in and they had to cut? Uh, no. That was my job. <laughs> and uh, I, I got a kick out of the luncheon where they denied that they ever did any ad-libbing on that show. <laughs> they, they did. Some of them were written in at the last minute, so they couldn't say they were truly ad-lib. But uh, a couple of them, like the Parnell Thomas thing, that never cleared the CBS censor at the time. Certainly not that. <laughs> but... Uh, well, they got carried away with a few parts. Uh, this happened on Playhouse 90, which we're not concerned with, with Jack Palance one day. 
he ran away on one of his vehicles to where they really had to chop something at the end. Never did that with Sam Spade, but things got awfully tight. <laughs> and you guys were, of course, on live. Oh, yeah. And uh, and uh, when you got tight... Nice until the last... Uh, all the last year and a half, they allowed us to tape the show that went east and replay it on the West Coast. But prior to that, we had to come back from uh, dinner and sometimes, I suppose, a few martinis. And uh, the second show was always a lot, uh, not a lot, but a little different from the first. <laughs> Um, Bill Spear was uh, was known, at least from what I have read, as a director who who really uh, allowed a lot of freedom on on the air. He did, and as characters developed, such as Hans Conrad's stool pigeon part that he played every once in a while, or McIntyre, who was the, was Dundee, the San Francisco police inspector, if they thought that a line wasn't perhaps in their best characterization, they'd, they'd say, hey, why don't I say this? in rehearsal, and Bill would say, great, not only say that, but let's expand on that, and he'd write something else. And uh, everybody was, was expected to contribute, and they did. And he just loved to have the same people all the time, and that was one of the hallmarks of the show. I'm going by memory now, but uh, I seem to recall that uh, with suspense, he, uh, he when when you know suspense was in its great era, which was uh, roughly 1945 or 46 up through about 1953, was when they were attracting major Hollywood stars to that show. Uh, the Hollywood stars would come in and they would be very nervous with Bill Spear because, not only from what I've heard, he he didn't um, uh, encourage uh, a lot of rehearsing and wouldn't even allow it because he wanted them to be spontaneous and fresh on the air. Well, he certainly had that with the, with the cast of Sam Spade, but they were pros, the best pros you could find. And most of them worked for scale, which was under $100 in those days, but they did it for love as much as anything else. Sidney Miller, for instance, I mentioned uh, Sidney, who worked with Donald O'Connor in early television. And Sidney's a songwriter and producer and a, a very funny talent. And he can read anything in the world backwards. Hmm. And uh, he used to do that to me on the middle commercial on for Wild Root, which was a minute long. Uh, it was the same commercial, <clears throat> virtually the same, for all five years. And I'd never memorize it. I was, would always read it. But he'd pull a chair over fairly close to where I was standing when I was actually on the air, and he'd start at the back of the commercial and read it toward the front, <laughs> uh, hmm. whispering, <laughs> just so I could hear him. And uh, it, it was a little distracting, but okay. he had lovely smile on his face, and I never could get mad at him. <laughs> when, when you, um, uh, what, what kind of uh, uh, personality was 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 Spear? I mean, when when he was directing, uh, what, what would happen? Can you recall what would happen in a, in a in, on a broadcast? What would he do? Well, I never attended anything except uh, the dress rehearsal, and uh, so I don't know a great deal about the, the byplay that went on around the table as they just sat there and read. Uh, he was uh, extremely witty. He could also become pretty angry at times. Uh, he got pretty sore at me on one occasion, uh, which is not what you're asking, but he he was a man of many moods, and I think he was next door to a genius, if not actually a genius. And he wasn't too forgiving of certain mistakes that would be made. He could overlook Howard stumbling on some of the narration sometimes, but. Uh, he would pick out a point in everybody's speech and say that's where the emphasis belongs and get that thought across no matter what you do. And sometimes 
they played a little too much. And when they got on the air, they'd still maybe not emphasize the word he wanted. You could look up in the booth and see him scowling. He had a very uh, interesting way of killing people from the booth. As, as uh, your listeners may not realize, when a, a radio director directs a program, he has to point to everybody in the studio when their time comes to do something if it isn't a flow of dialogue. For example, if there's to be a door closing or a gunshot or something, a director usually raises his hand and then just at the second he wants it, he fires his hand down with his finger pointed right at the person who's supposed to either say something or create a sound. And Spear never pointed at anybody and he never looked into the studio. He continued to read his script and he would roll his hand so that the back of his hand came down a very graceful, gentle motion like, here you go. And hmm. uh, it was, he did that to me. He never looked at any of us out the studio and it was time for us to read. Um, I'm sure that with the cast that he had and the writers usually sat in, Bob Tallman, Gil Dowd, John Michael Hayes, Jack Newman, they were ones I remember the best. Um, He'd overrule them many times. They'd say, I don't think this is playing the way I wrote it. He'd say, it's playing the way I want it to be heard. Mm -hmm. And of course he prevailed, and uh, usually for a good reason. But if John McIntyre, Hans Conrad, or Sidney Miller, or especially Howard or Lorene had an observation, he would accept it and usually work it in. He, he was very open to suggestions. But to the time he, if, time he got sore at me, he had June... Havoc playing a small part, and right in the middle of the show, he beckoned to me, and I went up in the control room, and he said, Junie is doing this so well, I want her to have a credit. So I started to write, I had the cast credits at the end of the show, so-and-so played by such and such, and I started to uh, write in whatever the name of this part was, played by June Havoc, and he said, no, 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 we can't use her real name. Uh, he said, this is for the family back in Pennsylvania, and and uh, it's only for them. It's kind of a gag. So her name is Sarmina Feige. <laughs> and I don't know to this day if that was really her name, but I duly printed it in. Well, we got in a big hassle at the end of the show. We were running late, and I was going like a bat out of you-know-where, and came to the name, and I said, Armina Feige. <laughs> and uh, as I flipped the page, I, my, my head came up, and I looked up in the booth, and he was standing up, roaring and shaking his fists and jumping up and down. <laughs> And after the show, I went up in the booth and I said, Bill, I guess I mispronounced it. You guess you mispronounced it. And he just screamed at me and he said, you ruined the Sunday party in Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's wonderful. Listen, we're, let's come back and talk some more about that. Uh, we've got to take a break right now. Uh, we'll be right back with Dick Joy after this. Getting your more. You're listening to the Old Time Radio Show on 71 K News, the station that brings the world to you. Now back to Denver's Old Time Radio history buff, John Dunning. I'm glad they didn't call me an expert again. Um, Why not? <laughs> we're talking with Dick, well, because every, every time I talk to one of you guys uh, who actually uh, were there and worked in it, I feel uh, uh, very humble and less like an expert all the time. Well, Listen, everybody can't know everything. That's true. Listen, I... Um, I promised the audience a chance to ask you some questions. So um, I'm going to give out the phone number now, 758-7100. We've got a cyclone going on in the hall out there. 758-7100. Uh, 
if you'd like to come and join this conversation, if if um, you'd just like to listen to it, I have still got a, a whole sheath of questions to ask. Um, do you have any more um, anecdotes like that? Well, yeah. when the show began, as you know, it was on ABC for about 13 weeks or so, and we worked out of a small studio, and uh, things were a little chaotic at times, and the cues were missed, and one thing or another. Uh, we wound up one show in rehearsal, and it seemed to be a little short, and they didn't want to add too much to it, so they, uh, they had three Smokey the Bear public service announcements for me to read. One was about 45 seconds, and one was 30 seconds, and then there was the, the panic one, 15 seconds or something. And uh, just before I went on the air, Bill was wandering around the studio, and he turned to me and said, oh, yes, about those uh, Smokey the Bear things, if we ever get to them, which I hope we don't. Um, yeah, I'll give you one finger for the long one, two for the short, three for, you know, read the quick one and get off. So as it turned out, the actors expanded rather well on the show, and we not only didn't have any time for any Smokey the Bears, we also uh, didn't have any time for much of anything. So when we got to the end, uh, the orchestra came up loud, and then he faded them down, and he pointed to me, and at the same time he held up two fingers or something, and I looked at the clock in amazement. We'd done everything. We'd finished the credits, sponsor ID, and everything else. It was only five seconds left and there was no time for Smokey the Bear and getting off on time so I said Dick Joy speaking this is ABC the American Broadcasting <laughs> Company and that was it so the next week I came in and I'm sure he timed this somebody probably tipped him off he had his back to the door and they were sitting around the cast table and uh, as I opened the door he said you know I have one observation about announcers he said they're all basically rather stupid and he said, uh, all you have to do to prove it is, you know, like last week, just point your finger at him and he'll give his name. <laughs> uh -huh. So then he said, oh, hi, Dick, how are you? Well, <laughs> he was that way with everybody uh, from one time or another. It didn't uh, particularly phase me then. And I, I did have a nice long conversation with him many years later when uh, I went to get the transcriptions to make tapes of the shows for my own entertainment, and, uh, which he was gracious about. I was then the news director at KFAC, and uh, he was a classic music boss, and he listened to KFAC all the time, and he he uh, waylaid me just as I was leaving. He said, I've got an idea. I'm unemployed at the moment, which he well, wasn't unemployed. He just wasn't working. He said, um, I admire that station. He said, I've got a program idea for midnight for them. He said, I'd like to. He said, I've, I've done a lot of research about the great composers, and he said there were every one of them was a scoundrel. And he said, uh, I'd like to come in and do one called The Sex Life of the Great Composers. Do you think they'd buy that? <laughs> Which, of course, they didn't. I um, did mention it. Sure. I'd like to say one more thing about Sam Spade and every other show of its era, and that is the importance of live music in the studio mm -hmm. in keying everybody to do a better job. And the orchestra on Sam Spade and the original music composed by the Garaganks and... Lucian Morawak was one on Suspense. Pardon? Lucian Morawak, does that ring a bell? Garagank, Pierre and somebody else, Garagank, uh, were credits on the Sam Spade show. Mm -hmm. And Lug Luskin, who was the CBS house director and did the show on all three networks, uh, Lug was a master and he had an excellent orchestra of, I think, 22 or 23 pieces. At CBS, they were isolated, actually. They were in a separate studio, and we really couldn't hear them except through some leaks through the glass. But at NBC and ABC, they were right in the studio 
with us. And there's nothing like uh, signing off a show, even if you're in a great hurry, with a full orchestra going real all out behind you. And uh, it creates moods for the actors, the so-called stingers between the little uh, sharp notes in between scenes and acts. You know, it must be uh, quite a talent. I, I don't want to dwell on the director all night, but for uh, for a director particularly to hold all that together, it must it must take quite a, an ability. It does, and he was a commander. There was no question about that. Everybody respected Bill. Bill had been an actor himself. I don't know how good he was, but uh, he chose the best people, and he had the best relations with them. He was uh, in charge, and yet he was... Uh, a friend and, and enjoyed a joke as much as anybody else. I didn't directly work for him. I worked for the ad agency. Those were the days when the ad agencies had a lot of control over network shows because one sponsor would, would have one entire program. You wouldn't have it all cut up as it is today in television. And uh, so I was hired and paid by the ad agency. But of course he had to direct me in getting off at least, or cueing me because I couldn't hear the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Uh, at CBS, but uh, no, he was a very unusual man. Uh, his counterpart would be a man who was a very dear friend of mine, Andrew C. Love of NBC, who was the NBC director on the Telephone Hour, which I did for years. But he did University Theater too. University Theater and several other dramatic programs that he directed got him three Peabody Awards. And Andy retired, and he recently was connected with the. Oregon Shakespearean Festival right here in Ashland, only 14 miles away from where I am, which is one of the best of the Shakespearean festivals anywhere, and Andy did a radio show for them for years. He's still around? He retired and is now living in Southern California. He's having a few health problems. He's uh, approaching 90 now. But one of the most gracious gentlemen, totally different from the Bill Spear type, who is dynamic and at times loud and and very commanding. Andy was pure persuasion and, and never, and, and any time that I ever heard of, did he lose his temper or in any way uh, become temperamental. And he, he was the director of uh, Father Knows Best, the Robert Young show for years on radio. And, and uh, they paid Andy a tribute on a local radio station a few years ago, and they got a tape from Bob Young. And uh, he recalled Andy's favorite phrase, which is when they would start a dress rehearsal, he would say, is everybody comfortable? And he'd stand around and he'd say, all right, let us begin, each in his own good time. <laughs> and I became sort of his trademark. Uh, would would he be um, able to do something like this? Would he uh, be available to, to go on the air? You say he's near, uh, nearly 90. Rather doubted at this time, John. He's not feeling too comfortable, I understand. Mm -hmm. he, uh, I think he hears pretty well. He talks rather slowly, and he's been just a little under the weather recently, and it's a doggone shame. I worked, uh, did a radio show with him. I've done two, I did two of them for them since I've been up here. They asked me to come out of the closet, so I did, and it was such a pleasure to work with him. It was just like being back in the big time. None of the, the actors in the Shakespearean cast had ever heard of him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the man who played King Lear and the one that we taped a couple of years ago uh, couldn't have been over 32 years old. And uh, I did a little warm-up with a small audience, and I said, this is the first radio drama I've announced since the days of Sam Spade. And this young man 
jumped up and began singing Wild Root Cream Oil Charlie. <laughs> I asked him where he got that, and he said my daddy used to sing it to him. So I don't, uh, to me, I don't know <laughs> whether he really ever heard it himself or not. Show you how old I am in retrospect. Uh, my daughter, as I told you, is a television producer and writer in Portland. I went on a remote with her a while ago, and the cameraman, who looked to be 35 or so, uh, came out of the van, and we had a, a break, and he uh, came over to me, and he said, you announced Playhouse 90, and I said, yes, and he said, uh, gee whiz, I don't remember the show, but I remember that theme. I sat on my mom mama's lap every Thursday night, mm -hmm. watched that star turning, and heard that theme. He said, I can still sing it, so he did. Yeah. <laughs> he said, I never heard of you. <laughs> I'll tell you, when you start feeling old is when the, when the cops and the priests at GC start looking old. Uh, right. Um, we, we have a call. Before I get to that, um, um, I wanted to ask you one more thing. Uh, uh, the, the directors did have their different uh, styles, didn't they? I mean, like, I remember Arch Obler used to, uh, I remember reading that he used to stand on a table, and Orson Welles, when he was directing a show, used to use uh, different colored lights to cue um, sound uh, or, uh, or music or the various actors. So they did They did have different techniques, didn't they? That's right. Of course, Orson Welles directed from his position by a microphone as an actor, too. He had his music stand with a script on it, and he, he had total command of everything. My uh, former partner in KCMJ, by the way, was his favorite engineer at CBS, Don McBain. Uh -huh. Don and I built that station, as I wrote you, and uh, Orson was very sorry to see Don go. He left radio to become a United Airlines pilot. I'm sure he did better financially, but I don't think he had any more fun. Hmm. I have, uh, sometime when we're talking, I have a Jack Benny anecdote that is very unique, that I was privy to in, uh, in its entirety, and I'd like to tell you that if you have a hole in this airspace or some other time. Well, go ahead. Of this vintage. Well, I don't want to interrupt your telephone call here. Well, yeah, we do have a caller waiting. Let's uh, let's see if we can get back to that then. Um, in fact, I'm not sure we're ready to do that yet. Uh, are we ready to do the caller? Sure. Um, oh, I'll just take it off the hook, huh? There you go. All right, we're going to go to line one now. Hello, you're on the air. I think. Are you on the air? The caller is uh, not there, Kathy. Uh, let's you and I talk for a minute. We'll see if we can... Are you there? Yeah. All right, now you're there. See, when you push the right button, it really <laughs> it works works wonders. Uh, that's the that's the switch that uh, Dick Joy thought that you were leaning on last week when it was actually Ma Bell that was doing it. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, you're on the air. Okay, this is John of the Old Time Radio Club, and I've got a question for Dick Joy. Okay. The other day I was dubbing some uh, Here's to the Veterans, 15-minute public service shows, and I ran across number 372 with Spike Jones. I wonder if Dick can tell us a little bit about Spike Jones when he worked with him that one time, and did he do a lot of public service broadcast? Yeah, I think he did. We, uh, that was recorded, I think, around 1941 or 2. No, it was later. It was in the 50s, Dick. Oh, okay. Uh, might have been spun off from one of his actual radio shows in part. Uh, he had a series for Coca-Cola on CBS in 1948-49, which I announced uh, for a while when he was in Los Angeles. He originated on the road a great deal. Spike was very public service-minded, as most of the good people were in those days. Uh, 
I did quite a lengthy series with Dinah Shore, by the way, early in the war, uh, called Personal Album for Armed Forces. Uh, Spike was uh, a fun guy to be around, and some of the people with him were, of course, there was Doodles Weaver and all those cats. And his show each week had a guest star, and uh, anything could happen on that, including the time he threw a lemon meringue pie at Charles Boyer in the closing scene. That was always for benefit of the studio audience. And uh, instead of hitting Boyer, he got me, and I only had <laughs> This, this was all premeditated, though, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. He used to change the... Uh, you were mentioning Peter Laurie. Peter Laurie was a guest star on the Spike Jones show, uh, one, one of the shows I worked. And uh, Paul Freese, who whose voice you hear on many television things now, could imitate anybody. He's the number one imitator of Orson Welles. And uh, he's the one who did Freeberg's album, This is the United States, doing a narration a la Welles. He could do a beautiful imitation of Peter Laurie. So at the... Uh, as the show was on the air, the script uh, secretary came out and gave us all inserts for the closing thank you and goodbye scene in which uh, Spike would say, well, it's been a you know, great pleasure to have Peter Laurie with us today. And Peter, uh, we want to thank you. And uh, what picture, we always had to credit the picture, of course, what, what motion picture are you appearing in this week and all that. So uh, the girl came out and gave us all the, the new uh, pages for the last bit. And uh, Peter Laurie is sitting there and... Uh, Spike started to read this, and Peter stood up to walk over to the microphone, and coming from the wings opposite him is Paul Fries, who plays Peter Laurie, the like of which you never heard. And Laurie did not expect this, and so, so he froze and stood still. And uh, Paul Fries walks up to the microphone, and uh, Spike says, Peter, it's been marvelous to have you with us. And Paul Fries says, it has certainly been my pleasure. You don't know how I've enjoyed it myself. And the story is just about dying, and the show goes off the air, and he was still bewildered, and Spike went over and hugged him and said, dude, and I don't think Peter thought it was. <laughs> John, I'm going to hang up and let Mr. Freeze tell us about the Jack Kenny. Uh, Mr. Uh, yeah, I don't have Mr. Freeze yet. I'm going to try to get him, though. Oh, you should. You should. Um, okay, thanks for calling, John. Uh, I don't know if I answered his question about public service, but I... I know Spike did a lot of those things. He did some that we had on our station in the desert. The Jack Benny episode consisted of the following. We, we had KCNJ in Palm Springs, a 250-watt station, the only one in the desert at the time. And in the summer, Palm Springs virtually closed. There'd be one drugstore, a couple of restaurants, a hardware store, and a few construction workers and radio station and some hardy desert rats. And our audience went from thousands and thousands down to probably a few hundred. But we had to keep operating, and I was sitting in my non-resplendent office one day, and I saw this big Cadillac pull up in the driveway, and four people got out, including Jack. And I had met him in town, worked a couple of small things with him, and uh, I wouldn't expect him to remember me, but at least I went out and greeted him. He said, we have a favor to ask of you. These are my writers, and he introduced uh, several of his writers, and they had transcriptions under their arms, the 16-inch platters. And he said, you're, you're the only people in town with a turntable to play these things and they want me to hear this right now can we do it and i said sure we only have two turntables and they won't be in use for an hour or so so let's go in the control room and i said with the exception of the young man sitting here who had to do station breaks every half hour we were on the network uh, uh, you can have all the listening you can stand so they took about two hours and uh, they came out wrapped in thought 
and uh, departed the premises, and the car started up, and all of a sudden it stopped, and Benny got out, and he came back, and I, again, I went out to the door. Two young ladies in the office were enthralled, and the announcer, who had uh, played the transcriptions for him, announcer engineer, was out of his gourd with the whole thing. So uh, Jack walked up to me, and he said, I don't know what's the matter with my manners. He said, you've been so good to us, giving us this time to listen to these platters, and he said, I didn't thank anybody, and he said, I want to thank you very much, and I said, well, it's not necessary, it's a pleasure to have you, of course, and uh, so he said, and especially, I want to thank that young man, and he started for the control room, and just as he opened the door, the red light over his head went on, he didn't see it, and the young man said, this is KCNJ Palm Springs, and took a pause, and during the pause, you could distinctly hear this voice say, young man, thanks a lot, great. Then the young man started to read the spot, cracked up, couldn't make it. And the spot went down the drain, and Jack went home, and I went back to my office, and the telephone rang. And it was the client, who was a real estate broker, new in town. And I had sold him the account. It was a firm 52-week deal. We had very few of those. And he said, I thought you told me you ran a professional radio station. I said, I did tell you that, and we do. And he said, then who was that screaming over my spot? And I said, well, it wasn't just anybody off the street. It was, uh, believe it or not, Jack Benny. And he said, oh, sure, I bet. Well, you're through. None of, none of my business for you anymore. And slammed down the phone. <laughs> well, there's one more sub part of this whole darn thing. We, we had always tried to get a gimmick for every real estate man. We had a temperature report. Your mother-in-law is freezing in Pittsburgh. It's 80 in Palm Springs. Buy a house today. You know, that sort of thing. So... The biggest real estate broker in Palm Springs had refused to buy from us because we hadn't come up with a suitable gimmick. And I met him on the street the next day, and he said, a fine friend you are. He said, the newest guy in town selling real estate, you give him Jack Benny doing your spots. That is the rumor the man had started. Mm. Benny did his spots. And he never, uh, he, did he ever come back? No, but as a matter of fact, he foundered and left town shortly afterwards. Uh, so serves him right. Forget it. But it was a kind of a, a cute minute. Yeah. Because uh, Jack's an excellent, was always such an excellent gentleman about everything. He, uh, I heard him tell one of his own favorite stories about George Burns. Have you read any of the Burns or Benny books? I read the first one, um, uh, I Love Her, That's Why. And then I read... Um, um, the first Burns book, and then I read the uh, one of the Benny books. I read the one that Mary Livingston had a hand in. Yeah. Well, George's first book about Jack was how he could always break him up, you know, at right. everything else. So uh, Benny was walking on Santa Monica Boulevard in Beverly Hills, which is a six-lane, very busy street at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which it was, and he was looking in store windows. He always did this. He did it in Palm Springs. He'd wander around all by himself, and he'd talk to anybody who'd come up to him. And uh, so he was looking in this window, and he hears this horn honking across the street. And he said, I looked, and my golly, it was my best friend, George Burns. And he said he'd been to Europe, and I'd missed him for about two months. And he said, uh, George waved to me. He was parked illegally across the street by the park in the red zone. And he said, I, I risked my life, and I crossed five lanes of traffic and almost got killed. And as I approached the car, George stuffed the cigar in his mouth, pushed the button, the window rolled up, and he drove off and left me standing. <laughs> I'm sure it was true. Uh, wasn't it uh, Jack Benny that called George Burns at uh, at one o'clock in the morning on his uh, wedding night? Yes. Uh, the, the, so they were, you know, they were. <laughs> oh yeah. 
they were into that sort of thing. Uh, I, I have a couple of other things that I just have to ask you before we get off, and we've got about, uh, do we, we have news at 58? No? Um, uh, straight up. So we can go for another seven or eight minutes. Um, uh, I didn't. I didn't even touch on Dr. Kildare, Blue Ribbon Town, Danny Kay, the Saint, or any of these other things that you've done. I wanted to ask you specifically: Was the Saint that you did the era with Vincent Price? No. Uh, which star was that? Edgar Barrier. Edgar Barrier. And John Brown had a. I think he was a police lieutenant in that. And Charteris himself uh, directed it. Uh, allegedly, actually, Bill Russo, who later directed Dragnet. Uh, and Dr. Kildare. Bill uh, sort of directed it by <laughs> sitting behind Charteris and nodding after Charteris might have pointed to somebody to read something. We're talking about Leslie Charteris, who wrote the Saint yes. uh, novels. Yes. Um, Steve Dunn, who later played the part of Sam Spade after Howard Duff left, was really not, uh, did, did, wasn't successful at that at all, was he? Well, I didn't get to listen to it because uh, I went back to CBS and did a half hour newscast called Sunday Desk, uh, so I was in rehearsal. I never did hear Steve Dunn do Sam Spade, but I understand it didn't work. Steve is a friend of mine, and uh, a very fine actor, and a, a nice guy, but uh, just, well, I don't think anybody could have played Sam Spade except Howard Duff. Well, you know, I got a friend who uh, whose uh, experience excludes radio. He grew up in the era after radio was gone, and uh, he's a very, very big uh, Dashiell Hammett fan. And when I when I first put on Howard Duff, and uh, in Spade, he, he turned to me and he said, "Oh, that that guy." can't possibly be Sam Spade. He doesn't sound anything like what I imagine Sam Spade would sound like because he'd never been exposed to it. But I guess anytime it's like Jack Jack Webb with Pat Novak and then Ben Morris coming along and trying to play the part. Anytime you establish something and make it familiar and make it credible to a large audience, anybody's going to have trouble coming down the pike. And, sure. A great deal more is expected of you. Sure. You've to be an improvement, not just even par. Um, John McIntyre and Jeanette Nolan. Um, uh, Jeanette Nolan, I think of as one of the wonderful actresses of all time. Absolutely. Uh, she made a. She she got a kind of a, um, a reputation for playing old hags, I think, because she was she did a lot of that for Rod Serling on Twilight Zone and uh, Night Gallery. And that terrible television thing called Dirty Sally, which I never understood. But I don't think I'm familiar with that one. Well, you didn't miss anything. Well, they, she she just had a, a great range of, of talent, and she and McIntyre, I understand, kept trying to retire from radio and move out and, and, and farm in the wilderness. They've had a ranch in Montana for years, and they did retire. Uh, Frank Martin, who used to be a, an announcer, he did the Dick uh, Haynes show, and he did quite a few other things and was a fine actor. In fact, I first met him on Silver Theater before he got his uh, shingle, and... Uh, Frank uh, was their attorney, and he was my attorney, and we, uh, I used to see them in his office every once in a while, and he told me uh, that they weren't around for a couple of years, and I said, did they finally do it? And he said, yes, I think they did. A couple of weeks later, they were back. Ran out of money. And, uh, well, no, it was love of the craft, really, and demand. There were a lot of people who uh, wouldn't take no for an answer. Hmm. And their children, I think, have had the ranch under pretty good control. And I think it's a going proposition. They just, uh, hmm. I guess once you've been an actor, you miss it. I, I've done a few commercials in this area, certainly not for the kind of money that can be paid here, and I don't care 
about working under the conditions that prevail these days, but doing the, the, the Shakespearean thing with Andy Love not long ago was, uh, proves there's always a little fire horse in every one of us. I know McIntyre has been gone for some time. Is Jeanette Nolan still alive? No, they're both still alive. I thought McIntyre died. No. Well, not unless it's very recent. I'm, I'm almost positive he died, uh, what, uh, four or five years ago? No. I would sure love to get a hold of them. Um, uh, I'd like to find out at least if he's uh, if he's dead. He he later uh, took over the lead on Wagon Train after Ward Bond died, right? Yeah, and he did. Uh, was it Naked City or one of those? He started Naked City before the 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 cast that I think is best known came along, and then he he died on Naked City. His role was expired. Yeah, um, maybe that's where you heard it. <laughs> well, I think I've heard it since then. I thought. Well, uh, I hope not. Uh, I haven't, and of course sometimes we don't. Some of the obits that make the papers in Oregon aren't uh, direct from Hollywood. There, but uh, the uh, entertainment editor of the local paper, a gentleman named Al Reese, far-ranging. He goes to meetings in New York and everywhere else. And Al has become a good friend of mine, and uh, I'm sure if he'd seen the obit, he would have told me. I certainly hope. Well, I get uh, publications too. I get the SAG magazines, and I get. Uh, the Pacific Planner Broadcasters, and they, that column is growing, unfortunately, and I, I hate to read it. Yeah, I know it is. But I, I haven't heard anything about John. I want to ask you one quick question about Dr. Kildare. We have about two and a half minutes left. Um, that was WMGM New York syndicated, right? Well, actually, it was MGM Productions in Hollywood. They, they, I guess for some corporate reason, they assigned it to their New York station. Um, it was done at NBC uh, in Hollywood through their tape division. And uh, your lady in the booth will be glad to know is directed by a woman, mm -hmm. Marcella. I'm getting old. I've forgotten her name. She used to fight with Lionel Barrymore all the time. He would purposely fluff toward the end of the show so that it would run over in musicians' time. He loved musicians. He was one himself as well as a great artist. And he... He loved to see the musicians make a little more money, so he'd blow a line here and there. She finally caught on to pickup tracks where they could just finish the show and send the musicians home, and Lionel could sit around and read his lines. Did you do that, um, uh, the openings? Did you just do a, one one opening, which they then used all the time? Or, uh, well, I was there every week. I had every week. gas credits to read, and uh, they wanted the show to be put together from top to bottom. They really didn't do much of that in those days, did they? What they did in those days. I mean, the canned stuff. Oh, no, no, no. Incidentally, there were two of the greatest guys I ever saw who really loved each other. Oh, they argued all the time about pronunciation and driving cars and things. Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. Hmm. A couple of real pros and real warm people. Yeah, uh, Barrymore, uh, I would I would not like to argue with him. I'm sure uh, he, he would be... Just his reputation must have made him an inhibiting man. Oh, he, was, he had an Oldsmobile, an old one, with all hand controls because, of course, he was crippled, as you know. Yeah. We balled him out in the parking lot one day. He said, a man of your stature and money could hire someone to drive your car, buy your groceries. You could have a nice car, sit in the back and relax. And Lionel, I won't quote the words he used, but uh, there was a squeal of tires, and Lou was lucky to get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> We are now 30 seconds from the news, so Dick, I really want to thank you for coming along. You certainly uh, increased my uh, understanding of the business uh, immeasurably, and I would like to get back with you sometime because... Um, pleasure, and I'm going to mail you a list of people I think you might want to call. Okay, I appreciate you doing that. I'll, uh, hang on, I want to talk to you after we get off the air, will you? Um, 
We've got the news coming up right now. It's uh, just a couple of seconds before 5 o'clock. And this has been Old Time Radio for the last few hours. This is KNUS in Denver, Colorado. Jaws Professional, John Dunning Folder, John Dunning, John Dunning, John Dunning, John Dunning, John Dunning, Frank Nelson, John Dunning, 820131, Dick Joy, John Dunning, 820117, Dick Joy, 820228, Candy Candido, 820214, Dick Joy, 820207, Roberta Good. All tab, Soundforge Pro 11.0, Escape, Escape, Enter, Enter. Menu, file A, leaving menus, sound one star, save as dialogue, file name, sound one, edit. S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y-N-I-G-H-T-S-E-C-O-N-D-P-C-D-I-T-A-P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A. 6-2-3-1-8. Save as type, save button, enter, edit. JAWS Professional Apple Software Update Dialog List View iTunes 12.7 Alt F4 Taskbar Alt Tab Skype Trademark 35 Walden Alt Page Down Alt Tab Soundforge Pro 11.0